Let my God indefinitely detain now Trying to come visit Christmas Eve You could claim she had a right to counsel But some folks in the Congress disagree She was flying home to our house got stopped by TSA Thought she might be Abdul Mutala When they had a look at grandma's old x-ray Her hair had recently been colored She paid cash for her Christmas gifts Two things apparently the Congress Has determined might make you a terrorist Grandma got indefinitely detained now Trying to come visit Christmas Eve They took her rights in order to protect her rights The most genius plan ever in history But see, we need to have these powers To help protect this free country But if it takes these steps to do so what is it exactly we are protecting? Ah. Now she's an enemy combatant <laughs> As if that makes any sense The only thing that she's combating Is her unpredictable incontinence Grandma got indefinitely detained now Trying to come visit Christmas Eve claim there's no right to due process, but check the Fifth Amendment and you'll see. Grandma got indefinitely detained now, everybody never made it home on Christmas Day. She always wanted to live in Miami, at least now she's just 90 miles away. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus, your host. This is being brought to you live and recorded live at 9.32 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And the date is November 3rd, 2022. We have a free roll, which started two minutes ago. And it is $50 we're giving away on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find that near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. But you do need a separate account from the forum to access the free money. You can play, but you have to make a separate account. It needs to be validated. Otherwise, you don't get the free money. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll to understand the rules to qualify. We are giving $50 away, 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. It started at 9.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, which is three minutes ago. But don't fret. You have 22 minutes left to get in because we have 25 minutes of late registration with a full stack. Eric Benzamokin gave $17, and we have 83 left from that 100 he sent to use on free rolls at my discretion. So I took 17 from this week. Singles hitter, $23 left from his $100 donation. So we're using that tonight. And an anonymous donor gave $10. Thank you to him. That came in this week. $50 total, $25 for first, $15 for second. $10 for third are the prizes, which I will pay you by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by one of various cryptocurrencies, 
or other methods you could think of to where money can be sent online. If you win, PM me Dan Druff on the form. That's Dan Druff with a space in between, Dan Space Druff. Or you can text me, 775-372-8355. Or you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. But I do prefer you PM me on the forum. And I only send out these payments once every few months, so don't expect it fast. But I'm probably going to be paying out a batch this weekend. So if I get the list of who won this week, which I have to get from Belly Buster, the poker room manager, if I get that in time, then I will include that in the batch I'm about to send out. And remember, you have to be validated to play on there. So if you don't get validated for some reason, you can let me know and I will get it validated. Soon I will be taking over the poker room. Right now, Belly Buster is still running it, but it will soon be in my hands. And then I will have to do everything. But that's okay. I, Belly Buster, he did this for over 10 years. I appreciate all the time and expense he put into that. And it'll be changing hands soon. If you want to call the show... 775-FRAUD-55 is the number. That translates to 775-372-8355. You can also text that number anytime, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and I will probably respond to you. If you text me during the show, then I may read your text on the air unless you ask me first not to read your text on the air. But if you send it when we're not live, then I will not read it on the air and I will usually respond no matter when I get the text. And you, you can always feel free to use that number to get a hold of me. Don't call it because unless the show is running live, I'm not going to answer the phone. I turn off the phone part of it when we're not on the show. But the text part is always on. So never feel like it's too late or too early to text me. It's fine. And no question is too stupid. Okay, that's not true. Some questions are too stupid, but you can ask them anyway. And as long as you're respectful, then I'm happy to hear from you. And you can even tell me things you don't like about the show. Whatever you want to say to me, 775-372-8355, you can text me, and you'll probably get an answer. We have a call-to-listen line. This works differently than the number to call or text. This is a number you call up and you listen to the show. It's just another way to listen to the show. That phone number is 518-931-1189, 518-931-1189. And any phone which can call the United States for free can call this for free, unless you have T-Mobile, in which case it will be one cent a minute, which I do not get. 518-931-1189 is the call to listen line. It does not require a smartphone. It does not require a data plan. It does not require a computer or the internet. And if your signal is not very good, no problem, because it will never buffer and it will never freeze. I promise it has a no buffer, no freeze guarantee. It will just work. It's unlike any other thing you've used to listen to streaming media. 518-931-1189 is that phone number. We have an alternate number into the show. It's the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line sits in a cabin on top of Mount Charleston, which is about 45 minutes away from Las Vegas by car. It does get snow in the winter. In fact, it might already have snow up there because there has been some snow falling in the area in the last few days. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. 702-430-1808. Don't text that number, though. I do not receive texts on it. We have a chat room, which you can chat in during the live show. Don't bother if you're listening in the archives because there will be nobody there. It will work from any device. And if you want to catch the show in the archives, 
we have our show on so many platforms, so many podcasting platforms, if you don't listen live. You can find it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartMedia, Spotify, the Bullhorn app, which actually has its own call to listen line. If you want to listen to the archives through a call to listen line, they have that on the Bullhorn app. And we are also on the TuneIn app, which provides a live and archive listening option. So that's a pretty cool app. And I'm looking to add some other apps at the moment. I was even looking to see if there was an easy way to add this show to YouTube. And unfortunately, there is not. So for the moment, we are not on YouTube, but I'm still looking into if there's like an automated way to just post the show from what's known as an RSS feed, which is how the show posts to the other platforms. So for the moment, there's no YouTube, but maybe there will be in the future. And if there's any other way you want me to provide the show for you to listen, let me know, and I'll see if I can do it. And if it's not too much trouble and it's not too much expense, then I will do so. If you are forgetting any of the phone numbers I gave out, because some of them are not easy numbers to remember, like the call to listen line, that's a very difficult number to remember. But no problem. Just go to the radio tab near the top of PokerFraudAlert.com, and all the phone numbers you need to know are listed right there for you. You can also listen to the live show or our streaming reruns at any point by going to the radio tab, and it'll work on all devices. We have a player right there. Because when we're not live, we're always streaming a past show we've done. We've done well over 400 shows. In fact, more than 450 shows. The 500th show will be coming in the middle of next year. So it'll just pick one at random and run it as if it's live. It could be anywhere from 2012 through now. And it runs it as if it's as if it's live, and then when that's done, it picks another and another and another till we come back live on the air. And I can see we frequently have a number of people listening to that. In fact, I'm surprised how many people listen to the streaming reruns. I guess people just like to put it on and hear what comes on and just listen for hours, and you can do that to your heart's content. And in fact, the call to listen line does the same thing. So I'm going to give you our agenda, then we'll get going. By the way... Calwatt may come on tonight. Calwatt is actually on a plane right now. He's in the air, and he is getting closer and closer to Las Vegas. And keep in mind, he does not live close to Las Vegas. He lives in upstate New York, but he is on his way to Las Vegas. I was actually considering going myself and seeing him again. I just saw him in July, but uh, I was considering going again. It just didn't work out because I have some things I have to do here. But I hope he has a good time there in Vegas, and he may come on. He's going to land at about 11 o'clock. He may come on and uh, join us here if he's not too tired. Keep in mind, it'll be like 2 a.m. for him when he lands because he is on East Coast time, and he's going to be going to the West Coast, so it'll feel like 2 a.m. So I don't know if he'll be in the mood to come on, but if he is, then we will have him on as a co-host, and maybe we'll pick up Brandon and or Trader Ruski at some point. If you do call the show, please do so in between topics unless you're calling about the topic, and then I guess you can call in, but keep in mind I may not answer if I'm really not looking to take calls at the moment, because sometimes I want to get all my thoughts out before we take phone calls, but just putting that out there, the best time to get through is between topics or as we are coming near the end of a topic, which you can kind of tell as we progress through a topic when we're kind of coming near the end and about to move on. It has been about 10 days since we were last on, and that has been the pattern recently. We've been coming on about every 10 or 11 days. I'm not doing that on purpose. This is kind of the way it's fell. You'll know 
very shortly the reason I was not on for the last few days because I took a kind of a little mini trip with my family, and I'll tell you all about it. But I'm going to try to get back to the once a week thing so we can have the show a bit more frequently. I, I didn't mean for the show to be every week and a half. That's just the way it's broken out recently. But, you know, I fit it in when I can. It's something that I don't get paid for, and I just do in my spare time. And this takes a lot of time, not just to do this long show, but to research the topics they talk about and to come up with topics and uh, then to edit it afterwards. It's it's a, a lot of hours I have to put into this, not just the hours I'm speaking here. So I hope you understand. Anyway, here's the agenda. I went to Disneyland for the first time in almost seven years. Last time I was there is January 2016. A lot has changed. And of course, I brought Benjamin. That was the main point of the trip. But a lot has changed. I will give you my impression of 2022 Disneyland, and I will give you some tips, some of which are coming from me after I visited and experienced it myself, and some of it came from a radio listener who gave me some suggestions beforehand, which were very valuable. So not all this came from me directly, but I'm going to be disseminating it to you. And if you're planning to go to Disneyland anytime soon... Listen up closely, because these are good tips I'm going to give you, better than you're going to find anywhere on the web. Then we will continue the coverage of the Garrett Adelstein versus Robbie Jade Lou situation with Hustler Casino Live, and you may say, oh no, I don't want to hear hours and hours of that. Well, good news, you're not going to hear hours and hours of that, because we only have three subtopics of that matter. So we're going to do less and less of that each week because there's less and less to say. And we had a few things happen that I think are of interest and you'll want to know about, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, so we're going to do a lot of other topics this week that are completely unrelated to it. Aaron O'Rourke, known as Dally Man, you may have heard of him. He's been around the poker and gambling scene for quite some time, at least dating back to the 2000s. He claims he was scammed by a man named Quincy Collins, who goes by Q, and it was out of $4,000, except this was not your typical scam story, because Quincy Collins actually stayed with Aaron O'Rourke for a while. It's a pretty interesting story, and I'm going to read you what Aaron had to say about it, and I will actually read the responses that were posted by Quincy Collins, who answered in the thread. A career thief won over $1.7 million from Isle Waterloo, not in a jackpot, but in a court jackpot, in a lawsuit. And this was after security failed to stop a fellow patron from beating him badly after he stole from that patron's wife's rewards card. So this was a thief. This was a guy who stole and... He was being beaten up by the victim's husband, and security didn't stop it. But there's more to the story, and we will discuss whether I feel that judgment was correct. A Massachusetts man pled guilty to illegal sports betting and extortion in a old-school bookie operation which you don't see that many of these anymore, but I'll tell you more about it when we get to that topic. Three states are attempting to crack down on 
a weird scheme involving NFTs where you could buy your way into online casino ownership via the NFTs. So three states are not very happy with this because these online casinos are not legal in the U.S. I will tell you about that. Remember when I did the topic recently about Predict It, which is the legal political betting site based out of New Zealand, but offered to U.S. customers? And I told you that is going to be going down in February because the U.S. government has decided to take away their status where they can operate without fear of being prosecuted. Well, it may get replaced by a service called Calshi, which exists right now, but at the moment they don't offer political bets to Americans, but they want to, and this is now getting some attention as to whether or not the government will allow it. So we'll talk about Calshi and the status it is currently at and where it might go or not go in the future. Cincinnati Reds legend and banned baseball figure. He is banned from all of baseball. Pete Rose, of course. He is back in the news because he will be placing Ohio's very first legal sports bet on January 1st when it becomes legal to bet sports in Ohio. Why will it be him? Well, we will discuss that. Casino tycoon Tillman Fertitta bought 6% of Wynn Resorts despite having nothing to do with the win prior to this and running a competing casino in Las Vegas. So why would he do this and what does this mean? I will explain. A Chinese developer is accused of giving $250,000 worth of casino chips and cash and hookers to a Los Angeles city councilman in order to get a major project approved in L.A. So I'll tell you about that whole weird story. Finally, we have some coronavirus news, and there's two things I want to talk about. First of all, remember I mentioned how hard it is to find data on Omicron death by age? I theorized that this is being hidden by the government. Well, I found some data, and it's pretty shocking. It is pretty shocking. I will tell you the number of people who were under 65 in the U.S. who died of COVID in September 2022. The number is going to surprise you. Let me just say that. Then, a woman named Emily Oster, who is an author, proposed in an article in The Atlantic that we should have pandemic amnesty for mistakes made during times of COVID. Basically, that it was something we've never dealt with before in our lifetime, so that everybody who made mistakes then should be forgiven. Is this reasonable or is this something unrealistic and unfair? I will give you my opinion on pandemic amnesty as proposed by Emily Oster. So that's our show for tonight, unless we have other things come up. Before we get going, we have an election coming up in five days. By the time I come back on the air, the 2022 midterm election in the United States will be complete. We may not have all the results yet, depending on how long it takes to count the votes, and there may be runoffs, but for the most part, we will know how that election went. I can tell you already that I would be shocked if this is not a major, major Republican victory. I would be very surprised if the Republicans did not emerge with both the Senate and the House. 
In fact, the Republicans could finish with as many as 54 seats out of the 100 in the Senate, and they could emerge with a majority in the House of more than 30 seats. They may gain 30, 35, maybe even more seats in the House. Right now, they are uh, slightly in a deficit by like five seats, but that's going to get wiped out easily. So it's going to be a major victory for Republicans. It is likely that for the first time in 40 years, a Republican governor is going to be winning Oregon, which is shocking. But that looks like it's probably going to happen. It's not a sure thing, but it's probably going to happen. In fact, I placed a bet on it. So I put my money where my mouth was on that one. This is going to be a big Republican victory. And then the question becomes, where do we go from here? Where does the Democratic Party go from here? And where does America go from here? Because there's going to be a lot of people very bitter about this. There's going to be a lot of people crying foul about this. And then there's also the question of how are Republicans going to handle having the majority in the Senate and the House? They won't have the presidency because Joe Biden will still be president. But how will Republicans handle having those majorities? And these are questions I don't really know the answer to. We'll have to see what occurs. But I can say this. If Democrats want to have a chance to turn this around in two years, it's too late for this election. This election, they're going to get clobbered for sure. But if they want to have a chance to turn this around in 2024, they need to be reasonable. They need to operate using common sense. And there are Democrats, there are old school liberals who I don't agree with them very much, but they operate with common sense. I'll give them that. They are not crazy. They don't have absurd ideas. I can look at an idea and say, hey, I don't agree with this, but it's not absurd. But a lot of ideas I'm seeing coming out of the Democratic Party today, or at least supported by most Democrats, or at least not opposed by most Democrats, some of these are absolutely absurd and violate common sense, such as defund the police, such as no cash bail, such as biological men in women's sports. I mean, it, it, the list goes on and on, such as a late-term abortion on demand. These are concepts that a decade ago would have been considered absolutely insane by members of both parties. And the truth is that most people still believe all of these ideas that I just mentioned to be insane. And there's a certain contingent on the left that believes these are good ideas and they're not insane. And those within their own party, those within the Democratic Party that speak up and say, hey, these don't sound like a good idea, either politically or just as ideas themselves, they get shouted down and called a lot of names and they face a lot of allegations that they're homophobic and racist and transphobic, blah, 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 blah. And uh, they are afraid to continue speaking up, most of them. So that is how the Democratic Party got to where it is right now. And that's the reason they're going to lose so badly in five days. It's not because of right-wing propaganda and Fox News and misinformation or just because the party in power tends to lose during midterms. It's not so much any of that stuff. It's because the Democratic Party has generally gone insane. And I know if you're a Democrat, you're going to say, well, look at the Republicans, blah, 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 blah. Look, 
I have been critical of some things that some people on the right say and think. I never agreed with any of this election denial. I believe that Joe Biden did fairly win the 2020 election. I believe he is the president. He should have been the president. He's not the one I wanted to be the president, but he is, and I believed he won the election fairly. I felt the media and social media gave him a lot of advantages that he shouldn't have gotten, so it was unfair from that standpoint. But as far as the votes cast, I felt that he really did win and that I felt the denial of the election results was stupid. It was stupid for Trump to say this. It's stupid for people on the right to still say this. Not not all the people on the right say this. A lot of them don't say this, but uh, some of them still do, and I, I wish they didn't say that. There's also some attitudes about COVID that I feel the right didn't approach in a common sense fashion. There were some things that they did co- approach in the common sense fashion, and the left did not. So I have criticized both sides with COVID, as you've heard. And you'll see, in fact, on my own forum and the big COVID thread we have there, I frequently argue with people of my own party regarding COVID. But at the same time, I'm not along with what the left thinks of COVID either. I have a different opinion, as you've heard, which uh, is different than what you'll hear from people who are faithful to either party. So I really am my own man with my political views, even though they much more align with the Republican side. But any side that defies common sense is typically going to lose. And Democrats have really, really been defying common sense recently. And they've made it to where you're not allowed to question it, or otherwise you get shouted down. Otherwise you get canceled in some way. Otherwise you would get your account banned on social media or you would be risking your your employment if word got back to HR or if enough people complained loudly enough about you. But even without the whole censorship aspect, some of these ideas they had are ridiculous. And from an electoral strategy standpoint, they just didn't make any sense. Because if moderate and independent voters very, very much disagree with what you stand for, then you're going to get clobbered in the election because you're going to have a certain contingent of people that always vote Republican, a certain contingent of people who always vote Democrat, no matter what. And the ones who determine the way elections fall are those in the middle, those who are not in either party, those who are moderate to where they may be a Republican who can vote Democrat or a Democrat who can vote Republican. That's who determines who wins the election. And if you piss off those people and you make no sense to those people and your ideas seem really, really bad or dangerous to those people, then you are not going to win. And you can rationalize all you want that you're smarter than those people or you know better than them or that you're the party of the intellectuals and and the party of science, blah, 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 blah. No, that's just you being arrogant. That's just you believing that you are smarter and better than those who disagree with you, which often is not true. So as long as you take the attitude that you know better than everybody else and that nobody's allowed to question you, then you're going to keep losing. And that is what's going to happen to the Democrats here. And if they are smart, they will do what they did after the 1994 election, which is going to look very similar to the 2022 election. The 1994 midterms, I'm sure most of you are old enough to remember this because we have an old audience. The Republicans who got beat down in 92, they had a major comeback, a very, very successful election. They won a lot of gubernatorial seats, including ones they were expected to lose. 
They won a lot of house seats, including ones they were expected to lose, including ones in areas they had not won in decades. They won Senate seats that they were expected to lose. All around, the Republicans clobbered the Democrats in 94. But you know what the Democrats did? They learned from their mistakes. And they changed their message. They changed the way they approached things. Remember when Joe Biden this last election cycle in 2020 was criticized for his support of this uh, 1995 crime bill. You know why Biden supported the 1995 crime bill? Because this was in response to the 1994 beatdown where Democrats were correctly seen as too soft on crime. By the way, the Democrats of 94 were not soft on crime compared to the ones today. They were soft on crime, but nothing like they are today. There was no defunding of the police or eliminating cash bail. None of that was going on in 94. None of that was even suggested in 94. So that shows you how much farther left they've gone on these issues. But in 94, they were considered soft on crime. So in response, you had Democrats like Biden who pushed a bill that uh, dealt with crime. And it actually was not a bad bill, even though it got vilified later on by fellow Democrats, that was not a bad bill. And that was the Democrats adjusting. That was them saying, you know what? We are not going to just do what we would love to do. We're going to do what the American people want to see. We're going to get ourselves more in touch with the wants and needs of average Americans. And guess what? In 96, they did very well. Once again, they had a very good election. So they completely turned it around. It didn't help the Republicans didn't do the best with legislating after they won in 94. They kind of didn't know where to go from there or what to do. But as far as electoral strategy in 94, it was stellar on the Republican side and the Democrats were so out of touch and they paid for it dearly. And the same thing is happening right now, 28 years later, so much that you're probably going to see crap candidates like Herschel Walker and Mehmet Oz and Blake Masters win the Senate, which is amazing, especially in the states that they are in. So... When I saw those candidates were nominated, I thought this is a disaster. Republicans are throwing away Senate seats. They could have easily won these. But no, they're probably going to win these anyway. At least uh, Walker and Oz are looking pretty likely to win now. And those are crap candidates. Both of these guys have a lot of problems. I don't really like either of them, but they're probably going to win because, in part, the Democrats have basically gone insane and are supporting insane positions and even though the ones who don't support the insane positions aren't speaking out loudly enough against the insane positions so you're going to see the results so we're going to see in the coming two years whether democrats say you know what we're going to take our party back from the crazies and we're still going to be liberal we're still going to stick to what we believed 10 years ago we're not going to become conservatives we're not going to concede to the conservatives, but we will drop the craziness. We're going to drop the stupidity. We're going to drop the extremity. And we're going to come up with a message that makes sense to Americans in the middle who might even lean somewhat left, but just can't support what they're seeing right now. And if they don't, they're going to lose again. They're going to get beat in 24. Even if it's Trump, even if it's Trump who's the nominee, he'd probably win. I prefer it's not Trump. I'm done with Trump. I'm not a Trump guy. I never really was a Trump guy. But I think even he will win in 24 if they don't turn around. So we will see.
And you know what? As much as I like to see my party win elections, I mean, I'll be happy when there's a big Republican beatdown in five days. But at the same time, it'll make me happy if this does push the Democrats to act more sensibly. And I don't have to worry about insane legislation passing the next time the Democrats are in power. So it could be a good thing for the country if this causes a reality check for the Democrats and then they behave in more of a sane fashion again. And by the way, the Democrats were behaving in a mostly sane fashion 10 years ago. I didn't agree with a lot of what they stood for, but I wouldn't describe most of it as insane. I could understand all of it. It made sense to me. It's just something I didn't agree with for the most part. But now, I mean, I look at some of the things they support and I just scratch my head and go, how can they support this? So we will see. We will see what they end up doing because they didn't learn from last year. Last year in uh, the Virginia gubernatorial election, the New Jersey gubernatorial election, which should have been a slam dunk for Democrats and they barely won, that should have been a signal, time to change course, and they did not. So we're going to see the results in five days. Pretty much guaranteed it's going to be a big red wave. And then we will see what happens from there. But you know what? If you are a Democrat, and there's a lot of Democrats that listen to this show, I appreciate the fact that you listen, despite the fact that I have different politics from you. I hope you can see this, and I hope you can see that your party was headed in the wrong direction. And I hope you agree that they should probably change course. And believe me, there have been times that I have not liked the direction of my own party and wish they did things differently, including with some of the Senate nominees this year, including Trump's behavior when he lost the election. I mean, there's a lot of things I haven't liked that I've seen from Republicans recently, but it doesn't compare to what I've seen from Democrats. So I just wanted to get all that out because we're going to have that election in five days. And I'm not going to tell you to go vote. I hate when people say, this is a get out the vote message. We don't care who you vote for, just go vote. No, of course you care who they're going to vote for. If you are a Republican, you should hope that Democrats stay home. If you're a Democrat, you should hope Republicans stay home. So just be honest. So if I'm going to be honest here, I hope that all of you Democrats stay home and don't vote. And I hope Republicans go out and do vote. And I assure if, I'm sure if you're a Democrat, you hope the opposite thing. And saying anything else is a lie. And I hate when people say that. That's why I always laugh at these get out the vote efforts that are clearly very partisan, but won't admit they are. You know, voting is something that you can do if you want. And if you don't want, then don't. And nobody should tell you to vote or not vote. I'm definitely going to vote. By the way, if you're in California, please, and this is not political, this part, please vote no on 26 and yes on 27. And you'll look, neither party is very hot on either proposition. So it's not like this is a Republican versus Democrat thing. But I'm saying we just don't want the Indian tribes in charge of sports betting in California. It'll be a disaster. They're super consumer unfriendly. That is horrible for gamblers everywhere if Indian tribes are in charge of California sports betting. So vote yes on 27 and no on 26. Don't vote yes on both saying, okay, well, I hope one of them passes. No, you don't, because if they both pass, the one with more votes ends up becoming the law. So you don't want to give anything to 26 here. So yes, 27, no 26. Very simple. I'd much rather have established companies that have handled sports betting fairly well 
in other states. I'd much rather have them running the show than having the Indian tribes do it, who are going to screw all of us. No on 26, yes on 27 in California. Now it is time to tell you about my little trip and the reason we didn't do radio until tonight. I last was at Disneyland in January 2016. My son Benjamin was five years old at the time. And I did not plan to take almost seven years to go back. And by the time early 2020 came, which was four years later, I said, hey, you know, it's been a while since we've been at Disneyland. And Benjamin now is nine years old. It'll be kind of a different experience for him at this point. So let's go to Disneyland. And Ben's mom said, oh, yeah, we definitely should. So early 2020, I made plans to go to Disneyland in mid-March. Well, you know what happened in mid-March of 2020. Yep, a little disease known as COVID showed up, and that was the end of that. So no mid-March 2020 trip to Disneyland. And yes, we could have gone back sooner than this because... I haven't worried about the COVID situation. You know, Disneyland reopened and I haven't worried about the COVID situation in quite some time, but we just didn't get around to doing it. Anyway, we decided finally we're going to make it happen. Benjamin is now 12 years old and it has been almost seven years since we were last there. A lot has changed at Disneyland and I knew that before I even went. So it was definitely time to go again. We are not super far from Disneyland, of course, being in Southern California, but we are not that close. Disneyland is not in L.A. You probably know it is in a city called Anaheim. Anaheim is in Orange County, which is southeast of Los Angeles. And I'm even farther away from Anaheim than Los Angeles. There's also a ton of traffic if you drive during any hours that are any time where traffic would be, which is basically any time during daylight and even a little time after daylight. So... I have that to contend with as well. So going to Disneyland for me pretty much requires that I get a hotel nearby and then stay the night and then go in the morning and then drive home after the day is over. So it's a one-night hotel stay. And uh, I drive the night before and then drive back after we're done with the day at Disneyland. So this way I'm driving fairly late at night on both days and don't hit traffic. So it's something that's not super close, but it's also not super far. Obviously, it doesn't require any kind of flights, nor does it require hours and hours of driving since I stay away from the traffic. So that's what is involved to go to Disneyland. And of course, it adds a bit of an expense to have a one-night hotel stay. And Disneyland tickets are quite expensive now. So... It's something that does add up, and even just three people, which is me, Benjamin's mom, and Benjamin, plus a one-night hotel stay in not even like a luxury hotel or on-property hotel, but like an off-property hotel for one night, even that runs you some decent money. So all in all, it is really hard to get away with a one-day trip to Disneyland and its sister park, California Adventure which is located uh, right across from Disneyland. It's hard to get away with a trip that's much less than $1,000, even with just a one-night hotel stay. So it's some money. It's not huge money, but it's not a cheap thing. But 
it went beyond expense for me because I wanted to do it right. Disneyland has gotten more and more crowded as the years have gone by. My parents used to take me there in the 1970s and the early 80s. And what they would do is they'd take me out of school for a day. So we'd go on a weekday and we could just breeze onto all the rides. I'm talking about mid-70s, early 80s. I mean, when I say breeze on the rides, I mean, you just walk right on. You want to go on Space Mountain five times in a row? No problem. You want to go on Matterhorn four times in a row? No problem. Now, there was no California Adventure then. And there were a lot fewer rides then compared to now as far as major rides go. But it was very nice in that there were no crowds. Everything was easy. But that was a long time ago. But even if you go back about 15 years, you could still go on a weekday and the crowds, while no longer sparse, were not terrible. So you still wouldn't be waiting on really long lines. They also had introduced something called Fast Pass, which was free at the time. And that was basically a way to get onto a priority line for certain rides. Now, you could only get one fast pass every few hours, so it's not like you could do that for every ride, but it was a nice thing to use for the few rides that were more crowded. So you could still have a very nice and mostly line-free day, or at least long line-free day, at Disneyland if you went during the week. Then Disneyland started to change even more in that more and more people started going during the week. So you had a lot of international travelers that would have no problem going during the week, of course. Then you had people coming from out of state all year round. I'm not just talking about during the summer that would take their kids out of school or in some cases even adults who would just go. There's a lot of big-time Disney fans who are adults who don't even need a kid with them to enjoy it. So you get a lot of that there as well. So you'd get a lot of people coming during the week to where it was still very crowded even if you went on a Tuesday or Wednesday. You'd expect it to be fairly empty. Nope it would tend to be very crowded. Not quite as bad as the weekends, but still pretty bad. And that's what we found when we last went in January of 2016. But we were still able to have a pretty good day there, and we didn't wait on very long lines, except towards the end it started to get uh, more busy. What happened is because it was January, people who had bought their season passes for the year 2016, this was the first Friday. We went on a Friday. So it was the first Friday they could use their pass. So everyone got off work who had bought a 2016 pass and they wanted to use it for the first time. So they showed up on Friday night and boy, did it crowd up about 6 p.m. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. It was a fairly uncrowded day and then starting 6 p.m. it was just mobbed. So that was the last time I was there. Benjamin was only five then and there were certain rides I couldn't take him on and certain rides just weren't appropriate to take him on. And, you know, it's a different experience. He can enjoy it more from the standpoint of uh, the Disney characters roaming around and all that. But from the ride standpoint, it's not as good as it would be with him being an older kid. Well, now he's definitely an older kid being 12. So while I didn't think he'd be that excited to see uh, Minnie Mouse walking around or Snow White, I knew that all the rides would he'd get a lot more out of them and there would be no ride that he wouldn't be able to go on. So I was looking forward to going, but of course there's still the crowds and the expense issue, and they changed some things there regarding even buying tickets in the first place. The days of going to Disneyland and buying tickets at the gate, or just buying them the day before online, uh, that's pretty much done. 
Now what you need to do is you need to get a reservation for Disneyland. Yeah, an actual reservation. So you reserve a date you want to go, and then you buy a ticket, and then if you don't want to go on that date, you're not committed to it, then you can go on any other date. You can change your reservation to a different date that is of a similar tier, and I'll explain the tiers in a second. So that's the way it works presently. So you've really got to plan in advance. Furthermore, the days of all of the tickets being one price are over because Disneyland realized that it's not smart for them to charge the same on low-demand days as high-demand days. Look at hotels. Look at airlines. They don't charge the same on every day. They charge you a lot more when a lot of people want to use their service, and when it's kind of slow, they charge a lot less. So Disneyland said, what the hell are we doing? Why are we charging the same rate all year? So what they did is they introduced a tiered pricing system. And at the moment, a single adult ticket ranges between 104 and $179, depending upon how busy their computer projects the date to be. Or even if the computer projects it to be not so busy, if it turns out it is selling a lot better than the computer expected, then it will adjust the price and it will make it more expensive. So not everything even starts at 104. In fact, very few things start at 104 because the computer already projects what it believes the crowds will be for that date. So if it's seen as a peak date, then it's going to just immediately charge 179. But it may start off kind of in the middle and then move up. It may start low and move up. It depends upon the demand for that particular year. But the computer is pretty good for the most part at guessing what the demand is going to be. So when you look at a calendar for how expensive each day is, and you can see this if you go to Disneyland's website, then not only do you get an idea for how much it's going to cost you per ticket, but you also can tell how crowded it is going to be compared to other days. And the last part of what I said compared to other days is very important because I'm going to drop a bomb on you. You may not be aware of this, but there is not a single day of the year where Disneyland is uncrowded. None. Every single day, 365 days a year, is, is crowded. Every single one of them. But there are degrees of crowds. There is crowded, and then there is completely jammed. And then there's kind of in between crowded and completely jammed. If it's completely jammed, you don't want to be there. In fact, even if someone gave you free tickets, you probably would not want to be there. It's a miserable experience for it to be completely jammed. So you need to avoid going when it's completely jammed. So when is it going to be completely jammed? You may think, okay, well, I'll just go on a random weekday, a non-holiday weekday. That won't be completely jammed. Is that correct? Eh, Wrong. That might be correct, but often it's not. Because remember, Disneyland has a lot of people coming during the week. So for example, if you pick any weekday in October, it's going to be totally jammed. Why? Because they have the Halloween theme, and a lot of people like the Halloween theme. So pretty much every day in October absolutely sucks. Even if it's just a random Wednesday in October, it's going to be terrible. In fact, I know someone who went on a random Wednesday this past October, and it was awful. And they paid the 179 by the way, the most expensive rate. So when can you go? What about in the summer? Well, no, because a lot of people travel in the summer. And 
Anaheim can be quite hot in the summer. So that's another thing. You don't want to be there when the weather sucks. You don't want to be there when it's hot, and you don't want to be there when it's rainy, and you don't want to be there when it's cold. And you may say, cold? Ha 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 ha. It never gets cold in LA. Well, I've heard that said before by people who are from areas where it gets much colder than LA. But remember, LA is not Florida. LA does get quite cool. So, yeah, you may not feel that terrible if you walk outside and it's 52 degrees and windy, if you're used to it being 10 degrees and windy, but try spending all day with your kids outside when it's 52 and windy. Eventually, your kids are going to really, really hate it, and they're going to want to leave, and they're not going to enjoy being there, and you're not going to enjoy being there. So no matter what weather you're accustomed to, you do not want to be there if it's cold and windy, or even if it's just cold, because remember, some of these rides create their own wind from moving outside. So you don't want to go there when it's cold. You don't want to go there when it's rainy. And the LA rainy season is basically from uh, mid-November through mid-March. So you don't want to be there when it's rainy. You don't want to be there when it's cold. You don't want to be there when it's hot. And you don't want to be there when it's crowded. Well, that doesn't leave you a lot of dates. But there are some dates you can focus upon. Weekdays, which are non-holiday, which are not during any kind of event like a Halloween month like October. And especially ones which people will find unappealing. Now, what is a date that someone might find unappealing? Well, let's think about it. Thanksgiving Day, at least for the first half of the day, is unappealing because people want to spend Thanksgiving with their family and not go to an amusement park. So that's a good day to go, uh, though you have to be prepared for it to crowd up later in the day. November 1st, the day I went. Why is November 1st good? November 1st is good because it follows Halloween. Why is that a good day? Well, number one, kids are worn out from Halloween. So parents don't want to take them to Disneyland the day after Halloween. They kind of see it as like too much. Second, people don't like traveling and making their kids miss Halloween. So you're not going to take your kids to Disneyland and then make them miss Halloween. I mean, some people do, but for the most part, people out of the area steer clear of traveling to where they're going to have their kids miss Halloween. So for that reason, the day after Halloween, while not empty, remember there's no day that's empty at Disneyland, is not jammed at Disneyland. So that is a good day to go. And in fact, even the two days after Halloween, November 2nd, is another good day for the same reason. So there's other days like this that you can find that are days that tend to be good to go. But there aren't that many of them. But you know what? You don't have to even think about this. You don't even have to put any thought into this because you can just look at the calendar of prices and it tells you right there anything you see selling for 104 you go okay that's a good day anything you see selling for anywhere near 179 you should stay away from if you take one piece of advice away from this whole segment do not go on a date that says 179 do not go on a date that is close to 179 just don't you will hate it it'll be miserable you won't be able to do very much. The lines will be just awful. It'll be hard to walk through the walkways because it'll be jammed with people. It'll be hard to get food. Everything will be a nightmare. So don't go if you see the price is 179 or near 179 for a single day ticket. But hold on. That is not all the money you're going to pay for a ticket because there are two possible add-ons you can do, of which I did both. One of them is a park hopper that allows you to go to both Disneyland and California Adventure. Now, if you're going to spend two or more days there, you don't necessarily need that, but I was only going one, so I wanted both. 
And then there's the $20 Genie Plus add-on. And you should definitely do that. If you're not going to do it, just don't go. You may hate having to pay it. You may think it sucks. You may think it's a crappy surcharge, and I will agree. But if you don't get it, it is going to be terrible. So you need to get it. You're basically forced to get it. Genie Plus is the new version of FastPass at Disneyland, and it allows you to get in these priority lines. There's no more FastPass. There's now only Genie Plus, and it's app-based. And that is now how you get into priority lines. You book a reservation for whatever ride that you want to go on, and it'll give you the earliest time you can make the reservation, and then you make it, and then you have an hour window to show up from that time to an hour later, and then you get in what's called the lightning lane, which tends to have a line of anywhere between like 5 and 20 minutes rather than something much, much longer than that. So you're not going to walk right on on the lightning lane, but you're usually not going to wait more than 20 minutes and sometimes not more than 5. So the lightning lane is a good thing, but the problem is you can't just get lightning lane endlessly because what happens is, number one, you can only book one at a time. So you can't just book lightning lanes for everything right when you get there. And number two, they only allow so many to be booked because that's how they keep the lines short. So once they start selling out of the lightning lane on each ride, they keep moving the time further and further away. And as the day wears on, you're going to notice that you can only book a lightning lane for three or four hours out, which means in the meantime, you have to stand on the regular line, which is known as the standby line. Now, on a day like November 1st, the popular rides tend to be between 45 and 80 minute wait, which is bad, but not horrendous. But on the Jammed days, they can be like three-hour waits, which is awful. And in the middle, it's kind of in the middle of that. So basically, the goal is, number one, to go on a day that is not one of those jammed days, and number two, to get in as many lightning lanes as possible. But how can you do it? As I mentioned, those fill up pretty quickly, and you can only book one at a time. Well, number one, you should show up as early as possible. The park opens at 8 a.m. You should really try to get in there by 8 And if not by 8, something close to 8. Don't say, oh, 8 seems so awful. I don't want to start at 8. It's terrible. Let me just start at 10. If you start at 10, you're going to be missing the two best hours you're going to have at the park because things tend to be much, much emptier for those first two hours because everyone thinks that way. So definitely show up as early as you can, even if you hate getting up early like I do. I don't like getting up at that time either. Believe me, I hate it. But it's worth it here for Disneyland. So get there early. But I'm going to give you a trick to get more lightning lane passes than just about everybody at the park. And it's nothing It's against the rules. You're not going to get thrown out for doing it. It's nothing Disney doesn't know about. It's working within the rules and doing it smart. And this is a trick that you will not find if you look on the web. The way I found out about it was I was told by a listener to this show that he and his friend, who I, I met... Uh, in Lake Tahoe, they gave me some advice because they are Disneyland experts. They don't work there, but they've just been there a bunch of times. They know it real well. And they taught me about this. And I put it to use when I went on November 1st. And I can tell you that the trick I'm going to tell you about right now is something very valuable to know and will give you a big edge on getting more lightning lane passes than just about everybody else in the park. And it's completely within the rules. So what happens with the lightning lane is that if the ride that you have booked breaks down and you cannot show up and uh, get on the lightning lane 
when your reservation comes up because the ride is broken? What do they do? Do they just say tough luck? Well, no, because Disney doesn't want to screw people like this. Because remember, sometimes you're waiting hours to finally get into a lightning lane because that's all that's available. So they don't want you to wait hours, finally get your lightning lane, only to find that the ride is broken down and, oh, well, tough luck, you're screwed. Now you have to go book for hours away again. So in order to prevent guests from getting mad about this, especially because breakdowns are fairly frequent in that usually there's a few breakdowns every day of varying lengths, but it's very rare to be at Disneyland where every ride that's planned to be open doesn't have a problem where it breaks down. So because there's a number of breakdowns, they came up with a contingency in that if you booked a lightning lane and the ride breaks down and they cannot honor the lightning lane when your time comes up, they give you something called a multi-experience pass. Lilu Dallas multi-pass. Multi-pass. Lila, uh, multi-pass. You know this multi-pass. Lilu Dallas, my wife. We're newlyweds. Just met. Yeah, the multi-pass. The multi-pass is what you want. It's called a multi-experience pass. There's no way to buy it. There's no way to even book it. It's something they give you if a ride is broken that you have booked. But how can you look into the future and see which rides are going to break down? You definitely want this to happen because a multi-pass is basically equivalent to a lightning lane reservation, except it can be used on almost any ride in the park, and it can be used any time. So once you have a multi-pass, you don't have to worry about showing up at a certain time, and you don't have to worry about only using it on that ride. You can use this on almost any ride in the park, including ones that don't even have a lightning lane. So you want these. It's a good thing when you have a lightning lane reservation that can't be honored. But how do you make this happen? How can you look into the future and see what's going to break? Well, you kind of can. Because if you scroll down on what they call the tip board, that's where you look at all the different rides and what their wait times are. That's where you pick out what you want to book. If you see something that is, quote, temporarily closed, but they're still taking reservations then book it immediately. You know why? Because they are giving you a reservation for a time that is projected for the ride to be back in service. But what if the ride is not back in service at that time? Well, then you get your multi-pass. So it is much more likely that something that is currently broken down but taking reservations is going to stay broken down than just a random ride breaking. And what happens then if, indeed, the one you book then Indeed does not come back online and you get your multi-pass, then what? Well, then you can book it again at the earliest time they let you book it. And if it does not come back on, well, guess what? You get another multi-pass. And you can do this as much as you want and rack up those multi-passes and then you can use them around the park to get into these lightning lanes at will. Now, there's a few complexities to these, like... These are not good on all the rides. There are certain top-tier rides that tend to be the most busy that are sometimes excluded if the ride that's broken down is not one of the top-tier rides. And this sometimes changes throughout the day. So sometimes a ride that is included in the multi-pass will become excluded as the day wears on. And I ran into that myself. But aside from that happening, these multi-passes are pretty much a license to walk on to any ride's lightning lane at any time. And they work in both the California Adventure 
and Disneyland, they transfer from one to the other automatically, so you don't have to worry about losing them when you cross over into the other park. So these are great to have, and this is totally within the rules, because Disneyland rules simply state that if you book a reservation for a ride that is broken down at the time when the reservation comes up, they give you a multi-pass. And it does not matter if you take a guess that one of these rides is going to be broken down and book it for that reason. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is you have a reservation that they let you make for a ride that is broken down and they cannot provide to you, and they give you a multi-pass. So you want one of these multi-passes. You want several of these multi-passes. It'll make your day much, much better. And you will not find this tip anywhere on the web. The closest I found to it was a site explaining what these multi-passes are and why they're good, but it does not advise you to try to book rides that are currently down at the moment with the assumption that they may be down still when your time comes up to ride them. And you know what? If it's back on, then just, okay, then just show up and take the ride. So that is a piece of advice that you will find is extremely valuable. And that's why you should listen to this show, because I'll be honest, I almost didn't give you guys this piece of advice because this wasn't my trick. This was something that was told to me by a listener, and I don't want to give away other people's information. Even though this is something that's allowed, it's something that not all that many people know. But I asked the guy who told me if this was okay to put out here, and he said yes, so I'm putting it out here. So trust me, if you go to Disneyland and they still have the system whenever you go, you should try to book rides that are temporarily out of service if they're letting you book them. And you'll get these multi-passes and you'll be very happy. That'll really, really make your day much better. You're probably going to ask me, what did I do for food? The reason you're probably going to ask that is Disneyland is notorious for having expensive food. And you know, you guys know how I feel about expensive food where I have no other option. So what happens... When I am somewhere all day, which has expensive food, which wins out? My hunger. You guys know I can eat a whole lot. You've seen me on Live at the Bike and other streams where I've eaten huge plates of food. So you know I have a big appetite. So what wins out? My big appetite or my frugality? Which one is a stronger force? I think you know. Yep, my cheapness wins out. However, remember, I have a kid, and I can't be too cheap with my kid because it's not nice to do. So I'm not going to make my kid go hungry. So anyway, it came around lunchtime, and he wanted to eat. And okay, no problem, so we went to go get lunch. So we went to a fast food type place, and Benjamin's mom, I ordered a... Uh, chicken salad for her at her request and then for myself I ordered a chicken sandwich and for Benjamin I ordered a burger and that's what he wanted so anyway I had two modifications to the food I wanted my chicken sandwich without lettuce and without sauce and Benjamin wanted his burger without sauce and without cheese I had a feeling they were going to mess this up because in the app-based ordering, there is no way to make specifications. 
it's not disallowed to make specifications. You are allowed to have custom orders, but there's just no way to do it on the app. So I placed the order on the app, but before I hit submit, I did ask someone. I actually walked over to the place before ordering, and I asked someone working there, should I order through the app or should I do this through the cash register because I've got some custom changes? And he said, oh, no, 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 you can do it on the app and you can tell me right now the changes you want. And I said, okay, great. So I told him the changes. He noted them down. And I said, okay, so I should come back at 1210 when it says the order will be ready? He says, yeah, come back at 1210 and uh, then they will be able to remake your chicken sandwich and Benjamin's burger to your specifications. (laughs) And I said, wait, well, what? So they're going to actually make it wrong and then I'm going to come back and tell them it's wrong and have them make it in my specifications? He said, yeah, that's the way we do it. Uh, there really isn't a way for me to specify these here, but uh, what we can do is just uh, return the two things you get that are wrong and and then tell them the way you want it made, and they'll do that for you. I said, that's insane. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to have you make wrong food to throw away and, and have me wait additional time while you remake it. That doesn't make any sense. So you're telling me there's no way for you to tell them? He says, well, there, there is a way, but yeah, I just suggest you do it this way. I said, no, I, no I'm not going to have you make wrong food and, and create an additional delay for me and waste food on your end uh, because you're telling me to do it that way. Like, like, can't you just tell them to do it the way I'm asking? He said, well, I can, but okay, fine. You know, we can do it this way if you want. I said, okay, so you're sure? that you're going to tell them before they make it to have mine with no lettuce and no sauce and the burger, which is for my son, to have no cheese and no sauce. Correct? He said, yes. Okay. So I came back at 1210. In fact, I came back at 1208. And I went up to the pickup area and I asked, is my order ready yet? And they said, which one are you? I told them my order number. And they said, oh yeah, well... uh, no, it's not ready because you have not pressed the button to have us start making your order yet. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. I placed, the, I placed the whole order online. They told me to come back at 1210. They said, no, no, no. That's not how it works. When you place an app order, then you have to come back at the time that we tell you to come pick it up. And then you need to click the button that you're here and you're ready for us to make your food. <laughs> I said, how does that make any sense? The whole point of doing an app order where they give you a time to come back should be that your food is ready at that time, not that it's ready for you to come and tell them to start. But that's apparently how it works. I'm like, okay, well, then start. Here I am, start. So they said, okay, we're going to start. And I go, whoa, 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 before you start, now that you haven't started yet, do you see the modifications? And the woman said, yes. I said, can you tell me the modifications? She said, yes. The modifications we have here are the the cheeseburger is with no cheese and no sauce, and the chicken sandwich is with no lettuce and no sauce. I said, okay, great. All right, very good. So I will uh, wait for my food. How long is this going to be? She said, about five minutes. I said, okay. So I stood back, walked up five minutes later. There was my food, and the food had a burger with cheese and sauce on it and a chicken sandwich with lettuce and sauce. (sighs) All that effort, and they still did it wrong. So I said, nope, you got it wrong. And uh, the woman who had just told me that the instructions were right there, 
I said, you just told me that they had these instructions. I said, yeah, they did, and I, I don't know why they did this wrong. I said, well, I put a lot of effort into this. You know, I, I told two different people. I verified with you. I said that I'm afraid it's going to be done wrong and to make sure it's not done wrong, and it was wrong anyway. And she said, I know this shouldn't have happened. I'm sorry. I said, well, yeah, let me speak to a manager, please. So the manager came over because I was annoyed. I put so much effort into avoiding this. Two different people I spoke with about this. And I told them I had a feeling this was going to be done wrong unless they really took care not to do it wrong because they're so used to making these things exactly as it comes in the kitchen. It's rare for them to get these uh, modifications. I was afraid they were just going to blow right by it. So I told them to please tell the kitchen to make sure that they don't blow right by my instructions. And they said they would. And then two different people, it didn't do any good. You know, <laughs> It still came out wrong. They said, okay, well, we'll remake your food. I said, yeah, but I, I'm supposed to be ready now. I'm not supposed to have to wait for this. I put a lot of effort into preventing this. They said, yeah, you're, you're right. So anyway, it was offered to me that they will give me the chicken sandwich and the burger for free. All I had to pay for was the chicken salad, which was not messed up. And the two items which were messed up, they gave me for free. So I said, okay, that's acceptable. So I got away pretty cheap on that meal. Only had to pay for a third of it, basically. When they remade it, they got mine right. But what comes out for Benjamin? A cheeseburger. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, nope, once again, you got it wrong. So they quickly went back and uh, made the burger. By the way, no one was spitting on it because I could see them right there making it. So I didn't have to worry about that. So we ate the food. It was okay. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't good. It was expensive, but not like horrendously expensive. It could have been worse. And uh, throughout the rest of the day, we didn't really get very much food. Uh, Benjamin's mom and I just weren't that hungry until like near the very end. So we decided we would just go eat afterwards outside the park. Benjamin did get hungry. So we got him a popcorn during the day and then uh, got him a corn dog a little bit later on. So he was fine. But I didn't spend much money on food in the park. That was good. I had kind of a weird experience with the hotel and its parking. I stayed in a hotel that was not on site, so it was not run by Disneyland. It was not on the Disneyland property. The reason is because it is super, super expensive to stay on property, and I'm just going to get there and sleep and wake up. So like, how much is it worth to pay a premium to stay in the Disneyland hotels? So I stayed in one of the off-site hotels, and uh, the parking, first of all, I was surprised when I got there that they told me there's a $15 charge for parking overnight because that was not prominent when I booked it. It was probably in the fine print, but I didn't even see it. I I assume it's there somewhere, but I was a little bit surprised, but whatever. I know most of those hotels near Disneyland do charge for parking overnight, so whatever. I said, fine, paid the 15. But then I said, hold on, what about tomorrow's parking? Because, you know, it's quite late here. It's like 11 o'clock at night, but I'm going to need to leave my car here while I'm at Disneyland and I'm not going to be back for it until the late evening. So does my $15 cover that? And they said, no. <laughs> and I said, well, look, it's going to be 24 hours. It's going to be less than 24 hours. I'm going to be here. Nope, doesn't matter. Our cutoff is at 3, and at 3, a new day starts regardless of when you get there. So that's kind of crappy. And the last place I stayed at seven years ago didn't do that. They just let me leave my car there for free. 
So I said, okay, fine. Uh, So how does this work? Is it another $15? Well, not necessarily, I was told, because we have a pretty busy lot. So at 11 a.m., which is checkout time, that's when we make the determination of whether you can stay for another 15 or if it's going to revert to an hourly rate because the lot is too busy. And I said, wait a minute, 11 a.m., just about everybody who goes to Disneyland is already in the park by 11. So you're telling me, well, everybody's in the park, you guys make this determination whether to charge them 15 or whether to charge them some super high hourly rate? And the guy says, yes. <laughs> and he was acting like he didn't understand why that wasn't fair to me. I said, I just want to know what my price is going to be. And keep in mind, to park in Disneyland is $30. So it's not even like uh, you're saving much money. So their maximum at the hourly rate is $50. So you could end up paying $50 to park off-site instead of 30 to park at Disneyland. So definitely I didn't want that. So I'm just trying to understand from him, like, look, I've got to know what my parking rate is going to be. I can't have you decide after I'm already gone. That's not fair. I've, it's got to be a predictable rate. Well, I'm sorry, we don't do that. It's not our policy, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, as I'm arguing this out, the guy then says to me, well, when you're going to pull out, just hit the call button on that parking gate and someone will answer and they'll take care of you. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, they'll take care of you. I go, well, what does take care of me mean? Does it mean they're going to charge me $15? Does it mean they're going to give me a little bit of money off? Like, what does it mean? He said, no, no, no. They'll take care of you. They'll let you out. You know, let me out without paying anything further? He says, yes. I go, well, that's that's weird. That's like contradicting what he just told me. Like, he's telling me that they may charge me $50. Now he's saying, oh, just buzz and we'll let you out for free. So I wasn't sure if I should trust this. But I'm thinking to myself, why would he offer this to me just to not honor it? And then create a hassle for himself. Like, does he really want me going to his manager and bitching about him and making a big deal? Like, well, why would he even offer this if he wasn't really going to do it? So I got his name and I said, okay, so you're going to buzz me out for free when I leave? Aside from this original 15 I'm paying right now? He said, yes. I said, okay. So I was a little bit nervous, but as I was leaving, I buzzed. I said, such and such person said I can leave without paying anything further and he'll buzz me out. And they said, Okay. And the gate opens and I drive out. Very weird. (laughs) It worked out. It was just very weird. You may wonder why didn't I just say, screw it, I'll just park at Disneyland for the 30 bucks. Well, it was a better principle because I stayed close to the park so I could walk there. And I paid a premium to stay close to the park so I could walk there. So I felt like an idiot staying close to the park in a mediocre place and paying a premium to be close to the park just to drive in anyway. If I'm going to drive in anyway, I'm going to stay like five miles off there and save a bunch of money. The whole point of staying close and paying extra money was so I could walk there and back. So if I'm going to drive in and park, then why am I staying close? It doesn't make any sense. So that's why I didn't want to do it. Next time, I may actually stay a few miles away and then just drive in because this is all becoming too big of a pain in the ass. And also, none of these places are really all that close the way you walk in because Disneyland is very funny. Like They have the whole thing walled off. And it's very hard to get in or out other than in the designated entrance. Not even very hard. It's impossible. To get in, you have to do this weird loop through what they call Downtown Disney, which is their kind of like outdoor shopping mall area. And 
you can't walk a direct route from your hotel into Disneyland. You have to walk the wrong direction, essentially, to get into downtown Disney and then go in through downtown Disney over a bridge. So for that reason, there's no such thing as a short walk to Disneyland. So I think next time I'm just going to drive in. Anyway, uh, that was my Disneyland trip. Uh, There are two rides you have to pay to get into the Lightning Lane, and I did pay for those, and they're pretty expensive. Uh, One called Rise of the Resistance in Disneyland, the other one called uh, Radiator Springs in California Adventure. And uh, especially Rise of the Resistance is worth it. That's a really, really interesting ride, and it's very, very modern. It was just opened in late 2019. It's got a uh, Star Wars theme to it. Very cool ride, and... Benjamin described that and Radiator Springs as feeling like you're in a movie, and it kind of does. So I went on pretty much all the major and semi-major rides with only a few exceptions because I got all these lightning lanes and because we stayed from like 8.45 a.m. all the way through about 9-something p.m. So we got on almost all the majors at both parks and semi-majors and even a few small ones. So Ben had a very good time. He can't wait to go back. And if you got any questions about any further tips or whatever, uh, you can go ahead and ask me. I'm not like an expert, but I know a lot more now than I did a week ago. And I thank the listener who gave me the information to make my time there easier, especially with the multipass thing. That made the day much, much better. But if you take one thing away from this whole thing, do not go on a day which is high-priced because it's going to be jammed. You're going to hate it when it's jammed. I can't stress that enough. All right, let's move on here. I bet you know what's coming next. Yep, more Robbie Jade Lou talk. This is now the fourth show I am doing covering this topic. The incident happened more than a month ago. It happened on September 29th. It is now November 3rd. And we still don't have resolution. The question I'm asked all the time by people who know that I am a poker player, who know that I run this show and run the Poker Fraud Alert Forum, I get asked this all the time when I play live, because a lot of these live players, they don't really follow all this drama very closely, they're just kind of aware of it. And there's a home game I play in where they kind of loosely follow poker news, but not really that closely. Everybody wants to know, do I think Robbie cheated? And they're hoping I'm going to give them a clear yes or no answer. And they're kind of disappointed to hear me say, well, I'm leaning towards no, but I'm not sure. And that's still my stance at the moment, in case you're wondering. And I think that's always going to be my stance unless something earth shattering comes out. But I think we're going to be stuck with the information we have for the rest of time. I don't think anything further is going to come out. I wouldn't count on Hustler's investigation revealing anything useful. They're the ones directing it, so it's to their benefit to make themselves come out smelling like roses. I just don't think we're going to learn very much going forward. So you're going to have to go on what you know now and form your opinion from there. But of course, there's a lot of side drama to this whole thing. And if you want to know about the story, you can go back to our three previous shows that I did in October that covered this extensively. I spent a long time, a very, very long time, covering this on the three previous shows, especially the first show in October, where I spent like over seven hours talking about it. So if you want to hear all about the situation and all the different ways to look at it, 
everything like that. Go back and listen. I'm not going to rehash that now. I'm only going to cover the new stuff. If you're not familiar with this story enough to keep up with the stuff I'm going to talk about here, then go back and listen to the shows or go Google the topic and catch up on it before listening or just skip ahead if you're in the archives to the portion of the show that's not talking about this. Because once I'm done with this topic, then I move on to things completely unrelated. Anyway, the latest news, there's basically three items I want to talk about here. The first one has to do with Rip's wife. Now you may say, no, 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 Todd, you covered that last week. You're going senile at the age of 50. And I'll say, no, no, no. I did talk about it last week, but it has changed very much since I talked about it last week. Last week, Rip's wife, and remember Rip is the friend of Robbie Jade Lou who played in the Hustler Casino live stream where all the controversy took place. He knew her, and people weren't aware of that, he, that they were friends, and maybe more than friends, before playing on there. And in fact, he was backing her at least 50% by her own later admission on Chicago Joey's show. And he freaked out when Garrett Adelstein took back the 135 k that Robbie had won from him in that infamous Jack Forehand. So when he found out that 135k got taken from Robbie, both because he cared about Robbie and because at least half of that was his money because he backed her. He freaked out and went after Garrett, not physically, but yelled in his face and was really, really pissed. And Garrett hightailed it out of there. And that's where Rip fit into this whole thing. And shortly after this whole event, Doug Polk did a video about the whole thing and said that he heard from reliable sources that Rip and Robbie were having extramarital affairs with one another. Rip is married and has an infant child, and Robbie is married. In fact, Robbie's husband, whose name is Charles Liu, who's a lawyer, he called into Joey's show, and he denied that Robbie was having an affair with Rip. He said that he is not in an L.A. relationship. And I never heard that term before, but that's referring to an open relationship. He said he's not in that kind of relationship, that if he is, it's without his knowledge and it would be news to him, and that she and Rip are just friends. Now, I will say Charles Lou put this in a funny way to where it wasn't a very hard no. Like most guys, if they're being told that their wife is having an affair – and the person that they're said to be having an affair with is a friend of theirs, a male friend of theirs, if the guy knows it to not be true, the guy will say, nope, they're just friends, absolutely not happening, she's not having an affair. Like, he didn't put it that way. He's like, I am not in an L.A. relationship, and if I am in one, then it would be news to me. Like, it's kind of a weird way to put it. And I, I mentioned that on another show we did. So I was never convinced completely that Robbie and Rip weren't having this affair, especially because Doug Polk was insisting that he knew people in Vegas who were reliable, who had seen Robbie and Rip together prior to this whole controversy, you know, before anyone knew who really they were, but recognized them from seeing them in the past in Vegas. And these people reported to Doug that they remembered these two and that they were sitting together and acting as if they were an item. 
And it wasn't described specifically what they were doing, but I, my guess is that they were touching each other or kissing. Who knows? But, you know, when you see two people at the table, you can kind of get an idea if they're in a relationship or not, even if it's not a exclusive relationship. It's like some kind of dating or sexual relationship. And several people told Doug Polk, according to Doug in his video, that Robbie and Rip were in some kind of dating or sexual relationship from what they had observed. But this was being denied by all parties. Rip denied it, Robbie denied it, and Robbie's husband, Charles, denied it. So I didn't know what to think. I thought maybe that uh, they're just good friends, and uh, maybe they're just a little bit touchy, but there's nothing going on, and maybe this was misconstrued, and maybe there is no affair. But I thought maybe there is one, and either Charles is unaware of it or he's embarrassed to admit it. Now, this is not the most important thing here because this is really their personal lives and it doesn't have all that much of a bearing on whether or not Robbie cheated. But still, it is interesting, number one. And number two, it does make it a little more likely that cheating was happening if Rip and Robbie had a closer relationship than just friendship. Because remember, Rip was backing Robbie and if they were having some kind of romantic relationship, then it would be more likely that they could be in cahoots with something that was uh, dishonest. But again, that doesn't prove it. You know, they could be having a full-on affair. That wouldn't mean that they're cheating in the game. I'm just saying it makes it slightly more likely. But really, the more interesting element to this is it's just uh, more drama. It's just more interesting twists and turns in this whole saga, especially with her husband Charles insisting that the two of them are just friends. Well, if you remember last week... We talked about the big news that had just been found when, of all things, someone in Las Vegas was watching the Las Vegas Raiders, the NFL team in Vegas, playing on TV, on local Las Vegas TV, and who is seen near the front row, sitting very close to one another with one person probably having arm around the other? That would be Robbie and Rip. Well, that wasn't 100% proof there was an affair, but you could see by the way they were sitting and looking at each other and that it kind of looked like Rip probably had his arm around Robbie. They really looked like a couple. It kind of looked like the same way that it was described to Doug, the way they were at the poker table prior to this whole thing happening in late September. So people became pretty convinced that they really were having an affair. And keep in mind that Rip was not at the game with his wife. Robbie was not at the game with her husband, that it was Rip and Robbie there alone with each other and nobody else at this game and sitting very close to one another the way a couple would and Rip gazing into her eyes lovingly. So it really did have the strong appearance like an affair was happening, but it wasn't just the opinion of Twitter that this was the case. As I mentioned on last week's show, Rip's wife joined the fray and she called the whole thing embarrassing and she was making several other statements that made it very clear that she believed an affair was going on and that she was pissed and she responded to several people. I read you the tweets last week. So not only was it the opinion of people on Twitter that they were having this affair, but even Rip's wife believed this as well. 
And that's where we left off. This had just happened when we did our show last week. It was on, on October 24th. Well, since then, we've had a bit of an about face. Remember, Rip's wife's name is Savannah Hale. And she's on Twitter as S-A-V-N Hale, H-A-L-E. S-A-V-N Hale. Savannah Hale is her name. And she's an attractive, youngish woman. I don't know exactly how old she is, but she looks younger than Rip. And she kind of looks like an Instagram model of some sort. And she lists herself as dancer on Instagram, which usually means stripper. But here it really does appear that she's a dancer, not a stripper. But I don't know. I don't exactly know how she supports herself. Maybe she doesn't. And Rip takes care of her since they are married. Uh, They do have an infant daughter together. And there's tons of pictures and videos of this little girl. I scrolled back, and I told you this on our last show, I scrolled back several weeks to see what Savannah Hale, whose identity was previously not known, prior to her tweeting about this Raiders game, nobody knew who Rip's wife was. So now everybody knew. So I decided, okay, let's scroll back and see what uh, she was tweeting prior to this, because maybe... She was already suspicious something was going on, or maybe she had comments about the Jack Forehand that would be interesting. Well, starting from October 9th, there were a lot of tweets which were either implying or directly saying that she felt she was being cheated on. Keep in mind, this was before the Raiders game. This is before that Raiders discovery. So it's not like she was sitting there in marital bliss, believing her husband was faithful, and then that Raiders thing came out and she freaked out. For two weeks prior to that, she was retweeting a bunch of things about being cheated on, about being betrayed, about discovering that what you've been suspecting all along is true, a bunch of stuff along those lines. And you can still see it. Go to S-A-V-N Hale, S-A-V-N Hale, Savannah Hale, and scroll back to October 9th and look at her tweets. They're still up there. So to give her credit, she didn't go delete these tweets. They're still there. One of the most notable ones was something that was uh, just before the whole thing happened, which was saying that uh, uh, cheating equals end of relationship, no discussion. Now, she didn't write this, but she retweeted someone else saying this on October 22nd. Cheating equals end of relationship, no discussion. She also retweeted, never lose yourself again for anyone. Always, always, always trust your gut is what she wrote. She also tweeted out someone saying, retweeted someone saying, trust your gut, it's rarely wrong. She also said herself, listen to your heart and knows all things. So some of these are implying like she thinks she's being cheated on. Uh, some of them are not implying they're just directly saying it, like that one tweet about cheating equals end of relationship, no discussion. Well, apparently there is some discussion because Savannah Hale has changed her mind. This is what she tweeted on October 31st. Keep in mind, a week earlier was when she was going off about everything regarding Rip at the Raiders game. And prior to that, for the prior two weeks, before anyone even knew who she was from poker, she was putting out messages cryptic and not so cryptic about being cheated on. Well, this is what she wrote on October 31st, a week later. FYI, to everyone, I stand behind husband and Robbie as I know they did not cheat. I'm so tired of being harassed. I have got DM messages from Garrett Adelstein and from Doug Polk and others asking me to incriminate them. 
Garrett, you lost fair and square. Give us our money and leave me alone. Now, these are kind of two separate issues. Garrett really should give the money back to Robbie, which at least half does belong to Rip, and at least half of that does belong to Savannah, unless they have some kind of uh, prenuptial agreement. But aside from that, it would be community property. So technically, unless there's something we don't know, a quarter of that money, or perhaps more, belongs to Savannah that Garrett is currently holding. So I don't blame her for telling Garrett to give that money back because some of it is hers. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. But you can have that position and at the same time know that your husband is cheating on you. These are two separate things. But she's also saying she stands behind her husband, stands behind Robbie, and she knows that they did not cheat. She also wrote and then oddly retweeted herself, which I don't quite understand. She says, Involving my family is much deeper than any scandal. My personal life aside, I don't believe they cheated on poker. Okay, well, at least there she's separating it. But her first tweet is stating that she really believes that he was not cheating on her, which is weird because for two weeks beforehand, including before anyone from poker was reading it because no one knew who she was, she was putting out tweet after tweet after tweet that were strongly implying, and in one case actually just outright saying, that she felt she was being cheated on. And we know who the other woman was supposed to be. I doubt it was someone other than Robbie. And this really hit its peak when the Raiders game thing happened, and she actually wrote embarrassing and put at Jacob Rip Chavez, which is his uh, Twitter handle. So it was clear that she's telling him that he's embarrassing her and the family by doing this. And she made it clear in other tweets that she felt she was being cheated on. So what happened in that week? How did Savannah do this about face? And what was going on with these messages that she supposedly got from Garrett and Doug Polk? Well, we got some responses, and those are interesting as well. Now, Garrett hasn't really gone back and forth very much on social media. He's made his statements, but he hasn't really argued back and forth on Twitter about this whole thing ever since it happened over a month ago. But he did respond to Savannah after she tweeted this. She tweeted this at 5.38 p.m., and Garrett responded at 6.14 p.m., so it was less than an hour later. Garrett responded, Savannah, you messaged me first weeks ago. Then this screenshot was sent to me. This is in addition to you earlier liking several posts that were in agreement that I was cheated. I truly empathize with all that you're going through, but I'm not your enemy here. And then he posted a screenshot. Now, I'm not sure who Savannah was talking to in this screenshot, and Garrett doesn't specify, but apparently this is somebody else talking with Savannah who then sent this to Garrett. He also claims that Savannah messaged him first. He doesn't provide screenshots of that. And he insists that she was liking posts of his earlier when, she was, when he was stating that uh, he was cheated. So he's basically saying that she has completely changed her mind on whether he was cheated and that also he's not harassing her, that she contacted him first, which I I think I believe. I don't think he would say that if it was not true. Garrett hasn't told any outright lies really so far. He just jumped to a lot of conclusions and stated them as fact when they may not be. 
and he took back the money from a lost pot that he should not have done. Anyway, this is what the screenshot said. It was from October 24th. And what's interesting is this was uh, just a little bit after the Raiders thing. The Raiders thing was on October 23rd, Sunday, October 23rd. So this is at uh, 2.46 in the morning, October 24th. Savannah Hale was the one uh, talking to whoever this was that sent it to Garrett. So the person who sent it to Garrett said this to Savannah. My honest opinion is try not to look into Twitter too much. I'm not sure if you follow the poker cheating allegation as much, but unfortunately this is all going to be on someone's podcast and stream at some point, referring to the whole thing with uh, the Raiders game. Now, I guess that's true. because <laughs> It was on as this person was writing it on this podcast and others as well, but I definitely talked about it that same night. Savannah responded back to this person and said, yeah, I know about the scandal, too, referring to the cheating scandal. It's much deeper than anyone knows. Hmm. So Savannah was claiming on October 24th that the scandal, the cheating scandal, is much deeper than anyone knows. She didn't go into detail. This person was alarmed enough about the statement that was made by Rip's wife about the cheating scandal that they screenshotted it and sent it to Garrett said, hey, look at this. Rip's wife says that it's much deeper than anyone knows. So what did she mean by that? Did she mean that, yeah, there's cheating and in fact, there's a lot more cheating than you think? Is that what she meant? What does it's much deeper than anyone knows mean? Now, it could mean just that it also has to do with Rip and Robbie having an affair So maybe to her, that's very deep, and to everybody else, it's just kind of a gossip item. But it could mean that she was aware that cheating was happening and that the cheating ring is much deeper than anyone's aware of. So that's a very interesting statement on her part. And it is possible that Rip could have told her about this. Let's say hypothetically, I'm not saying this happened, but let's say hypothetically that Rip and Robbie were cheating here and that, in fact, they were part of a greater cheating ring, that there were others involved here, and that they were just the ones doing it that particular week. And let's say Rip came and told Savannah, hey, we're going to make a bunch of money. We're going to do such and such on the stream, and the whole cards are going to be communicated, or there's going to be signals of when to raise and stuff like that. So we're going to get a lot here. We're going to make a lot of money for our family here. And Savannah got very excited, and then they did, and then this uh, controversy hit, and Savannah kept quiet, but then Savannah started noticing that Rip's partner in this whole thing was his partner in some other ways that she didn't like. So then she was kind of quietly but angrily tweeting about it, kind of into the wind because nobody was reading it, and then the Raiders thing happened and she couldn't keep her mouth shut any further. But then what happened a week later? If that is the story, if that really is what happened, of course, that's just a possibility. I just gave you a scenario which could be the case, but it also could not be the case. I want you to understand this is just me making things up in my head. But what happened a week later where she not only said that that, uh, Rip and Robbie weren't cheating at poker, but that Rip and Robbie were not even cheating on their marriages? What could have changed in that week? Well, Number one, it's possible that Rip just convinced her that this is all in her head. It's possible Rip said, look, 
what did that Raiders game really show? That I'm sitting with my friend, that I'm kind of turning in her direction? Like, that doesn't mean we're having an affair. We're just close friends. We're just uh, talking. We're just facing each other because we're close. You know we're close. You know, does it show us kissing? No. Does it show us having sex? No. Does it show my hand on her breast? No. We're, we're just sitting close to one another. Big deal. And I'm looking at her. Yeah, I'm looking at her because she's my friend and I'm talking to her. So the internet is, is making this into something it's not. I'm not cheating on you. And the internet's trying to do this because they hate us. So don't fall for the Savannah. I wouldn't do this to you. He may have told her this and she may have believed this. Or it's possible that he confessed and said, okay, it's over. I'm not going to mess around with Robbie anymore. I'm really sorry. I don't know what got into me. I don't know why I did this, but uh, I really love you, Savannah, and I want to stay together, and I want to raise our daughter together. I'm never going to do this again. So that's it. Never going to mess around with Robbie ever again. She kind of caught me in a moment of weakness, and uh, you know, I just kind of did it because she was there, and we were friends, and you know, it just kind of happened, but I, I promise it's never going to happen again. Maybe Savannah was okay with that, and then Rip said, hey, you know, you got to come out and clear this up, though. You got to come out and make sure everybody understands that you don't think that I'm a cheater, either relationship wise or poker wise, and just basically contradict everything you said before. And then she did. It's also possible that he hit her with the reality that at least one quarter of that money is hers. That being a married couple, that these are this is their assets that they're dealing with here and if she is doing anything to validate Garrett's narrative that Rip is dishonest and that Robbie's dishonest it's going to make it a lot harder to convince the poker community to pressure Garrett to return it and it will also have other negative implications in the future for Rip and his ability to make money so he may have convinced her, hey, whether we stay together or not, it's in your financial interest to turn this around on Twitter. So it could be any of these things. It could even be something else that I'm overlooking. Do I think that she really believed she was not being cheated on? No, I think maybe she could have been semi-talked into it, but you don't change your mind that fast. She sat there for weeks, even before anyone knew who she was, even before anyone was really reading or responding to her tweets. Nobody knew she was Rip's wife. She's tweeting to herself, basically, for two weeks and retweeting others about being cheated on. She's sitting there with the infant daughter and is just beside herself. She's saying, I can't believe this has happened. I can't believe I just had a kid and... My husband is out there screwing around with this girl that's supposed to only be his good friend. He's uh, gallivanting around town in L.A. and Vegas and screwing around with her while I'm taking care of the baby. What a freaking asshole. You You could tell she's like furious about this to where she is venting through Twitter, but at least nobody is seeing it because nobody really knows who she is. But then once this Raiders thing happened, she couldn't control herself and exposed who she was. And now the whole poker world seeing it. So you, you don't just in a week say, oh, you know what? This was stupid. I don't know why I thought that. Like She was very convinced for two weeks that she was being cheated on. And a week later, you don't just come to the opposite conclusion. It's not like he had some kind of evidence that he could show her to disprove it. It's not like that it was based upon 
one claim that someone saw him kissing Robbie and then he was able to prove later that that person was lying and making it up. I mean, then someone could make a completely different determination and say, okay, what I thought before was wrong because I was misled by someone. But here this is something she was suspecting for weeks, strongly suspecting. I just don't believe that she thinks that this uh, cheating didn't happen. I think she really believes that the cheating was happening and that uh, for whatever reason she's saying on Twitter, on public Twitter, that it's not, maybe just to give Rip more credibility in this whole situation with Garrett. I think it's also possible that she was getting too many messages from people who wanted her to be the whistleblower, and she decided she didn't like this role. Maybe even she was getting pressure from Rip to not be in this role, and maybe she just didn't like it. Maybe she didn't realize that by venting about what Rip was doing with Robbie, that now she's got all these people messaging her, go, hey, come on, bring it out. Tell everyone about Rip's cheating, blah, 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 blah. Like she, she probably didn't want to get all that, so this may be her way to kind of get out of that role. In response to what Garrett posted, the guy saying, the guy or girl, whoever it was that was messaging with Savannah on the 24th, to where Savannah said, it's much deeper than anyone knows, she said back, this message was from some random guy, and I was implying that this was deeper as it involved my family. This is not our messages, Garrett. Well, Garrett didn't say this was his message with her. But I don't really believe that, that when she says it's much deeper than anyone knows, and that she meant that it was just deeper because it involved her and her marriage. I, I don't believe that, because if someone says, hey, do you know about the cheating scandal involving your husband, and if it really is just that he's cheating in poker and cheating on her, she'd say something along those lines. She'd say something like, yeah, uh, I, I'm aware of the scandal, but right now I'm more focused upon the possible infidelity involving me or right now I'm more focused upon its impact on our family with what's going on with uh, him and Robbie something like that to say it's much deeper than anyone knows means like that this is a much deeper scandal than people realize especially because everyone did know about what was going on with him and Robbie because they saw it on TV this was after it was on TV so what do you mean it's much deeper than anyone knows if you just meant by the infidelity element, then everyone knows because they saw it on Channel 8 Las Vegas as it was distributed by that poker player who caught it on there. So what do you mean it's deeper than anyone knows? If it's about the impact on your family, everyone knows. And you know that because you've been following it closely, Savannah. So I think that's just an excuse. Now, does that mean that this is proof that there is a cheating ring? No, because she could have just been saying this out of anger. There is the possibility that she has no knowledge at all of any cheating that took place on the stream. It's very possible that Rip and Robbie were not cheating on the stream and that she was just saying it's much deeper than anyone knows to screw over Rip because she was furious at him for cheating on her with Robbie. So it could be that this was a spiteful message and that in reality she doesn't have any information about any kind of cheating that's happening there. What about Doug Polk? Where did this go with Doug Polk? Well, of course, Doug had to respond. You know that you're not going to have a message like this with her telling Doug to leave her alone and have Doug not respond. That's not Doug's style. Doug will always respond when a high-profile person, or at least temporarily high-profile person, makes some kind of allegation against him. So this was 
the response from Doug. You followed me. You tweeted about the incident. I DM'd you and asked for your take, and I said I found the current explanation from Robbie unplausible. You said you wanted privacy. I said I'm sorry and did not respond again. I did not harass you or ask you to incriminate anyone. So, okay, that's pretty solid from Doug. It kind of sounds like he was pretty innocent here, that he was uh, asking if she has anything further to say about this, and she said, look, I want to keep this private. I don't want to really talk to you. And Doug's like, okay, sorry, and didn't message her again. Okay, that sounds fine to me. But then Rip got involved. Rip responded to Doug. And keep in mind, Rip couldn't love Doug very much because Doug has been pushing the narrative for quite some time that Rip and Robbie are having an affair. So Rip said back to Doug, doesn't matter, you're a grown man and you should never be in my wife's DMs. Leave her alone and don't act like you're her friend. All you were trying to do is expose her vulnerability. Not cool. So Doug had to come back with something snarky and he said back, good point. Next time I want to get her opinion, I'll take her out to a football game. (laughs) Oh, my. Well, Rip didn't get the sarcasm and said back, my wife wouldn't be caught dead with you. Leave my family alone. So Doug clarified, I was making a joke and I was already leaving her alone. So then Rip says back, you think it's funny to joke with people's lives and family? Have some respect and again, leave us alone. God bless. So Doug definitely, probably kind of taking a victory lap here in a way that his initial claim, which many doubted about the affair, was semi-verified by that uh, Lakers game there. Rip also responded to a news report tweet by High Stakes DB. They tweeted, and this was uh, less than a day ago. This was 14 hours ago. Hustler Casino Live drama has taken a new twist. The cheating allegations moving from the poker table to the personal lives of Robbie Jade Lou and Hustler Casino Live reg Jacob Rip Chavez. He's not really a regular on there, so that's parts a little bit wrong, with accusations of an extramarital affair refuted by Chavez's wife, Savannah Hale. So Rip responded, be respectful. There's no cheating in any way, shape, or form. My wife is a sweet person, so please don't speak out disrespectful. Be kind, be positive. God bless. Then regarding the football game, Melissa Burr said, all I saw was Rip's wife post about how embarrassed she was. My heart breaks for her. I remember getting texts from friends thinking they were helping, but every single ping was a reminder of how shitty the whole thing was. And then Rip responded, we own seats there and take friends all the time. Robbie and I are friends, he puts in all caps, and have business dealings. She popped in the fourth quarter and was there for maybe one hour. Before I could tell my wife, social media blew it up. Kindly leave us alone. Be positive and God bless. He loves to tell people God bless. Do you think Rip really wants uh, God to bless Doug and Melissa Burr and anybody else who's critical of him? I don't think so. I don't think that he really wants God to bless them. But that seems to be his line. Anyway, his story here was that these are seats that he has. He said he owns seats. I think he means he has season tickets with those two particular seats and that Robbie showed up in the fourth quarter and joined him in the empty seat and was there for only about an hour. Let me tell you the problem with that statement of his. 
Now, it is possible she showed up in the fourth quarter and was only there for an hour. But here's where there's an issue. How often do you guys go to a game alone? I mean, you probably have before, but most of the time you go to a game, whether it's a football game, a basketball game, a baseball game, you tend to want to go with someone. Maybe it's a significant other, maybe it's a buddy, maybe it's a relative, but you like to go with someone, right? Now, what if you already have two seats? Forget about buying two seats. Like, you know, sometimes, let's say if you don't own any season tickets and you want to go to a game and there's nobody else you can really find that wants to go with you and you go, you know what, screw it, I want to go, so I'll buy a single ticket myself and go to the game anyway. You know, I've done that occasionally. But here he actually has season tickets. And there aren't that many home games because the NFL doesn't have that many games. There's only been a few games so far when uh, this took place. So he's going to this Raiders game, the Las Vegas Raiders game, where he has season tickets. And he's got two seats. And what does he do with the empty seat? He just leaves it empty. He doesn't take anybody. He just goes there and sits next to an empty seat for three quarters, expecting no one to show up. And then in the fourth quarter, lo and behold, who shows up but Robbie? So she comes and sits down. And right then, right then in the fourth quarter, right when she shows up, the camera happened to catch her sitting next to him. And it was just before he could message his wife, hey, I just wanted to let you know, Robbie showed up and she's at the game with me. (laughs) All right, a few problems here. Uh, First of all, how did Robbie know that the seat was empty. In fact, how did she even get into the stadium? You can't just stroll in and say, hey, yeah, my buddy Rip, uh, he's uh, he's got these season seats there. I'm going to go in and uh, sit next to him. So can you let me in, please? Like, no, she has to have a ticket to get into the stadium. So Rip would have had to transfer her that ticket for that game for her to get in and sit in that seat. So it means he was expecting her the whole way. So not only didn't he invite anybody else in her place, but he transferred that ticket to her. So by transferring the ticket to her, at the same time that he would have done that, he would have messaged his wife, if that was the plan, and say, hey, I invited Robbie to come here. She's going to be here shortly. But I don't believe that she just showed up, that Robbie just showed up, and oh my God, Robbie, I didn't know you were going to show up here. Wow, pretty cool. Okay, hi, Robbie. Uh, come sit next to me. And then, oh no, I forgot to message my wife. Oh no, I was on camera and now social media is talking about it. Oh, what bad luck. I don't believe any of this. It doesn't make any sense. Is it possible that Robbie came in the fourth quarter or sometime shortly before the fourth quarter? Yeah. Maybe what happened was that they planned to go to the game together and then Robbie either took too long to get ready or she had something else going on. Who knows? And she told Rip, hey, I'm not going to be able to show up with you. I'll have to come in sometime during the game. So just message me the ticket, you know, transfer the ticket to me, and then I will uh, show up when I can during the game. And she showed up pretty late. That may have happened, but who cares? It doesn't matter if Robbie came in the first quarter, the second, the third, or the fourth. The bottom line is this seat was clearly held for her and transferred to her by Rip. That's how she got into the stadium. And that's how she showed up in that seat. Doesn't matter when. And I don't believe that he was moments away from telling his wife and then, oh, they got on camera. I mean, it's just such an unbelievable story. He'd have been better off of just saying, hey, we're friends. So she happens to be female. Do you do you go to football games with your buddy? Yes. Okay. Well, does that mean you're having sex with your buddy? No. Okay. Well, that 
Same thing here. Just because I go to football games with her does not mean I'm having sex with her. Just like you don't have sex with your male friends that you go with to football games or baseball games or whatever. Like, that would be a better answer than, oh, wow, she just showed up. Oh, my God, Robbie was here. Oh, I couldn't tell my wife. Like, that, that just makes the whole thing sound like a bigger lie. So what do I believe at this point? And again, I'm, I'm stating my belief. I'm not stating fact because the only one who knows the fact for sure would be Rip and or Robbie. I guess they both have to know if they're having an affair or not, but I guess they're the only two who know for sure. But from everything I'm observing here, it does look like something's going on. And it looks like they're trying to reverse engineer this into a story to where the whole thing's innocent. And why is Savannah now going along? Well, I already told you it may be for money. It may be because uh, Rip Sweet talked her. Maybe because she forgave him. Maybe because she's tired of becoming the face of a possible whistleblower. It could be any of these things or a combination of them. But I do think that Savannah probably believes she was being cheated on and still probably believes it. And I do think that there's more than just a friendship between Rip and Robbie. Does this necessarily mean that they were cheating? No. Is the statement by Savannah regarding this being deeper than anyone knows, could could that mean that there's a cheating ring that people don't realize exists yet? Yes, it could mean that. Could this mean something else? I guess. Could this just be something she was saying because she was pissed at her husband for cheating on her? Yes. So it doesn't tell us that much, but it's interesting. It's interesting. Here's something else interesting related to Rip and Robbie. This is just a weird coincidence. I mean, I was shocked when I saw this. This was actually uh, brought to my attention by a radio listener. <laughs> I couldn't believe when I saw this. On that same day, October 24th, the day following the Raiders game, Monday, October 24th, Henry K. Lee, who is a reporter for Bay Area TV station KTVU, tweeted out the following. Photos of convertible Mercedes unearthed from Atherton Estate. A car reported stolen to Palo Alto police in 1992 has the vanity place Lou J4. What? What? A car reported stolen to Palo Alto police in 1992 has vanity plate Lou J4. How is that possible? It was registered to the late Johnny Boktoon Lou, ex-homeowner who has previous arrests for murder and insurance fraud. Wow. This has nothing to do with Robbie J. Lou. This was a car that has been buried in Atherton, California, which is in the Bay Area near Palo Alto, near Stanford. And it was just unearthed, a 30-year-old car with a license plate. And I see a picture of it that says Lou, L-E-W, J-4. Lou space J-4. I kid you not. This was unearthed on October 24th, 2022. And this guy was not tweeting it out because he knew about the Robbie J. Lou story. This was part of the coverage of a completely different story 
about a guy named Johnny Baktun Lu, L-E-W, who was previously arrested for murder and insurance fraud and is now dead, but that Atherton, uh, I guess, yeah, Atherton police found this car that had been buried for 30 years. It was reported stolen 30 years ago, and they just found it. And it had the license plate Lou J4. I don't know what the J4 even supposed to mean. I understand the Lou part because the guy's name was Johnny Boktoon Lou. But <laughs> what, what's the J4? I, I've been trying to figure this out. What would the J4 be? Is this like a message from a time traveler? That's so weird. Charles Lou, yes, that Charles Lou actually responded and said, can't make this up. <laughs> Some people responded to my retweet of this by saying that this is proof that we are all living in a sim. And someone else felt that this was proof that time travel exists. Isn't that weird? Lou J4 of all license plates. And it's not just that this license plate was found from 30 years ago. It's that it was found on October 24th, the day after that Raiders game thing. It wasn't found like 10 years ago. I mean, this was found as this is all going on. Lou J4. L-E-W space J4. And the J4 does not make much sense. Maybe the J could be for Johnny. But what would the, what would the 4 be? It's not like it was Lou J-B. It was Lou J4. <laughs> very, very strange. If you have any idea what Lou J4 might mean, aside from... Robbie Jade Lou playing Jack 4 30 years later, you let me know. But that's a 1992 plate. Well, we also have some news regarding Brian Sagbixall. Remember, he was the Hustler Casino Live employee who'd been there since the beginning, who had access to the whole cards, had access to everything. And Hustler Casino Live revealed that he was caught on camera that same night stealing three 5K chips from Robbie Stack and he supposedly confessed to it to them and they fired him and at the time they claimed that Robbie didn't want to press charges on him which was very weird and we've been over that whole thing so at first she wouldn't press charges then she shared this very weird DM she supposedly received from him which seemed like she or her husband may have written it or if they didn't, then they have pretty similar writing styles. The whole thing was very weird and suspicious, though it is possible that it was written with his permission, even if he didn't write it. It is possible that they wrote it together or something. I don't know. Maybe he wrote it and it's just a coincidence. But one thing that's for just about certain is that he did steal 15K off of Robbie J. Lou's stack, and it was caught on camera that night. Why he was dumb enough to do this after this big controversial hand took place and while the cameras were rolling, I don't know, but uh, apparently that happened. So Brian Sagbixall, who made a tweet before he was caught having done this, he made a tweet shortly after the scandal broke and was defending all of the staff there saying this would never happen. And we covered this on a previous show. Uh, after he was uh, caught with this, he supposedly showed up on uh, 2 Plus 2 and briefly posted there before leaving, but it may or may not have really been him. I think it was him, but I'm not sure. And then an LA Times reporter who's been following this whole thing and writing about it in the Times visited him and 
was there when he got home with his girlfriend. I guess he was living with his girlfriend and her parents. And he got very agitated. Not only wouldn't he comment on it, but he told this reporter, who's female, that she better leave now or he's going to follow her, which is a weird threat. <laughs> leave now or I'm going to follow you. What? And then what? But she left. But obviously he was very agitated and did not like the fact that she was there to ask him questions. And then Robbie was saying that she was going to press charges on him. She claimed that she got more information that makes it to where she's changed her mind. She didn't really reveal what the information was, but that something had convinced her to press charges, more information she learned. So supposedly she did press charges, but there was no evidence that she had. Well, it looks like she actually did because the LA Times reported that an arrest warrant has been issued for Brian Sagbixall by the Gardena police, which is where Hustler is located, but he has not been arrested yet because they can't find him. Apparently, Brian has bounced from his girlfriend's parents' house and is now in an unknown location, and the police cannot find him. Now, keep in mind, finding him is not top priority because this is not a big-time case. It's not like he's accused of murder or child molestation or high-level drug dealing. He's accused of stealing 15K of chips off of someone's stack in a poker room. So while the amount of money is not low, it's $15,000, this is still not a major, major crime to where the police are going to spend all their resources turning over the L.A. area to try to locate him. But at the same time, I will tell you that police are often surprisingly inept at locating people who have disappeared. I'll give you an example, not related to poker. There was a story in L.A. about a guy who was setting up dates with women for the purpose of eating and drinking a lot of expensive stuff and then skipping out, like sneak, go, saying he's going to the bathroom and then sneaking out the back door, and then the woman is left with the entire bill. So the whole purpose of the date was just to use these women for free food and then skip out so the woman is stuck paying. And he did this over and over and over. He was known as the Dine and Dasher. And eventually the police started to look into this. And eventually it was identified who he was. It wasn't that hard because he was meeting them off of a dating site. So all they had to do was find out through the dating site who whose account it was. They had his picture too. So they found out pretty quickly what this guy's name was. Well, the problem was, I guess he didn't have a permanent address. It was kind of bouncing around between places. However, the police were surprisingly bad at finding him. They were so bad that a reporter for a newspaper was able to find him quite easily to do an interview with him. But the police still couldn't find him. It seemed like everybody could find this guy except the police. And uh, laughably, <laughs> you want to hear how incompetent the police were there. They thought, okay, maybe we can trap him. Maybe what we can do is we can set up a woman on a dating site for him to take out and do this to, and then we'll arrest him. Not that bad of an idea, except these geniuses, instead of setting up a woman who was similar to the other women he was using, because let's remember this guy's motivation. Was it to have sex? No. Was it to have a girlfriend? No. Was it to impress his friends that he's dating hot chicks? No. 
It was to get free food from unsuspecting women. So does it matter what these women look like? No. In fact, the more desperate these women would be, the more likely it would be that this would succeed. So he basically was looking to ensnare any woman who was willing to meet him and go to an expensive restaurant, and then he'd eat a ton of expensive food and drink a lot of wine and then bounce. So he didn't care what they looked like, and he was actually targeting women who were in their 40s and not very attractive. So he was targeting like dowdy 40s women in the Pasadena, California area. So you'd think that if they were going to set up a woman for him to uh, hopefully do this to, because he didn't know the police were looking for him, uh, you, you would think that this thing would be using a woman with that type of profile. But no, the genius detective there decided to find the most attractive woman in the precinct to go undercover, and they set up an account for her. (laughs) So not only did this dude not message her, but she got inundated with like hundreds of messages really quickly, including guys sending dick pics, and then of all things, this cop was actually a lesbian, so like the dick pics she was getting were disturbing her, and she couldn't stand looking at them, and uh, she was shocked by the whole thing. Because <laughs> this woman had never dated men before and had never been on dating sites where men would be messaging her. She was always on as a lesbian, so like she never got dick pics before, so this whole thing was shocking to her, whereas straight women are, are used to this. I'm not saying they like it. You know, Just about no women like it when guys send like random dick pics, but at least they're aware it happens, they're kind of used to it. This woman was like shocked because this never happened before because she was a lesbian. So the whole thing was a disaster. So I'm thinking, how stupid are they? Why would they set up an attractive young woman for this when this guy was targeting not very attractive middle-aged women in the Pasadena area? Like, how stupid can you be? When you're trying to trap the guy, why not set up the exact type of women on that site that uh, you think he would message, that, that fit the profile of the others? So that shows you how incompetent the police can be. They ended up arresting the guy, by the way, through sheer luck that the cop happened to be near Staples Center in L.A. where the Lakers play. And this guy was selling like unauthorized Lakers, like bootleg merchandise. And he passed by and saw them. He's like, wait a minute. That's the guy I've been looking for. And he arrested him. That's how they got him, which is by sheer luck, by passing the dude selling Lakers gear that wasn't authorized. But had it not been for that, they probably still wouldn't have found him. And then they screwed up charging him. They overcharged him for a lot of stuff that was never going to stick. And anyway, the guy got off almost scot-free. So screw up all around. A very uh, disastrous story regarding uh, how law enforcement handled it. And unfortunately, that is the case, especially involving small police departments. Now, this was actually the – I think this is the LAPD who screwed this one up. But usually it's small departments that just handle cases very badly. I'm not saying all small departments are bad and not all small department detectives are incompetent, but if you're going to have incompetent detectives, it's more likely they're part of a small department than a large one. And some of that also has to do with experience and lack thereof. Anyway, back to this Gardena thing. I I don't know how competent the Gardena police are, and it is true that Gardena does have a fair amount of crime, so there are priorities over this one, and I understand that. But it also wouldn't surprise me if they're just not good at finding people like this. So who knows? All I can say is that right now it's being reported in the Times that uh, they have not found Brian Sagbixall, but there is a warrant out for his arrest. But who knows where he went? He could have left the state. 
and they're not going to extradite him for this. So let's say Brian went to Nevada or Arizona or any other state. Even if he's pulled over there, they're not going to extradite him to California over a $15,000 theft. They're just not. It's not major enough of a crime. So he may not even be in the state anymore. This whole thing was uh, very strange that they didn't report this to the police in the first place. I never understood why Nick Vertucci was claiming that Robbie has to make the complaint and press charges when this occurred in the Hustler Casino. I would think that someone stealing from someone else in the Hustler Casino would be a report the Hustler could make and wouldn't have to count on Robbie doing it. That was kind of weird to me. And then Robbie not wanting to do it at first, and that weird message between them, and then her changing her mind and doing it. Well, all that time, Brian was basically getting warnings that this was coming, because then she stated, okay, I am going to press charges, and Brian's probably like, okay, well, I'm not sticking around here anymore. <laughs> he bounced. Oh, my goodness. I mean, if you're going to press charges when you said you weren't before, the smart thing to do is not to announce it until it's been done so the guy can't run. Like, how stupid was that? I know that was Robbie's fault, but the whole thing's so weird. Now, you might say, well, this is proof now that he was not in on any cheating with Robbie or otherwise she wouldn't press charges on him. But not necessarily. Let me give you a scenario. Let's say Robbie goes to him. And I'm just saying, let's say Robbie and Brian were part of some kind of cheating uh, ring or scheme. And Robbie goes to him and says, hey, Brian, you know, we've got a problem here. As long as I don't press charges on you, it's going to look really, really bad and really, really suspicious. So I'm going to have to do it. But the good news is this is not going to be treated as a huge deal because it's just a theft. So just get out of town. Just leave. Go to another state. Here's some money. Get out of here. Make yourself scarce. And so this way I can get the cred for pressing charges on you. And you can get out of here. So I'm giving you a warning. I'm about to press charges, so you better leave. Here's the money. Goodbye. I'm not saying that happened, but I'm saying that would be a scenario where she would press charges, yet they could still be in cahoots. I will admit that it is more likely than not that since she did press charges that they probably aren't in cahoots. And I'm still on the side, despite everything, that this wasn't a matter of cheating, though I do believe that Brian, at the very minimum, wanted to do this form of cheating. Because why wouldn't he? If he's willing to steal $15,000 and he's known to have a gambling problem, if you're willing to steal, you're willing to cheat. So given that the cheating would be so much more lucrative than the stealing and so much easier to do if you have access to whole cards, of course you would do it. If you're willing to steal, then you're willing to cheat. I've never known of a thief who says, you know what, I'm willing to steal money from people, but oh, cheating in poker, that is where I draw the line. No thief would ever say that. Anyone willing to be a thief will cheat in poker if the opportunity presents itself. It is common sense. Now, whether he actually did it, we don't know. Maybe he couldn't find someone to do it. Maybe there wasn't someone he felt comfortable enough to ask to do it. Maybe... He was in the stages of hatching a plan, and it hadn't been executed yet. And maybe there was cheating, but the cheater was not Robbie or Rip. Maybe Robbie and Rip were playing honestly, and others were cheating. Maybe not even on that stream. Maybe it's been going on a while, and it has nothing to do with Robbie and Rip. There's a lot of possibilities, which is why this story is very fascinating. I've even had it suggested to me, and I've seen it on social media, what if Garrett was the one cheating, 
and Robbie was not cheating. And maybe that's why Garrett was so certain that him coming over the top on Robbie's bluff was going to get her to fold, even though she presently had the best hand with Jack High. Maybe that's why he made such an aggressive move. So someone said, what if Garrett was the one cheating? And I said, you know what? I'm not accusing Garrett of doing it. I'm not saying Garrett's a cheater, but, you know, that's an angle that has to be looked at as well. Every angle has to be looked at here because we have an employee that was reported by Hustler Casino Live itself to have stolen from someone's stack, from Robbie's stack, in fact. So if he's willing to steal, he is willing to cheat, and he had access to whole cards, so there you go. All right, finally, before I uh, move on from this entire topic, at least for the week, I want to tell you about Patrick Curran, that he has finally spoken out. Patrick Curran used to listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and in fact, he might still listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I know this because he told me. I wasn't even aware of it until... uh, I don't know, a few months ago, but before this whole controversy happened, well before it. But he told me at some point that he really likes this show, he's been a listener for a long time, and that he is very supportive of everything I do. It's basically what he told me, and I, I appreciate it. It was nice of him. I didn't really know the guy, but it was nice to get that uh, message from him. And in fact, before all this happened, I was considering asking Hustler Casino Live if they would have me on for one show. I wasn't going to go on a, one of the high stakes ones, but one of the lowest ones they spread. Everything's fairly high or plays fairly big, but I was going to get like the lowest of all of them and try to get on. And I was going to try to do it through either Patrick, Ryan, Feldman, or both, because both of them had a good relationship with me. Patrick listened to the show, and and Ryan has been on the show. But I'm not doing that anymore, obviously. But that that was kind of my plan at one point. Well, Patrick, turns out he left the show, and I didn't even know. He left sometime before this whole controversy. He had been very quiet about the whole thing. The most he had said about it was... Follow the White Rabbit, which was an Alice in Wonderland reference, and it wasn't clear what he meant. Some people took that to mean that he knew cheating was going on and people were on the right path. But maybe not, because Patrick is now taking a pretty vocal position that there was actually no cheating. And he decided to do this on October 27th in response to Garrett Adelstein posting the L.A. Times story about Robbie and uh, with Brian Sagbick saw how the police were uh, were looking for him. So Patrick wrote on October 27th, and he, you can find him on Twitter as Patrick What Up. That's P A T R I C K What Up underscore Patrick What Up underscore. His name is Patrick Curran. He wrote this: Hey Garrett. Your entire theory is bunk, he writes in all caps. I know with 100% certainty that Brian did not participate in any cheating in the poker game. I know Brian better than anyone involved in this whole thing. He didn't relay whole card information to Robbie. Snap out of it, dude. Well, then uh, Dolly Man, whose name is Aaron O'Rourke, and we're going to talk about him shortly unrelated to all this. He said back to Patrick, 
you say this as if you have any clue of what he was or is capable of. Obviously, you didn't, or you would know he was capable of stealing 15K in one of the worst ways possible. Your opinion means less than nothing. So Taliban basically saying, what do you mean? Why are you defending Brian that he wouldn't do this when we know he stole 15K? Good point by Dallyman. So Patrick responded back, and to think I thought you were cool on the Pocket Fives forum in 2006. <laughs> so apparently uh, Patrick used to read Pocket Fives back in 06 and looked up to Dallyman and was mad that he responded this way. Well, Dallyman said back, you're probably thinking of 2 plus 2. I'd be amazed if I made five posts on Pocket 5. But yeah, I was cool. Less so now. I'm old and sick of BS. So then Patrick said back, LOL, okay, yes, it must have been 2 plus 2. I'm now going to make it my mission to get you to value my opinion at nothing, which would be an improvement from less than nothing. It's kind of a weird statement. Robbie then was uh, sniping at Garrett and making a challenge to him. She said that Andrea Chang of the LA Times has been given full access to log into my AT&T account for hundreds of pages of call and text logs from both of my two numbers. Until then, I can reach out to my physician to get my full CBC, which is complete uh, blood count, to analyze what percent liar my white blood cell count says I am. Interested, Garrett? That's kind of weird. Uh, I, I don't quite understand the whole thing about the physician and the white blood cell count, but uh, she's claiming that Andrea Chang of the LA Times, the one who's been covering all this, has been given full access to log in to her AT&T account. So basically, that does away with the possibility that she could give a doctored bill or doctor the the phone itself to verify that she wasn't communicating with Brian. But here's the problem. This isn't uh, 1999 where the only way to communicate in this way is through the phone or through text messages. There are a lot of different ways you can get communication that will never show up in any phone records. There are various texting and messaging apps. There are burner phones. There are burner phone numbers that you can get through apps that you can install on your phone. And all you have to do is delete these things and there will be no trace of them being there. Now, yes, if someone who is an expert at this has given full access to your phone and can do a forensic evaluation of your phone and the content on there and see if there's anything they can undelete. And they may be able to recover this stuff, but that's not what she's offering to do. She's just saying, hey, I will give Andrea Chang access to my AT&T records to see if I have been calling or texting with Brian Sagbixall. But okay, all that shows that she's not calling or texting with Brian Sagbixall. That doesn't mean she wasn't communicating with him. And it's very possible that... They purposely were not communicating via phone or text if they were doing something illegal. So that really doesn't mean anything, given how many different ways there are to communicate. And you could say back, okay, well, what are you expecting from her then? You're you're basically asking her to disprove something, and she can't because there are so many ways around it. And yes, that's the problem. That's why I can't come to a conclusion here, because... 
it is very hard for her to disprove the allegation that she was cheating. But at the same time, the other side has not presented any convincing evidence that she was cheating. But there are enough weird things here and enough inconsistent things she's said and done to where there's a lot of reason to be suspicious. But that's about it, is to be suspicious. And at the moment, I still lean with the belief that she did not cheat. Pocket Zeros, I don't know who he is, but Pocket Zeros, exactly as it sounds, except with no ES, it's Pocket Z-E-R-O-S on Twitter. He replied pretty much what I just said here. Cell phone records don't reveal much in the age of messaging apps and social media. Nobody ever calls or texts anymore. I thought you were going to hand over your phone. And she said back, no one would take my physical phone. What's next? One of my kidneys? What does she mean nobody would take her physical phone? Who has she offered it to? Hey, Robbie, you want to give me your physical phone? I'll take it. I'll take a crack at analyzing what's on there. Now, maybe you got someone to help you to really wipe it, to really wipe out what was there before. That's possible, too. But don't say nobody would take your physical phone just because you offered it to a few people who didn't want to take it. So that's little bit suspect. Also, even her physical phone isn't proof. What if this is all being done via burner phones? So again, this is all kind of meaningless. The only way this would mean something would be if this centered around her physical phone. So if someone said, I know how Robbie cheated, it was with her cell phone, her main cell phone. So can she please give this up to be inspected? That would be at least something. But nobody even knows if cheating took place. And if it did, nobody knows how it was done or how any signals were conveyed. So it does not mean that it had to do with her phone. Someone named Arid, E-R-I-D, and he's Arid TV, E-R-I-D TV on Twitter, wrote, You still haven't explained why Jacob, referring to Rip, had his arm around you at the game. Guess we should just forget that? And she wrote back, Look at the photo again. There is no arm around me. That's my hand, not his. Now, it is true that her hand is there right in front of her breast. And someone who listened to the show even texted me, hey, it looks like Rip has his hand on her tit. No, he doesn't. That's actually her hand. And she has her hand up as if she's like gesturing as she's talking. So nobody's grabbing her tit in the picture. It is her own, or her own hand in front of it. But I will say that it does look like Rip has his arm around her from the way he's facing. So Arid responded back, Bruh, he's got two arms, and one of them is directly behind her. And someone named Richard Carr responded, We just friends, hashtag true love. Guess he lost his arm driving from Cali to Arizona to Vegas to make the game on time? (laughs) Some people don't believe that they're just friends. Anyway, that's all I got for right now on this topic. Hustler Casino Live is still plotting on. They're still having episodes every weekday as they did before. They're just acting like this didn't happen. And they're still getting pretty good ratings from what I've seen. And I think this is just going to continue. I think that's their plan is just to continue. Got to pretend this didn't occur. Not have Garrett on ever again. Not have Robbie on ever again. And just go forward. And then at some point release some report exonerating themselves and then assume that they still present the most interesting product as far as streamed poker games. 
so people will watch anyway. People will get over this and go back and watch. You might wonder, why didn't Stones do the same thing? Why did Stones shut down their stream after first attempting to continue? Why did they shut it down, and why didn't Hustler? Well, Stones was basically deriving its entire identity from that stream. Stones was a small Sacramento area casino in a strip mall. I've been there. That's what it is. And this stream was putting them on the map. This stream was getting them attention. This stream was getting more and more views. This stream was getting major players to show up and play on it. And this stream was getting people to come down and play tournaments who were big names in poker. So this was really, really helping them. And the stream was put on by the casino itself. This was not a third-party company putting it on. Now, the difference with Hustler Casino Live is, number one, it is being done by a third-party company. It's not by Hustler Casino itself. Number two, it is kind of a continuation of the old Live at the Bike, since one of the two owners is Ryan Feldman, who was very involved with that stream. And number three, Hustler is already a bigger and better-known casino than Stones was. So the purpose of Hustler Casino Live is not really to draw people to Hustler. Now, that's why Hustler allows it to be there, and Hustler gets benefit out of it. However, this is a separate company, and the main point of the stream is to make money for Hustler Casino Live and secondarily to get people down to Hustler and make Hustler more well-known. But it's different. It's a different situation. So if Stones continued... All people would remember would be Possel. That would be the only thing it would be known for. And they tried, and what happened is the chat would just destroy them. The chat just trolled and trolled and trolled. There was no way they could do a serious broadcast there because when they would try, the chat room would just hammer them about Possel. And you could say, well, they could just turn off the chat. Well, yes, but what good is it going to do? Because people will watch, and everybody who they were hoping to attract wouldn't trust them anymore. So these big-name players that came down before are not going to come anymore. So basically, whatever they were gaining from that stream existing was not going to occur post-postle. So they gave up, and that was the correct decision. Hustler Casino Live, the goal is not the same. And also, there is not the belief that cheating took place to the same degree as there was with Postle. With Postle, almost everyone thought that. With this, it's very split. There's only one hand that everybody can point to. With Possible, there was like 18 months of footage everyone pointed to. So it's very different. Stones, this pretty much defined them. Hustler Casino Live, yeah, this was a major story. It's the biggest story they've ever had and not a good one for them. But there's many other things that people watch it for and will continue watching it for. Even if they're aware of this and remember this, it doesn't define them. So that's why they're going to continue. And from a business standpoint, that's a smart thing to do. But I don't like it. You know, I, I, I wish that they shut it down and did a major audit about the security procedures and did extra checking on whoever remained that was working there and that they really made sure everything was clean before going forward. And also that they put an individual in charge who had nothing to do with them, like an independent third party managing the investigation. It doesn't matter if the investigation is performed by independent third parties. It matters who manages the investigation, and the managers of the investigation are the owners of Hustler Casino Live, and that's a huge conflict of interest, as I've stated before. Turdzilla, who posts on the forum and listens to this show, 
said, once Wesley runs out of money, so will Hustler Casino Live. Wesley is a whale on the show, a crypto-rich guy who plays very loose and is very, very well-funded. He said that it used to be like a fantasy camp for the fish to play with Garrett et al., now no more. So basically, Turgzilla's opinion is that fewer big-name pros are going to show up for this now that this happened, and Garrett's probably never coming back. So right now, the only reason anyone's coming, in his opinion, is that Wesley's there. And once uh, Wesley's not there anymore, then uh, they're going to have trouble putting together compelling lineups. And I don't know if that's true, because remember, they were getting social media stars. They even got Mr. Beast on there at one point. So a lot of those people don't care too much about all this drama. Ryan Feldman is very good at filling seats there with interesting players. I wouldn't count them out here. Robbie, I believe, is still very much enjoying this. She's still playing uh, more 10K events in Vegas. She really wants to be a big name in poker. She's even leaning into the Jack 4 thing as if it's kind of a trademark. And I'll tell you, it's kind of working. There were at least two people who did Halloween costumes of Robbie Jade Lou. (laughs) And they were posted up on Twitter. There were two different girls who dressed up like Robbie Jade Lou and did a pretty good job of it too. And they even held Jack Four. And in fact, one of them did a reenactment with her boyfriend where he played Garrett and she played Robbie. And they actually put down the cards. The only mistake was they used a four-color deck, which I use online when it's available, but you don't ever see this live. But somehow they had a four-color deck there. But otherwise, they did a pretty good uh, reenactment of it, including Robbie's expression and Garrett's expression. So Robbie actually became a Halloween costume. I bet she would have never guessed that a month and two days before. On September 29th, when she sat down to Hustler Casino Live, in her wildest dreams, would not have imagined that she would be a Halloween costume that year. But indeed, she has become one. So, when this is all over, we're not going to know anything more. That's my guess. And I don't think that anything is really going to be different than today. Except maybe Brian will finally be located and arrested. But you know, if he's given enough money, and keep in mind this guy is broke, and maybe even in debt. If he's given enough money, he'll take the rap. Because he's not taking a murder charge here or a child molestation charge, which would put him away for decades or maybe life. He, he'll take a theft charge and, yeah, maybe he'll do a little time in county jail or maybe he'll get probation. Who knows? But it's not going to be anything major. And for the right amount of money to keep his mouth shut and just take the charges and plead guilty, you know, maybe he'll do it. In fact, That's part of the job description for certain jobs where people do illegal things. Sometimes uh, campaign operatives will do that, and they will never admit that they were instructed to do it by the politician who they're working for. They'll claim they did it on their own. And even uh, thugs and hitmen, that's basically what's expected of them, is that they're not supposed to roll over on the people who hired them. So there's certain 
jobs where you're going to do something illegal and you're expected to take the rap if something happens. So this could have been that sort of case where even if Brian is arrested, he's not necessarily going to talk, even if there is something to say. I don't think we're ever going to find anything out. Even Andrea Chang of the LA Times is conceding this, that we're probably never going to get a conclusion. And she's right. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. You can text me, you can call me, and in the meantime, we will move on. Dolly Man, I mentioned him a bit earlier in the Robbie J. Liu topic. Dolly Man has been around for a very long time. Remember Patrick Curran said that he used to think he was cool in 2006. Dolly Man goes back even further than 2006. And in fact, he's not a young man. He's a little bit older than me. He's in his early 50s. His real name is Aaron O'Rourke. He is based out of Las Vegas, and he is a poker pro and sports better. I've never met him to my knowledge. I've argued with him on Twitter pretty vigorously at times about politics. And sometimes when we had our political arguments, he would get agitated and angry with me. And I was always respectful. I never would call him names or be disrespectful in any way. I was just disagreeing with him and he was disagreeing with me. But sometimes he would kind of lose his cool and get nasty and condescending with me. However, I will say that on the other hand, he has praised me at times for my activism against cheaters and scumbags in poker. And that overall, from everything I've seen observing him, he seems like a decent guy, even though we're on opposite sides politically. So we've never met in person. We've argued on Twitter. But do I think he's a bad guy? No. And I do appreciate that he has spoken highly of uh, what I have done regarding calling out cheaters in poker. So this is one of these things where sometimes you'll argue with someone and not get along with them, but, but you can still have respect for them. Anyway, I've never talked about him before on this show, but he put out a notice for everybody about a guy he said scammed him, and he posted pictures of the guy posted his name, and told the whole story. And the guy did respond. So in the interest of fairness, I will read the guy's response as well, and then I will give you my opinion of this whole thing. So Dolly Man tweeted on October 24th. Seems like a lot of stuff happened on October 24th. He said, This is Quincy Collins, also known as Q, fancies himself a professional poker player and sports better, but he is neither. He is a scammer. Scammed me for over 4K this past week in Vegas after I let him stay in my home, fed him, gave him rides, and taught him a ton about sports and poker. More below. So then he posted two pictures of Quincy Collins. One of them is at a Dodgers game. And uh, he seems to be a big Dodgers fan, Quincy Collins, because in both pictures, one at the poker table and one at Dodger Stadium, he has on a black L.A. Dodgers cap. Then he tells more of the story here, Dolly Man. He says, this is Quincy Collins. He says he lives in Florida and travels back and forth between there, California, and Las Vegas a lot. 
not sure if that's his real name, met him at a poker game I was at that was being run by a scammer who scammed me. He said he got scammed, but then got his money back. But as he got his money back, he dropped dirt to me on some of the things that the scammer was doing. I pretty much knew what was going on, just not all the details. This was back in about January of this year. Okay, let's stop right here. This is already pretty bad. Not necessarily about Quincy here, but apparently he met Quincy at a scammy poker game, meaning like a home game. And Dolly Man is already conceding that he got scammed in this game, but that Quincy claimed he also got scammed. And while he managed to get his money back, supposedly out of this scammer, that uh, he informed Dolly Man that he was scammed worse than he even thought. (laughs) So this is why you got to stay away from these games. A lot of poker players are so tempted to play in these good home games. And they think, okay, this is so much better than playing at Aria or Commerce or Bellagio because they have a lot of good players in these rooms. So wouldn't it be nice if you could play at the same stakes or even higher stakes against nothing but fish? That's like a dream, right? And yeah, it's a home game. It doesn't have the same security. But, uh, you know, it's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to get cheated here. And then what happens? You get cheated. So I don't know the details about this home poker game and how he got cheated, but a lot of times these things these things seem too good to be true. They are. So he's claiming he met Quincy because they were both victims of this scammy home poker game and that Quincy even gave him some more details that he was scammed worse than he thought. And he said this happened in January 2022. So Dolly Man goes on to write, Fast forward to a few weeks ago, he hits me up about coming into Vegas and asks if I can Venmo him money if someone sends me Zell. Seems a little weird, but due diligence told me once a Zell is confirmed, it can't be reversed under normal circumstances, so I do two separate transactions for him for 400 and 300 when they clear. By the way, that's wrong. <laughs> I don't know what due diligence he did, but when a Zell transfer is confirmed, if the person who sent it then claims it was fraud, that their account was hacked or whatever, uh, a lot of times the money will be returned. So you really, there's nothing that's irreversible except for cash dropped in your account, which now is not really allowed by third parties at any major bank that I know of, or crypto. Other than cash or crypto, anything can be reversed. And I always warn people about this, that if you're going to receive any kind of electronic transfer, while some are easier to charge back than others, all of them can be charged back in some way. So do not count on it to be bulletproof. Anyway, going on. A few days later, he says he's coming into Vegas and asked if he could stay with me for a few days. And I said, yes. He got into town Monday, October 17th and ended up staying with me until Friday with me driving him around and some and getting some sports bets in for him. Thursday night, we go play poker. Even though he has like 2K on the table, he asked me to borrow $1,000 a few hours later when I get back from a show I went to. Wasn't thrilled about it, but I figured he was probably good for it, so I loaned him another 500 After the first day, he was staying with me. He was up around $180 in sports bets, betting somewhat reasonable amounts, 200 to 400 a game. After the first day, he was up 180 but the second day, he bet 500 on two bets and 1000 each on two other bets and lost the bigger bets and owed me about 1300 I was starting to get nervous at this point, but he seemed pretty relaxed about the situation. I felt like I should just get the money from him then, but I very stupidly thought that I was being overly cautious and nervous for no good reason. Let me stop here. 
whenever you're dealing with a relative stranger and there's something happening with them and money and you start getting nervous, it's never for no good reason. When you get nervous, it's for a very good reason. And if you ignore your nervousness, you almost always regret it. Going on. He placed a few large overnight bets, and the first one won, meaning now I owed him money, which I was actually somewhat relieved about, but then he placed a few more large bets. He was flying back to Florida a little after 6, so I was going to give him a ride to the airport at 4, and then I took a nap at noon. I woke up from my nap at 3.30 to a text with him saying that he went to the bank. I didn't think much of it until I realized he didn't take one of my electric scooters like he had previously. I checked the bets he made and find out that he lost almost 4000 total. I messaged him and say I messaged him and he didn't get back to me until an hour later saying the bank had messed some things up and he was now at a William Hill trying to cash out a parlay he placed that morning that hit that hadn't cleared. At that moment I was 98% sure I was getting scammed. Yeah, I'm like 100% sure you're getting scammed. <laughs> the old uh, bank messed up story. Whenever you hear that, you know you've been scammed. I asked what William Hill he was at. William Hill is a sports book by the way. That they manage sports books around Vegas and elsewhere. I asked what William Hill he was at, and he didn't respond. Then he said that since this was taking so long, he was just going to take an Uber to the airport, which of course meant he already brought his backpack with all his stuff with him, further confirming he had no intention of coming back here. He said he was going to have a female friend Venmo the money, and of course I didn't expect much. The next day I messaged him a few times asking him to send the money. He feigned astonishment that it hadn't been sent yet. Yesterday, when I was at the Raider game, funny, he was at the same Raider game as Robbie. <laughs> I got a message from someone on Instagram contacting me, asking if I knew Q, and saying that Q scammed him by selling him fake tickets to a Dolphins game, having Q send me the money to try and cover up the track somehow, I guess. From what, I, from what the guy says, scalping tickets to Dolphins games is a felony, although I don't know what scalping fake tickets to Dolphins games is. Either way, this guy is in and around casinos a lot, typically playing 1-3 or 2-5 Hold'em. In Vegas, his main spot to play is the Orleans. He also plays the Bellagio, Aria, and the Wynn Poker Room a lot. If you see him, be sure to tell him Aaron says, fuck you, scammer. Just to be clear, I'm definitely an idiot when it comes to helping and trusting people. I thought I was getting better at it, but obviously I still have some pretty large holes in that part of my game. Yeah, that's for sure. He then said, please feel free to retweet for recognition and to warm others. It's really insane how much fake spammer engagement you get just by using certain words because he got a lot of responses from spammers saying, I can get the money back for you. Uh, please uh, contact me. Like just whenever you use certain words, bots reply trying to get you to give them details, like account details for them to just steal from you. Then on October 26th, just two days later, he said, hey, everybody, Quincy just said he's at Bellagio. Maybe he didn't actually go back to Florida at all. To Florida at all. People should say hi to him there. Now, I know what he's trying to do, but no one's going to go fight Dolly Man's battles at Bellagio. Like, no one's going to go stalk this Quincy guy, even if he's totally guilty, and say, okay, you know, I'm going to harass you until you give Dolly Man his money back. Now, maybe if Dolly Man was like a hot young chick, then yes, but Dolly Man is just a dude in his 50s. No one's going to go fight his battles. But I, I see what Dolly Man's trying to do. He's trying to point out where the guy is, so if anyone sees him, people will start talking, oh, that's that scammer over there, and maybe the word will get around, and then uh, Quincy will get sick of the word spreading that he's a scammer, because that will also stop him from getting other people to loan him money. 
So uh, a number of problems in this story. Problems meaning not things I disbelieve, but problems in that uh, Dolly Man made various mistakes, which he acknowledges. First of all, being a sports better myself, by the way, one who lost today, but being a sports better myself, I can tell you that it's a huge, huge, huge red flag when someone rapidly escalates their bets as they win. When someone's doing that, they are not a professional sports better. They are a degenerate who is probably a losing sports better. Because a winning sports better, unless they see a tremendous opportunity, not just the game they really like, but a tremendous opportunity where their edge is so high they can't help but put extra money on it, if they make uneven bets, all they're going to do is uh, screw their edge potentially. Because your edge in sports comes from volume, much like at poker. And the way that you can end up beating sports is by placing a lot of bets where your bets are all or most positive expectation. And eventually, even with all the variance, if you are making positive expectation decisions, then you will come out ahead. But if you're putting your bets all over the place, then you may not come out ahead because if you're unlucky enough that the bigger bets are the ones where you don't run well, then you could be a positive expectation sports better and still be way down. So people who are professional sports bettors don't adjust their bets by large amounts based upon winning a few in a row. That's what a degenerate does. So a degenerate, especially one who owes money, will bet a few hundred bucks because that's all he can afford. And if he wins a few in a row, he goes, okay, sweet. Now I have enough money to bet $1,000 a game. And what if I win that? Then I can bet 2000 a game. And what if I win that? Then I can start betting four or 5000 a game. What if I could run up this few hundred dollars to over 100000 Man, wouldn't that be cool? And then what just about always happens is they chunk it all off because you can't run that well for that long. And in the rare case where they do run it up, then eventually they they don't stop in time and they chunk it all off. There's, there's never a point where they're satisfied. Even if they somehow turn $300 into 100000 then they'll think, okay, well, let's turn this into a million now. And then if they somehow turn it into a million, okay, well, let's turn this into $10 million. At some point, they just keep raising, raising, raising their bets and they go broke. It's, it's pretty much guaranteed. So this is degenerate behavior. So the second you see a, quote, pro sports better go from placing $200 bets to $2,000 bets within a few days, you know what they're doing is they are betting their bottom dollar and trying to run it up big. That's what they're doing. So that should have been huge red flag number one. Number two, when someone keeps asking to borrow money from you and when you don't know for sure they have it, usually they don't. And if they do, they will usually offer to show you proof they have it. So I'll give you an example. If I ask somebody who knows me well to borrow money, they'll almost always give it to me unless they need it for the moment themselves because they know I'm not going to screw them. But let's say they don't know me very well. Let's say, for example, I'm in commerce and I uh, lose what money I've brought with me and uh, I don't have any more in my box there. And uh, now I need to borrow money to continue playing the game. Well, people recognize me there, but they don't all know me that well. And uh, let's say I ask a regular in the game, can I borrow some money? 
well, he probably will be hesitant to loan me money because we aren't friends and he doesn't know me all that well. So what I would do at that point is offer to show him some proof where I could show him right now that I actually have the money to pay him back. I just don't have it on me at the moment. So that's what I would do. I would offer him immediate proof to see that I'm good for it. And when people don't do that, when they don't offer that immediately, if they don't know you that well, and they just ask to borrow money, it's usually because they don't have the money. And they always have some backstory, usually involving a bank. Whenever you hear about a bank error or a bank holding something up, it's almost always false. That is a very, very common story that scammers give. It's always a bank error. I've seen this so many times. The second I hear about a bank error, I go, oh, no, you just got scammed. Because that's a very, very common line that scammers use. So whenever someone says, I have the money, I just can't access it right now because of a bank error, it's a scammer. And in general, if someone you don't know very well is asking to borrow money, it is highly likely that they're broke. Because people who actually have money kind of feel bad about doing that. It's only the people who are used to scamming and rolling people that will do it because uh, that's the way they stay in action. Someone who actually has the money behind will feel kind of weird about it. And again, they'll probably show you how they're good for it before even asking you or while they're asking you. But if someone you don't know very well says, hey, can you loan me a thousand? That's a very, very bad sign. Very few times are they actually good for it. Also, somebody who seems to need things from you and then asks for money, that's another bad sign. So notice he needed to stay with Dally Man. He didn't stay in a hotel. Why wasn't he staying in a hotel? I mean, yeah, it saves a little money, but I don't ask to stay with people when I go to Vegas, I get a hotel. The most I'll do is sometimes ask someone that I've uh, established a good relationship with, hey, can you uh, give me a comp room that you might have access to that you don't need right now? Could, could, you give one, could you give me one? I've done that before. I've never asked a person ever, nor would I, hey, can I come stay with you? That's a little bit weird. So when you're asking someone that, that's usually indicative that you're broke and you can't afford a hotel. Also, this gives you more access to the person that you're trying to scam. So that's also a bad sign when someone you don't know very well wants to stay with you and then they start to ask for money. That's it's almost always a scam when that occurs as well. Furthermore, remember in the middle of the story, Q actually won a big bet, which put him above even in the sports bets. And Dolly Man was saying, okay, well, I'm feeling relieved now because now I actually owe him a little bit of money because he just won. Well, the problem is, is this was a free roll. If, if this story is as the way Dallaman told it, then he was being free rolled. So sometimes you can be free rolled and not lose because the person got lucky. But if the person was never going to pay you back if they lost, then it's not that great that they won. Aside from the fact that you do have the money for the moment. Which is what he meant, what he's saying is that since the bet did win, then at least he's not out money. But he was... If you're being free-rolled, even if you get away without losing, then that's still a very bad thing. And that's why I always hate when someone asks, well, how much did you actually lose? Well, if you got free-rolled, but you didn't lose, you were still being scammed. You were still scammed. So let's say I bet on a game with a guy from this site who had no money and no intent to pay me. And then uh, 
what ended up happening was the game was a tie. Let's say it was a, a plus three that I bet on with him and the, the my team lost by three, so it tied. Well, I lost no money in the whole thing. Let's say right after that, I found out the guy was scamming me. Well, I lost no money because the game tied. I never sent him anything, but he was not going to pay me if I won. And if I lost, I was going to pay him. So even though I didn't lose any money in this fictitious scenario, I still got scammed. So I hate when people say, well, but you didn't lose anything. No, if you're being free rolled, you did lose. Because it's about the expectation of that bet. And if the expectation of that bet is that uh, you're going to end up paying the person if they win, but they won't pay you if you win, then basically half of what was bet is what you were scammed there. Well, he did respond. I was wondering if uh, Quincy was going to respond. And usually people who are accused of such scamming do not respond. In fact, it's fairly uncommon they respond because usually it's pretty tough for them to be able to face all the questions. So they tend not like to answer to these things, but there were responses here. On October 26th, two days later, his first response, he said, it's messy because the motherfucker is full of shit. What he failed to mention the whole story is the first night I made bets with him and won, he didn't pay me and didn't offer to pay me and forced me to roll over my winnings to bet until I left, which I didn't want to do. I assumed when I woke up the next day and I'm up X amount of money, I would be paid without hesitation and bets won or lost would be paid at the end of the night. He failed to do that. So that right there told me I couldn't trust him. So what he's failing to tell you all is he didn't pay me. So his story back was that Dolly Man just was letting him continue to bet whatever was uh, given to him or whatever he had on him, and that anything he won, that Dolly Man wasn't paying him yet and was just going to pay him at the end of the trip, and that he wasn't happy with that, and that Dolly Man screwed him this way. So then someone wrote back, LOL, this story is just so messy. And he said, it'd be different if I was up thousands, but if you can't afford to throw me the 200 I was up and we keep going, then that's a red flag saying, oh, let's just roll it over when that was never discussed. Can't be a scam if no money was ever exchanged. He willingly chose to place bets. He said to somebody else who was accusing him of being a scammer, you're an idiot. There was never a scam. What he's failed to mention to y'all is he owed me money after the first night and didn't pay. He left that part out. So who scammed who? We never discussed rolling over betting totals for days. So he's still on the whole thing that Dolly Man just never paid him what he won. And uh, therefore, he was the one being scammed. That he had to keep betting with uh, whatever money he had left over. But that uh, he did not get his winnings paid to him when he'd win at the end of the night. That was his claim. He also said, this is actually back to me when I posted the Poker Fraud Alert thread. He left so much out of the story and made his own twist on it. Y'all are very misled. I never abruptly raised any bets. He didn't bring up the 2K I made him the first night. So he's claiming he made 2K profit for Dolly Man the first night. On bets I'm not super confident in, I may bet lower. On super high confident bets, I may max out. So he's trying to answer my suspicion about why he was quickly raising his bet amount, that he just likes certain bets better than others, and that if it's a a marginal bet, he'll bet something small. If it's something he really likes, he he bets big. 
He said, pertaining to my raising my bets, last week with the Astros and Cardinals, I was super confident in both those teams winning and covering, so I have no problem jumping from 500 a game to 1,500 if possible. Y'all are idiots. I've replied to a few comments below. You're welcome to read. His ass didn't pay me after the first night I was up, plus profit, which was the decision he made on his own. So after that red flag, I chose to make my own. He never gave me 4K, and I took nothing from him. Ask me why he didn't pay what was owed the first night. He left that part out. Y'all are being misled, believing a person that puts out a false story first and going with it. Now, I will say, before analyzing the rest of this, that I've never seen in all the years that Dally Men has been on forums or social media, I've never seen in all these years, which is now getting like around two decades, I've never seen a single allegation against him for scamming, and yet this Quincy Collins does have allegations against him for scamming, including a guy who had Quincy Collins' license and is claiming he got scammed for 500 So just from that, Dolly Man seems like the more credible one here. Someone said, damn, this seems like part two of the Hustler incident. Seems like an odd incident. And Quincy said, it's false as well. Feel free to read a few of my comments above to replies as well. Someone said, the first red flag is being a gambler not having weekday room offers. I can understand if he came on a Friday night and needed to crash. No way that should be a thing coming in on Monday. And then Quincy said, yeah, you're an idiot. I had plenty of comps. He's not a random. He's a person I viewed as a friend that we've been through countless situations together. He offered. And yes, even if you did have comps, all locations on Strip were either extremely high or sold out last week. So he's claiming that he has comps, but that that particular week they uh, were charging a lot of money. He couldn't get any comps. And so he responded to a few more people just repeating the same thing, that uh, he was the one who was scammed. And then on October 26th, Dolly Man posted some screenshots. It seemed like he was telling the truth. So Dolly Man said, again, you're up 180. And I said to you, how about we roll it since you're going to be here a few more days? And you said you were cool with that. Typical scammer BS. So he showed on October 19th, Quincy said 600 Minus 440 is plus 160 for the three bets, if my math is correct. At least you made 1K on your end. And then Dolly Man corrected him that he's actually owed 180, not 160, and said, let's just roll it until you leave. I'm guessing there will be more bets unless the number gets like over 500 or something. Roll it, meaning we're just going to hold it and keep betting with this. So rather than me giving you 180 cash, let's just keep betting with your profits. And then, uh, you know, if it gets over 500, I'll pay you right away. Otherwise, I'll pay you at the end. So he responded back saying, no, you said we're going to roll it with a tone of take it or leave it. Why didn't you just pay me first and ask what I wanted to do? Did you pay me or have money out there for me? Yes or no. And Dolly Man said back, I didn't pay you first because it was such a small amount. And I knew you were going to want to continue betting. Also, because I didn't want to have a situation where if you were scamming me that I pay you when you win, but you don't pay me when you lose. At least I did get that right. So Dolly Man saying that not only... Did he know that Quincy was going to want to keep betting anyway, so might as well just keep that 180 as credit to bet with, but also he was a little worried that maybe this is a scam, so uh, he didn't want to only pay him when he won and then then expect Quincy to pay him when he lost. Then Quincy said, either way, I'm not worried in the slightest. Enjoy your day. And then Dally Man said back, of course you're not worried in the slightest. You're a piece of shit scammer. 
But the fact that you felt the need to enter this means you're getting some pushback, so at least there's that. If you weren't a scammer, you would just pay me. Your broke ass probably doesn't even have it, though. That was on October 26th. Then Dolly Man expanded and said, so after the first night, I owed him 180. After the second night, he owed me 1270, and I'd actually forgotten to include the 500 in that, so he owed me 1770. Before we went to bed, he placed three bets that were over 1K. When I woke up, one of them had won for 1400. And then he was uh, showing a screenshot where Quincy said, I owe you 1270 currently, which again, uh, he was saying is actually 1770, Dolly Man. And then Dolly Man said, Hey, I doubt you're awake, but I can't sleep, so I'm going to go play. Probably back noonish or so. I plan on taking you to the airport, but let me know again what time your flight is. And then uh, at, later on uh, October 21st, after talking about some winners that they had on bets, he said, actually, you, minus 500 I gave you, so you owe me 370. So at, at one point he thought that Quincy was up 130, but then he realized he gave him 500 earlier, so he actually is owed 370 at that point. So he's uh, showing that exchange. And then Quincy says back, exactly, stop right there. After the first night, I was up. I wasn't paid. That's where it all starts and ends. I should have been paid just like if we were playing poker and the game ends and everyone's cashing out and they get paid. But nope, I wasn't. Well, it's not like poker, though, because everyone wasn't cashing out. This is more like you're at a home poker game and uh, you're up a little bit and you're like, hey, uh, I'm up a little bit right now. I'm going to keep playing. But uh, can you cash out my profit right now? And, uh, and, and I'll go back to my starting stack that you're giving to me on credit. So not only is that against the general rules of poker that you can't take money off the table, even if everyone's cool with that, the guy running the game may wonder why you're demanding to get paid whatever you're up when you're originally buying in on credit that maybe you're going to lose that and not pay. So it's very reasonable why Dolly Man was rolling it, especially because he has no reputation of ever scamming anybody. Also, at any point, Quincy could have said, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Just give me my money. I'm going to leave. So then Quincy said, I don't know what you had in front of you, nor is that relevant to the conversation. By the time you got up from the table, I didn't see you with any chips. Doesn't matter what you had on the table, nor does it matter that I had 2K on the table as well. I don't care what you believe you didn't pay. Also, everyone can see the message you told me we're rolling it. You made the rules. In none of that did I agree to, nor say, yeah, that's fine. I woke up to that message and felt forced like it was my only way to continue. If I pressed to get my money, I felt like you would act funny. Well, okay. So maybe he'd act funny, but it's not like he refused to give it. Like if if you were that unhappy with this, at any point you could have said, "Okay, Dally man, I want my money. Give me my one hundred eighty dollars, my whopping hundred eighty dollars. Give it to me now." And uh, if Dally man pushed it back and say, "Okay, well, I'm sorry, I just don't feel comfortable with this whole thing. Give me my one eighty. I'm going to bounce." So I don't know why he's acting like this was forced on him. It's not like Dally Man had a gun to his head. It's not like he said he was scared of Dally Man. He's just like, uh, I, I felt like I had to do it this way for us to continue. Well, okay, maybe, but you didn't have to continue. Who was forcing you to continue betting with him? Just if you don't like the way Dolly Man's doing it, then collect your winnings and leave. Dolly Man said, dude, this is the weakest bullshit excuse I've ever heard. You saw me playing poker with 5K in front of me the night before, and with 7K the night you borrowed money from me. So if your excuse is I can't pay you 200, you're going to try to make it a lot more? Nobody believes you. And Quincy said, you still have no answers why I didn't wake up and have my money in front of me and then given options on what I wanted to do. You opened the door, not me. 
then Dolly Man mentions that Quincy actually did confirm that it was okay to roll that 180. He said, actually, that next text shows yup at the beginning of it, showing that you were fine with it. Then you said what bets you liked from that day. You didn't say a single thing about having an issue with it. But of course, your story was that you knew I was scamming you. And he's showing the screenshot when they talked about rolling it. And the first thing that Quincy said back was, yep, I'm confident in smashing the Astros and Cardinals tonight. So, yep, I'm confident in smashing these two bets tonight is basically saying, yep, okay, let's, uh, you know, rolling it's fine. He didn't specifically say, yes, go ahead and roll it. But he also didn't say, you know, I, I don't really like that. Uh, can we do this a different way? Now, Quincy's story is that Dolly Man is kind of in control here. And if he said no, that Dolly Man would have pulled the plug on the whole thing. But okay, you know, that's the way it goes. The only way you can say you feel pressured is if that person has something over you to where you can't object to what they they want to do or you're going to have some consequence, whether it's a physical consequence or that person's never going to pay you or something else that's negative. If it's simply that the person doesn't want to work with you anymore, then <laughs> that that's not something where they're controlling you. That's just them giving the terms they're comfortable with. And if you don't like it, then you can leave. So it seems very clear that if Quincy said, no, I don't want to roll the 180, and Dolly Man said, no, we have to roll the 180, then Quincy could have said, okay, give me my 180, I'm leaving, and Dolly Man would have given him the 180 and left. I mean, I'm sure that's what happened. A person named James Ferguson, who's felt it again on Twitter, said to Quincy, if you didn't agree to the arrangement after the first night, why did you continue to play? Simply say, sorry, that wasn't our deal, and I'm not comfortable playing under those terms. That's my point. And Quincy says back, I wasn't given the option. You weren't there to understand the parameters. That's crazy y'all even going along with it and can't even answer yes or no if you would accept not getting paid. And then this James Ferguson said back, I'm 100% not sitting down at the table and playing a second session if I didn't agree to the terms. If they decide not to pay me my money after that, we're going to have some problems and they wouldn't be me going on Twitter and blasting them. So basically, Ferguson saying what I'm saying. that Either you continue... Because you accept the terms or you don't continue and leave. There's no such thing as begrudgingly accepting the terms and then rolling the person. Later on October 26th, Quincy said, Guaranteed I'm more liquid than you right now. You're betting with money and accounts that are not even yours. That's a weird flex, buddy. And Dolly Man said, Cool, then pay me the money you owe me. 4170 or hell, at least even just the 500 you borrowed from me that you conveniently keep forgetting about. And then he showed the evidence of the, the 500 and then he's even showing a screenshot of himself telling Quincy if you don't pay me the money you owe me you're going to find yourself very recognizable not only did I post on my Facebook and yours but I posted on Twitter and I'm going to be posting in major casino sports betting groups as well on Facebook your casino experience is about to get very interesting so then Quincy responded my casino experience hasn't changed one bit if you have beef, come up to the Bellagio. I'm in town and run from zero wind. And so Dolly Man says, if I come up to the Bellagio, are you going to pay me? And then there was no response. I think that Quincy's like, you know, whatever, uh, come to the Bellagio, I don't care. I, I think he doesn't believe that Dolly Man's going to do anything other than complain to him. I don't think he's physically afraid of him, so... He's saying, come to the Bellagio, and then probably the Bellagio, he'll just say, no, you were the one scamming me. I'm not giving you anything. So it, it went back and forth 
like this a lot on October 26th. Later on October 26th, even later, Dolly Man posted, for further context, he's now trying to say, I'm making all this up because I lost a bunch of money on UFC on Saturday, which not only doesn't make any sense, but also has nothing to do with anything. I waited a few days to post to give him a chance to pay. And he's showing on October 21st, he's saying he didn't receive anything. And then Quincy responded back saying, that's super weird. I just messaged her again, referring to the girl that was supposed to send him the money on his behalf. And she says she sent it. Then he shows this weird screenshot with a girl named Whitney, where he said to Whitney, "Uh, hey, did you send Aaron that money? And then Whitney says, yeah, I sent it last night like you told me. Let me check again. And he said, okay, if it didn't go through, whatever happened, let me know when it's sent. And she says, it says it's sent. I don't know why he wouldn't be showing it. I'll see what's up. He said, okay, thank you. So Dolly Man showing, like, supposedly you, you were having this money sent to me. So what, what happened to that? I think that he was probably <clears throat> on Whitney's account or he told Whitney to write this. Obviously, Whitney didn't really send him money. Then Dallyman posted further update. Q popped in once again to make some more posts challenging me to a 10K heads up match before going private. So here's my offer. Pay me 4170, then we play for 10K, but you only have to put up 10K. I will put up not only my 10K, but also your 4170 and an additional 2K. We start out with 10K in chips, 2550 blinds that do not escalate, freeze out tournament style. If I win, I get your 10K. If you win, you get 16170 for me. Ball is in your court. That's a pretty generous offer. Basically, uh, they're playing a 10K freeze out. And I guess he's giving odds to Quincy, where if Quincy wins, that he gets uh, 16K. And if Dolly Man wins, he only gets 10K. And then Josh Van Doon who's also known as PB Drunks from Poker Stars. I see him around the World Series every so often. He said, that's dumb. Just get your money back and be done with him for good. And Dolly Man said back, as you can see, he doesn't seem too interested in giving it back to me straight, so I'm giving him a sweetheart deal here. Obviously, he's too scared after offering it and didn't think I'd accept. At least he's smart enough to know I'm way better than him at poker. And Josh Van Dune said, he probably doesn't have 10K either, most likely. I'm worried you'll never see that dollar again. Oh, well. And he's, of course, he doesn't have 10K. I mean, <laughs> that's the problem here. And Dolly Man said, I'm not really worried about it. I know I'm drawing to a one-outer at best here. Now I'm just calling his bluffs and making him look even worse than he already does. So, yeah, Dolly Man's not going to get paid here, especially with a lot of people accusing this Quincy of ripping them off as well. It's unlikely that he's just going to pay Dolly Man this amount of money and uh, nobody else, especially when there's people saying like they're owed 500. The way people work when they're scammers is they will only pay if it benefits them to pay. So once someone calls you out for being a scammer for a fairly large amount of money, at least for you, and at that point, if you pay back, you'll look good as far as that person goes. But then if there's others that have already come out and said, hey, he scammed me too, well, then that doesn't really repair your reputation very much. So at that point, pretty much nobody's going to get paid. The only time someone gets paid in that spot is when the amount of money owed is small compared to everybody else. So if he owed Dolly Man, say, $100 and owed 500 or more to everybody else, then he'd probably pay $100 to Dolly Man just to show this is resolved. But he's not going to pay 
4170 to Dolly Man just to have others say, hey, well, he owes me 500 also. He owes me this also. Like It's not worth it to pay that amount because 4170 is probably a lot for him right now. So I think it's highly unlikely that uh, Quincy gets paid here just uh, based upon my observation of this exchange and also from my experience in watching these type of situations in poker. Now, if I'm wrong about any of this, then Quincy is welcome to come on this show or on the forum and uh, respond. It does look like, Quincy, that you did accept that 180 that was rolled over. And if you didn't, well, then you should have spoken up. You can't just keep betting with him at that point. So if you were pissed off about him rolling over that 180 and not paying you directly, then you should have said, okay, no, I'm not comfortable with this. Give me the 180 and then I'm out. You can't just keep betting with him and then use that to justify why you don't pay him. And obviously, you do feel you owe him money because you showed this Whitney supposedly sent him the money, which he didn't receive. So there's no way Whitney would have sent this, whether she did or not. There's no way he would have said Whitney's sending this if you didn't really owe the money. So it seems to me, Quincy, you owe the money. If I'm wrong here, feel free to correct me. But that story about the 180, that doesn't uh, really fly here for the reasons I stated. You can say that Dolly Man was a jerk for pressuring you to roll it. I don't agree, but that could be your opinion. You could say, when I came to stay with him, I didn't think he's going to do this to me. I didn't think he's not going to pay me my winnings every day. That was my understanding. And he was being a dick about it, and that was what he was demanding. But at that point, that's when you leave. That's when you say, okay, well, you know what? Screw you. I'm leaving. And this didn't work out. And F you, I'm never going to talk to you again. Or at worst, F you, I'm going to call you out on Twitter for this behavior. But what you don't do is just keep betting with them and then roll them when you're uh, 4,000 behind. If you guys take anything from this, aside from just enjoying the drama, you really shouldn't let anyone bet with you on credit unless they are a good friend who you know is going to pay you back. If it's just a relative stranger or an acquaintance, there's a decent chance that when they're betting with you on credit, it's because they don't have money. I'm sure Dolly Man learned some lessons here. I'm, I'm kind of surprised he didn't already know all this because he's been around so long. But as he said that he's a bit too trusting, he's someone who sees the good in people more than he probably should. And in poker, that's a mistake. In poker, you just can't count on everybody being good. In poker, you have to constantly keep your guard up and think, I wonder if this person's screwing me. I'll tell you, there were some times that I lent people money and they seemed very, very sincere. These were people I knew through poker. And then they ended up rolling me, and I was very disappointed in them. And it just made me not want to do it again. It, this was never big money. Now, fortunately, just about all of them eventually paid me back. In fact, some of them kind of surprised me. <laughs> Sometimes, like, way later, like, I'll, I'll get the money back when I'm totally not expecting to ever get it. But I, I've really just kind of come to the conclusion that this is not a good thing to do. Yes... I do have a platform to call people out. You know, I have this site and this show, and people know that. But if people are desperate enough, they would roll someone like me, even knowing that if they don't pay me back, I'll call them out. If they feel like their back's against the wall and they 
feel they can get the money for me and roll me, then they may do it. So, you know, it's too bad. If I really knew for sure that, that people who borrowed small amounts of money from me would definitely pay back, then I, I wouldn't have a problem lending money to people who are in need for the moment. Unfortunately, a lot of people in poker and gambling who are in need for the moment are there because they have a bad gambling habit and they've let it get out of control and destroy them. Sometimes it's a drug habit as well. So it usually is not a financial crunch due to reasons beyond their control. It's not like they had an unexpected health care expense or an unexpected car expense. It's it's not like that. It's uh, Usually they have done something foolish and uh, chunked off all their money and then need someone to help them to where they can pay the rent. And sometimes it's just so they can keep in action. That's a sad thing. Now, there are some people I've lent to that do pay me back, even if it takes a little while, like Master Scaler. Master Scaler I've lent to so many times, but uh, you know how much money Master Scaler owes me at this moment? Zero point zero. Because he pays back. It sometimes takes some time, but he pays back. But even with him, I got to be careful because if I loan him too much too freely, then he blows the money. So sometimes I, for his own good, I, I don't loan him too much. I, I tend to figure out exactly what he really needs. Even if he blew it stupidly, you know, I, I'll figure out what does he really need and then I'll give him the minimum of what he needs. Otherwise, uh, he, he just ends up blowing it and getting further in the hole. So I, even with him, who, who I trust, like Master Scaler's not trying to roll me and I've known him for 30 years. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of it's for his own good. If, if I loaned him unlimited money, then this would be very harmful to him. Not just because I wouldn't get paid back, but just it's, it's, it's not good for him. So it's, it's one of these things where I'm doing what's best for him, not just for me. But, you know, I've, I've never let him really end up in a terrible bind. So if it's going to be a matter of where if I don't loan him money or he'll get evicted, then I'll loan him the money even if I don't like how it happened. And, you know, that's, that's occurred before. But this is someone I've been friends with for 30 years. So that, that's why I make that exception for him. And, you know, I've done it for a few others. And then there's also people who I've known long enough that I know they're not going to screw me and they're not large amounts of money. So in those cases, I've loaned as well. And those people have paid back. And I never asked, for people to pay me interest or anything, even if they offer it, I say no. I, I don't want the interest. That's not. Uh, that's not why I'm doing this. I, I I don't want to make money off of this thing. I just want to get paid back without hassle. This wasn't so much just a loan, though. This was more of just betting with someone, and the person then uh, doesn't pay when they lose. It's more of a free roll. Taking a look. At the chat room, Dive Bar Dave was unhappy with my Disneyland topic at the beginning of the show. He said, holy shit, Todd, nobody cares about Disneyland. Also not poker, not fraud. Why is it the first topic? Yeah, it was a bit longer than I wanted it to be, but that's the way it goes. Sean Fenning's limp dick. Glad to see him back. He's from England. His name is referring to a claim genocide once made. She actually dated Sean Fanning. Yes, the, the same Sean Fanning from uh, Napster. She actually dated him. 
Sean Fanning's limp dick said, Robbie sounds as if she's already been following the white rabbit for some time. Yeah. (laughs) He also said in reference to the bank errors, what if they claimed they're heir to Chase Manhattan Bank fortune and has neck tattoos? Now that's referring to Justin Wade Smith, who is a notorious scammer who used that same bank excuse. And he also claimed not only did he have bank issues, but that he also was the heir to the uh, Chase Manhattan bank fortune. Just needed money for the moment. He famously rolled Brian Mikon for 12K. And Mikon took a lot of shit for that. But Mikon, yeah, he really publicized the whole thing. Prior to that, all of Justin Wade Smith's victims kind of just stayed quiet. So Justin didn't pick the best victim in Mikon. And he eventually got arrested, not over anything having to do with Mikon, but he eventually got arrested for doing that scam over and over and over. And he did spend a few years in prison for it. Moving on, we have an interesting story out of Iowa at a Caesars property. And this was sent to me by a listener, so I thank them for that. This involves a lawsuit involving someone getting beat up at Isle Waterloo, which is a Caesars property. It used to be an El Dorado property, but it's now a Caesars property as a result of the 2020 merger between El Dorado and Caesars. So this was over an incident that happened in January 2021. But the most interesting part of it is that the victim of this beating, the one who sued Isle Waterloo, was actually a thief, and he admits it. So why was a thief suing Isle Waterloo over something that happened to him after he stole from someone? Well, here's the whole story. Montana Gunhoos, that's Montana exactly as it sounds, and Gunhoos is G-U-N-H-U-S, Montana Gunhoos, from all appearances, is a scumbag and a thief. He's 37 years old. Four years ago, in 2018, Gunhus and his girlfriend and two other methy-looking friends were committing burglaries in Washburn, Iowa, which is in the greater Waterloo area, to fund their drug habit. And they were eventually caught and arrested for it. I'm looking at the mugshot of Montana Gunhus and his girlfriend Paula Backroney right here, and... Uh, Neither of them look very good, especially for their age. And Paula Backroney, I think, was like 34, and she looks like she's approaching 50. But, yeah, that's what meth will do to you. Anyway, they uh, were arrested back then, and Montana did not have any idea what was eventually going to come to him, both bad and good. See, Montana got beaten really, really badly at Isle Waterloo, but he ended up a fairly rich man as a result of it, and it all came from yet another case of thievery. So about uh, two years and a few months after his 2018 arrest, we're now in uh, January 2021, Montana Gunhus was at Isle Waterloo, remember that's now a Caesars property, but they had not yet converted their rewards program to Caesars Rewards. They were still using their rewards program that they had before, which is called the Fan Club. And any points you earned in that rewards 
club was called Fan Club Points. So Gunhus was in Isle Waterloo and he saw a card sitting inside of an empty slot machine where the previous player at that machine accidentally left their player's card behind, which happens all the time. Even I've done it before. So he pulled it out and took a look and it belonged to a woman. Her last name was Williams. I don't know what her first name was. And being the thief that he was and still is, Montana thought, hmm, I wonder if there's anything I can do with this card. So he wondered if maybe he could spend the fan club points that were sitting on the card. Figured that she must have earned some because she was just playing a slot machine. I'm not sure how he did this without showing any ID. In fact, the card was in a woman's name. But he went around Isle Waterloo and spent about $100 in fan club credits from the card. Now, these credits belong to this woman, Williams, not to him, and he was stealing her points. There's no question about it. In fact, he does not even deny that he did this. It's not clear where he spent them, how he spent them, or how he was able to do it without ID. I do notice that some Caesars properties are kind of lax with checking ID sometimes when I spend my own rewards credit, so it's not hard to believe that Montana was able to do this. In fact, maybe he was familiar with the property and where they don't ask for ID. Whatever it was, he definitely spent $100 of her fan club credits from the card. Now, Ms. Williams was still on property at the time and noticed a short time later that she had $100 of fan club credits missing. So she told her husband, whose name is Demond Jamal Williams, he was 44 at the time, and they both went to security and said, what happened to our points? So... Security said, okay, well, let's pull up the machine where you were last playing, because they figured out pretty quickly that she left her card there, and of course the immediate suspicion was that someone grabbed the card and spent the points. So security said, okay, well, simple solution to this, we'll look up the machine where you were last playing, we have that information, and then we'll look at the video at that time and see if someone swiped the card. So they did that, and they saw very clearly that a man took the card out and walked off with it. So now they've said, all right, well, all we have to do is walk around the property and hopefully this man is still here and we can question him and figure this out. Well, this is when the first mistake was made. Security should have told Mr. and Mrs. Williams that they're going to go investigate and then on their own went to go look for uh, Montana Gunhus and uh, question him. But instead, they brought Demond Williams along for the search, which was mistake number one. You, you don't bring the victim of the theft along with you when you're searching for the perpetrator. But they did. They walked around the casino to try to find where Montana Gunhus was, and he hadn't left yet. So they found him, and they started questioning him. Well, Demond Williams was sitting there just getting furious. Just absolutely furious. He's looking at Montana, going, that motherfucker, he stole my wife's credits. What the hell? And, you know, maybe they're not going to do anything to him. And fuck this guy. Like, he was getting really, really pissed. So while Montana was being questioned by security, Williams decided to take the matter into his own hands 
and came up behind Montana Gunhus and punched him really hard and knocked him to the ground. But that wasn't enough. In the next 25 seconds after Gunhus hit the ground, Demond Williams punched and kicked him 15 times and caused major damage to his facial structure and blinded him permanently in one eye. This is all right in front of security. This wasn't later on in the parking lot or elsewhere on property. This is while Montana Gunhus was being questioned by security, Demond Williams decided to just attack him. So he knocked him down from behind and then punched and kicked him 15 times in 25 seconds. You may wonder, why did security not stop this? I mean, 25 seconds is a pretty long time if it's happening right in front of security's face. Why didn't they pull Williams off immediately? Well, would you believe that Isle Waterloo had a no-intervention policy regarding fighting between patrons. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Could you imagine that any Caesar's property would have such a policy where patrons can attack one another and security won't intervene? <laughs> That's insane. But they claim that was their policy. Anyway, given the major damage that Montana Gunhus took from this attack, he sued Isle Waterloo, and he sued them for two reasons. Number one, they let the angry Demond Williams come along with them during their investigation rather than leaving him behind and then telling him later what they found. And number two, when Williams attacked him and started beating him up, they just let him do it. So on October 31st, 2022, Nearly two years after the incident, a jury ruled on the case and a jury awarded Montana Gunhus a pretty large sum of money from Isle Waterloo. One hundred billion dollars. No, but it was more than one million dollars. He got $1.732 million from this jury trial, which just concluded a few days ago. Now, I'll try to claim, number one, that this whole thing was actually Montana Gunhus's fault because he stole these fan club credits and that he was being attacked by another patron because he stole from that patron. So the whole thing was his fault said the lawyer for Isle Waterloo named Mark Thomas. And they said that they did not make a mistake by bringing Williams along, Demond Williams, because he wasn't acting like a threat, they claim. They said he was acting normally, acting very calm, and that they had no reason to believe he would suddenly attack Montana Gunhus like this. And that the reason they didn't stop the beating was that they have a no-intervention policy and they claimed that this no-intervention policy is standard for similarly-sized properties in the Midwest, which I don't really believe. I don't believe that most other properties in the Midwest, casino properties, also have a no-intervention policy when one guest brutally attacks another, regardless of the reason. They also tried to claim that at the very least, Montana Gunhus had something known as comparative liability. Now, what is that? That is a legal concept where the plaintiff has to share some blame for what occurred. And if it is decided that there was comparative liability on the part of the plaintiff, 
then a percentage is determined and the damages that are determined by the court are then reduced to where the plaintiff only gets the percentage that he was not liable. So for example, if it was determined that Montana Gunhis had 33% comparative liability in this situation, then whatever the court determined the damages were, he would only be eligible to receive 67% of whatever the damages are because a third of it was determined to be his fault. That's what uh, that's how they use comparative liability to determine damages or in part to determine damages, but I still haven't explained what that is. Comparative liability is where the plaintiff is said to share some blame. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I walked up to a really big guy at a bar, just a complete stranger, and I went up to him and said, you know what? You're a pussy. Your girlfriend is hideous. And in fact, I know you are a bitch who won't do anything about the fact that I'm saying this. And then because I provoked him like this, then the guy attacks me and causes me a lot of harm, and then I sue him. Well, I could win that lawsuit because just because I say things like that does not give him the right to brutally attack me and cause me major bodily harm. However, his attorneys could claim that I had comparative liability because I instigated the fight in the first place by going up to a stranger and taunting him and basically saying that I know he's not going to do anything about my insults, which then incited him to attack me. So then, even if it were to be determined that the defendant were to be liable there, if it was said that I had some liability as well, then whatever I would normally win in damages would be reduced based upon the percentage of liability I was said to have. So let's say they said that I had 40% liability in this, then I would only get 60% what I would otherwise get. That's how comparative liability works. It's very commonly used when assigning percentages to fault in auto accidents. So sometimes in a multi-car accident, they will determine the uh, comparative liability of uh, the plaintiff and the defendant. So sometimes uh, the plaintiff, even if he is in the right that he should be owed some money that the defendant uh, harmed him in some way in the auto accident, he may have been somewhat at fault as well. So that is often used when it comes to car accidents, but it's it's also used uh, in other settings where there's uh, civil damages that are being assessed. So Isle was claiming that Gunhus had, at the very least, comparative liability here because he set off the whole chain of events by stealing the rewards credits, or I guess the fan club credits. So therefore, he should not be entitled to 100% of the damages because the only reason this all happened is because he committed a crime against Demond Williams' wife. I think that's a reasonable claim because it wasn't like Williams just attacked him out of nowhere. It wasn't that Williams attacked him because they uh, had a few words there. It was that Montana Gunhus actually stole from DeMond Williams' wife. And once he was identified as the thief by security, then Williams just freaked out and attacked him. And keep in mind, Williams is not the one being sued here. It was Isle Waterloo that was being sued 
for allowing this whole thing to happen, for the mistakes they made in the whole matter. But can any fault be given to the plaintiff, Montana Gunn, who's here, since he's the one who initially started this whole thing by stealing in the first place? Well, the jury said no. The jury did not buy that and said that he actually had no comparative liability. Furthermore, the jury did not buy any of the other arguments that Isle made. The jury did not feel it was appropriate to bring the angry Demond Williams along during the investigation, nor did they think it was acceptable that they had this no-intervention policy that once uh, Demond Williams knocked him down as they were interrogating Gunhus, they should have pulled him off immediately, not just stood there and, and watched him get beaten up. So they didn't like any of these claims from Isle, and Isle lost the case very badly, and that's why they were forced to pay $1.732 million to Montana Gunhus, who seems like a career criminal to me. So, ironically, he got hurt because he stole from someone. He basically stole from the wrong person because he stole from the wife of a, an angry dude who was willing to beat him up for it. But then that got him $1.732 million from the casino. He did not sue Williams, at least not yet. I don't know if Williams has any money. But Williams was criminally charged with willful injury causing serious injury. And he's currently the subject of a bench warrant after missing a court date over this back in August of 2022. I'm guessing that Williams just left. I think he bounced. I think he may even be out of state at this point because he probably knows that he attacked Montana Gunhus enough to where he caused serious injury. I mean, he has his face permanently messed up and he can't see out of one eye now permanently. So that's a pretty major attack. And I think he's afraid that he'll spend some serious time in prison for it. So rather than face up to that, I'm guessing he just left the state and figures they probably won't extradite him for this. So I think that's probably why he missed the court date on in, in August of 2022. So how do I feel about the ruling that Isle was not uh, entitled to have Montana Gun has assigned any kind of comparative liability. Well, of course, I don't have any kind of legal expertise, but in my amateur legal opinion, I think that was wrong. I think this is a perfect example of where comparative liability should apply. So let's look at a few things here. First of all, this beating did not occur at the hands of any aisle employee. This was done by a third party. So right away, uh, you have a situation where Isle's liability is already in question. Now, this doesn't have to do with comparative liability. I'm just saying in general, it's already in question how much liability they have when an unrelated third party attacked uh, Montana Gunhus and when the third party attacked him because of a theft that he actually committed. This wasn't a wrongly suspected theft. This was an actual theft that Montana Gunhus admitted that he did. There's no question that he stole those fan club credits. Uh, that's... Uh, been admitted to the entire time. So Demond Williams did attack the guy who stole his wife's fan club credits. So while I'm not condoning a savage beating over $100 theft of credits, uh, I do have to say that Montana Gunhus did cause a lot of his own problems. If you steal from someone 
and then the husband of the person you stole from sees you and beats you up, I don't think you're really deserving of that much sympathy. You shouldn't be stealing from people in the first place. And this will happen. If you steal from the wrong person, uh, you may run into someone who's pissed off and, uh, and, and really beats you for it. So that's what happened here. And I'm not saying that Williams should have been given carte blanche to beat him up. And of course, this case wasn't against Williams. This was against Isle, who did make two major mistakes in number one, not intervening. That's the biggest mistake. And number two, bringing Williams along. He just shouldn't have been along for this. That's just not the right protocol. You, you don't bring along the victim when you're trying to find uh, the perpetrator, especially because Williams could not have added anything to the whole situation with bringing him along. It's not like he witnessed something and they wanted him to point out the person that had done it. Uh, Williams didn't witness anything. Security found this on their surveillance tapes and then they went to go find the person who was pictured there. So they didn't need Williams for anything. So they just brought him along uh, for I don't know what reason and then this happened. So that was a mistake and then the non-intervention was a disaster. That was a huge mistake and it's shocking that they allow that. So I do support some sort of penalty against Isle Waterloo for that part, for both of those things. However, I have to say that Montana Gunhus definitely had comparative liability because he committed a crime to touch this whole thing off. The only reason he got beaten up was because he committed a crime against the wife of the person who beat him. And that can't just be ignored. He definitely should have had liability in that he committed a crime against the person who attacked him. And he had just committed that a short time beforehand. So while I don't think that he should have gotten nothing, because Isle definitely was uh, negligent in two major areas, you can't just say that Gunhus was innocent here. You can't say that he didn't contribute to this whole thing. I, I mean, that really is the whole point of why they have comparative liability. That's the, the whole reason for that legal concept. And it has other names. Like it, It's also known as uh, comparative negligence. It's also known as contributory negligence. It depends on which state and which way it's being applied. Like I don't feel that Gunn has had negligence here. That, that wouldn't be the right way to describe it. You wouldn't say that uh, he had any kind of negligence because he intentionally stole these credits. But I can say he had comparative liability. And the reason he had liability is he committed a crime against another patron of the casino. And when you knowingly commit a crime against another patron of the casino, then you at the very least have some fault if that patron then retaliates against you. Now, if a patron retaliates against you for the suspicion of a crime you didn't commit, that's a different story. But he committed it and he admits it. So how can he not be partially liable for this? So I think this judgment should have been reduced based upon that. In fact, if this were up to me, first of all, I don't know about this 1.732 million. That I know he took some major injuries there, but still, I mean, this happened after he stole. But putting that aside, I would say he had at least 50% comparative liability in this one because he actually committed a crime, which is actually worse than the example I gave, the hypothetical where I walk up to some big guy in a bar and insult him and taunt him until he punches me. At, at least there I haven't committed a crime. I'm just being an asshole. In this case, he committed a crime. He committed a crime on property against another customer, and then the customer beat him up. So, yeah, the casino messed up, but I don't see why he was ruled to have zero comparative liability. 
I mean, if he has zero comparative liability here, then when would someone have comparative liability? It just doesn't make sense to me. So I think that was an incorrect ruling. I'm wondering if uh, they will appeal, especially because of this comparative liability issue. I think uh, perhaps the law was incorrectly applied here, which is exactly why appeals can be successful. Some people don't understand the way appeals work. An appeal is not a complete rehearing of a case. It's not just, well, I don't like the way this one went, so let's have a second shot at it. An appeal is basically having portions of it reconsidered because you feel the law was applied incorrectly. And I think that the comparative liability part probably was applied incorrectly. I will admit I'm no expert on Iowa law, but I would have to guess that this probably should have been ruled that there was uh, comparative liability. I think this is that I think this comparative liability part was decided by the jury and not the judge, and that may have been the problem. I'm not sure what the judge can do about it if the jury comes to the wrong conclusion here. But I'm pretty shocked that there was zero that was determined on the part of Gunhus. So, with it all said and done, yes, Gunhus has uh, been beaten pretty badly. Probably going to have a messed up face the rest of his life. Maybe he can pay for plastic surgery, though, now. And... Blind out of one eye, I don't know if that can ever be fixed, but he does have uh, $1.7 million, or he will soon, unless this gets appealed. But I think he'll get something. Even if he gets uh, it reduced, he should get something substantial. And all for being a scumbag piece of shit thief who admittedly stole from an innocent woman who left her card in a slot machine. Think of all that happened just because that woman left that card there. If she had just pulled her card out of the machine, none of this would have occurred. Montana would still be a broke meth head. And DeMond Williams would not be a wanted man. And Isle would not have a judgment against them for $1.732 million. Isn't that interesting? How just such a minor thing like leaving your card behind can have such a major impact on so many people and even a corporation. The most shocking thing to me in this whole matter, though, is not about the comparative liability situation. It's the fact that they had a non-intervention policy. How is that even possible? I would have never guessed that was even remotely possible. I thought that's the whole point of security there, is to make sure that other people do not harm you. Otherwise, why have security? It's just to protect the casino? Like I, I never thought that was the only purpose they're there. I was always sure that if an attack occurred at a casino in front of security, that security would stop it. How do they just stand there? I have seen videos before where security does just stand there when someone gets attacked, so maybe it's not that surprising. That's pretty bad. I would think that it's definitely something that a customer can expect if they're playing in a casino, that security is there to protect them from others looking to cause them harm. Security can't be everywhere at once, but if they witness you being attacked, that it is their duty to stop it. Apparently not at Isle Waterloo. I have to imagine they've changed their policy since then. Pretty interesting story, though. Moving on, a Massachusetts man has pled guilty 
to illegal sports betting and extortion in what is a very old school sort of sports betting operation. Bookies in general are much less relevant these days because of the availability of online betting. And I'm not just talking about legal online betting. I'm talking about even sites like Bet Online or Heritage Sports, uh, one of several sites that uh, you can bet on in the U.S. even though it's not legal. So it's really not that necessary anymore to have a bookie if you want to bet sports, whereas in the past, before these online sports books existed, you would have to have a local bookie if you did not live in Nevada and wanted to bet on sports. Now, not only is sports betting legalized in so many states around the country, but even if it's not in your state, you can bet on one of these illegal books. But somehow, people are still betting with bookies, but usually when they're betting with bookies, it resembles these online sports books in that you are using an online interface. So there is a bookie involved who gives you credit and then either pays you once a week if you're up or they expect you to pay them at the same time of the week if you're down. There's like some day of the week selected where you settle. But you're actually placing your bets through an online portal. And the online portal doesn't actually handle any money. It's basically just to post lines and process whether you've won or lost and then maintain the figure of whether you owe them or they owe you. And then the actual money movement is done between you and the bookie. So the bookies that exist these days almost all do it this way. It's very uncommon to have an old school bookie who you call up and say, hey, hey, give me... uh, 300 bucks on the Jets tonight. Okay. Yep. So, yeah, line minus six. Okay. 300 bucks. All right. I'll settle with you on Monday. Like, it doesn't work like that anymore. But apparently, in a few places, it still does. So, a Massachusetts man named Lonnie Hilson, who's 59, of course, it's an older guy, has pled guilty and sentenced to jail in connection with running what they call a large-scale illegal sports betting operation according to Attorney General Mara Healy. He was charged with organizing and promoting gambling, registration of bets, use of the phone for gambling, conspiracy to register bets, and attempted extortion. Mm. I bet you're wondering about the extortion. Now, you might think with pleading guilty to so many charges, especially extortion, that he's going to be in prison for quite some time. Maybe, what, 10 years, at least eight years? No. Judge Patrick Hagen sentenced Hilson to only serve one year in the Massachusetts House of Correction with three years of probation. That's it. He got off pretty easily. Mara Healy, the attorney general, said the defendant ran an illegal and predatory criminal enterprise that pushed bettors into debt and tried to extort an undercover police officer for money. We'll get to that shortly. We are grateful to our partners in law enforcement for their assistance in bringing this defendant to justice and shutting down this operation. So he was indicted in December 2018. The Massachusetts State Police Special Service Section and the Attorney General's Gaming Enforcement Division into organized crime 
they, uh, I guess, were had been investigating him and uh, indicted and charged him. There were 10 other people charged as part of the operation. And this really was a family operation. You think Hilson's old at 59 to be doing this? Uh, his mother and father were also part of the operation, and they were charged as well. <laughs> How old are they? I mean, he's 59. So what, his, his parents were like like 90 or something? And they, they, they're running an illegal bookmaking operation along with him? Like, I don't know, maybe he learned from his dad, but can you imagine if these old fogies <laughs> were like 90 who you're dealing with? How strange is that? I mean, maybe they were young when they had him, but let's say they were 20. That still puts them around 80. Crazy. I, w- I wish I could see the age of his parents. The whole thing that happened with the extortion involved someone who was an undercover officer that was trying to see what would happen if he lost and then didn't pay. So what happened was that this uh, undercover officer uh, fell in the hole there. And of course, uh, he was betting as part of the investigation and then just didn't pay. And then it's not clear about the details, but there was some sort of extortion going on where there was some sort of threats that were attached to him not paying. I'm not sure if they were violent threats or or threats of another kind, but there was some sort of extortion going on when this undercover officer would not pay. This whole thing was done on purpose. They they had this officer sign up with the guy and then bet and then wait till he had a losing week and then refused to pay and then uh, waited to see if they'd get threatened in some way, and I guess he was. So that was part of the indictment as well. That's where the attempted extortion was. It doesn't say anything about uh, attempted extortion through force or through threats, so it it may not have been violent, but it it was some sort of extortion. It could have even been, okay, we're going to tell your neighbors and you tell your wife and we're going to post on the internet that you're a deadbeat. Like like any of that would still qualify because it's them uh, threatening some sort of consequences if, if he doesn't pay this money. So anyway, apparently this was being run out of their homes. They did not have any office doing this. This was just something that was uh, being run from Lonnie Hilson's home and his parents' homes. And uh, he only took the bets over the phone. So nobody was placing these bets on those third-party sites. This was not an internet operation at all. This was an old-school telephone betting operation. I mean, that just doesn't exist anymore. There was a search warrant at more than eight residences, two businesses, five vehicles, and almost a dozen bank accounts. And investigators recovered betting slips, gaming ledgers, paperwork related to illegal gaming, parlay cards, and tens of thousands of dollars in cash. Yeah, of course they found records because they must be doing this all on paper. I mean, this really must be like an old school operation where they probably weren't even using computers to keep track of all this. It really sounds like these were people that just never got with the times with the illegal bookmaking and just were doing it the same way they did back in the mid-90s and before. I don't know how long they've been at this, but uh, the fact that his parents were involved kind of makes me think that his parents probably did this way back when, and he was just continuing the family business with his now super old parents. Like, what was their function there? (laughs) 
I want to know what the parents were doing. I want to know exactly what his mom and dad were doing. Like, what could they do? How would they be valuable in this operation? Like, I guess maybe they're still sharp. Maybe they're not that old. Maybe maybe that's what I'm missing. Maybe they're like 80 and they still they're still very sharp. But otherwise, like, like how would you ever like a 90 year old who's useful in this sort of thing? They're not going to scare anybody. They're not going to threaten anybody. They're not good to assign to doing any kind of uh, paperwork or record keeping or taking the bets because you got to think that they're probably uh, now not the same as they were mentally when they were younger, so they could make mistakes. If I were running a bookmaking operation, I wouldn't want a 90-year-old working for me. Can you imagine, like, if his mom is calling up threatening people? Oh, Sonny, if, if you don't pay up, I'm going to come down and hit you with my cane. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. You, you do this. You don't pay up. I'm going to be down there. I'm going to bite you with my dentures. It really hurts. You don't know how much it hurts until dentures bite you. Then you're going to really regret the day you didn't pay. You better pay up, Sonny. I've been doing this since 1956. <laughs> what a weird story. I wouldn't even have covered this on this show if it wasn't for the old school angle and the parents angle. Uh, like Bookies get busted all the time. Uh, it's not really big news unless it's like a really big operation. I don't think this is a huge operation. They call it a large scale operation. I, I don't think it really was. I, I think that this was just an old school phone betting operation that they got wind of and busted. And it was like a family affair. Wow. A 59 year old and his parents. Hmm. Also, uh, another reason I think the parents did this before and may have taught him is that why would someone involve their parents? If it was their idea, if, if they got into this themselves, like how do you approach your super old parents and say, Hey, can you help me with this? 90-year-old mom, can you help me with this? Like, like, who would ever approach their parents and say that? Who would even want to risk your parents getting in trouble for this? It's one thing to risk yourself, but to go risk your, like, super old parents with your own gambling scheme. I, you have to think this was something that's been in the family for a long time. All right, well, speaking of illegal gambling, three states are looking to crack down on a weird NFT online casino ownership scheme. And just when you think you've seen everything that NFTs can be used for, you learn something new. So there is an NFT called Slotty. Not slutty, but Slotty. S-L-O-T-I-E. Slotty. And apparently Slotty was being used to raise money for online casinos. So the gimmick was you'd buy NFTs, you'd buy Slotty NFTs. They minted uh, 10,000 of them. And then when you'd buy these NFTs, then not only would you just own the NFT, but it had utilization in that you also now owned a piece of the slotty casinos. And by the way, this is all based out of the country of Georgia, not the state of Georgia, but the country of Georgia. That's where the slotty NFTs originated. So it's, it's going to be hard to actually enforce very much against them, but uh, I'll get to that shortly. But anyway, they, uh, 
apparently were marketed in that you would be buying the rights to a passive share of profits in the casinos. So you wouldn't have any kind of control over the way the casinos are operated. But uh, when you would buy these slotty NFTs, the more you had and the rarer of the NFTs would also affect how much you would own, then uh, you would have a certain amount of passive income that would be sent to you I guess every month or so. I, I don't know the exact uh, time frame, but at, at some regular basis, you would be sent profits based upon your ownership. So certain NFTs would be considered very rare and a lot more expensive, and those would get you a bigger piece. The NFTs that were not as rare, they would get you a smaller piece. And of course, the more you owned of them, that would also increase your ownership as well. But again, you didn't have any kind of actual control. This would just be getting you uh, passive income that you, you're entitled to X percentage of the profits. Then they had a sub-scheme to this, which reminds me a bit of Zed Run and how you could breed horses. Remember on Zed Run, the uh, NFT horse racing game that I got involved with? I'm not involved with running it, but I play it. And you would buy these NFT horses, but then you could breed horses and create new horses by breeding. So this was uh, NFTs could create other NFTs, essentially. So they had something similar here, except uh, what this would do is it would create what's known as slotty junior NFTs, which would double the profits paid to owners of slotty NFTs. Of course, the breeding then would uh, cost uh, additional money as well. The slotty NFTs also allegedly issued tokens called uh, Watts, and this is on the Ethereum blockchain. And they claimed that each slotty NFT generated 10 watts per day. And that investors owning two slotty NFTs and 1,800 watts then were able to mint a new NFT, which were the slotty juniors. So the, it was kind of a way to encourage people to purchase at least two slotty NFTs and then own them for a long enough time to where they generate 1,800 of these Watt tokens, which then allows them to make a slotty junior NFT, <laughs> which then supposedly would uh, double the profits they would be getting. So as you can imagine, some states had a problem with this for various reasons. Uh, first of all, people were owning and receiving profits from illegal casinos that were operating online. So that's already a problem. Then they were also alleging that Slotty was illegally and fraudulently dealing the NFTs and Slotty Jr. NFTs. They said that Slotty was concealing its assets and liabilities, the anticipated use of capital, the identity of the partner in casinos, so they wouldn't say exactly which casinos that you had a piece of. And, and, uh, and also any kind of risks that uh, anyone investing would be taking on. So th these are securities violations, by the way, that uh, are being alleged here that I'm describing. And they also said that these violated state registration laws. Now, the states I'm talking about were the Alabama Securities Commission, the Kentucky Department of Financial Institutions, and the Texas State Securities Board. So these are all securities matters that these three states are going after uh, slotty NFTs. 
So what can they do about this, though? Because, again, Slotty exists in Georgia, so they can't exactly fly to Georgia and uh, arrest people or really do anything to them. They have uh, filed coordinated enforcement actions to just stop sales of these NFTs. And I'm not sure exactly what way they're doing this, but they're attempting to stop the sales. They're also trying to warn investors that this is illegal. So that's uh, kind of interesting that this was being sold. I would never trust this, you know, ignoring the securities violation aspect of the whole thing. But I would never trust that I'm getting a piece of profits from mysterious online casinos and that the NFTs entitle me to that. There's so many ways you can get screwed here. And in fact, who knows, these casinos may not even exist. This may just be a fake thing you're purchasing when in reality all you're really doing is uh, sending the owners of the, the the creators of the NFTs uh, a lot of money to purchase rights to this passive income which is actually being generated by the NFT sales. So it, it's kind of possibly a form of a Ponzi scheme that you're getting paid the quote passive income from other people who are buying these slotty NFTs. I think they would have stated which casinos were involved here if you really did have a a piece of them. Especially out of Georgia. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> anything from that area, you got to really, really be suspicious because there's so many scams coming from that area of the world. I don't know why it's only these three states going after it, but that's apparently what's happening. Well, let's talk about something else related to online betting. Let's talk about online election betting. Now, you probably remember a segment I did in August about Predictit. Predictit has been around since 2014, and it is a legal betting site on election results. Not just elections, but also things kind of adjacent to elections. But you can't bet on things like sports or or anything along those lines. You can only bet on something political. It's just not always uh, exact elections. Sometimes it's uh, overall results of elections or uh, how many seats uh, a party has in the House or the Senate after an election, something along those lines. And I've been using it for several years now, and it's not based in the U.S. It is based in New Zealand at a university, at uh, University of... uh, Victoria Wellington, and I talked about how in August that they received a letter from the CFTC that told them that they are not going to be allowed to operate after February 2023. The CFTC is the Commodity Future Trading Commission, and in 2014, they told Predictit that they can operate and they won't be subject to any kind of enforcement action. They were given a no-action letter, meaning we're not saying you're legal, but we're promising that for the moment we're not going to come after you. So you can do what you're doing according to the following rules that we're setting for you, and we promise we're not going to touch you unless we revoke 
the no action letter, then we'll touch you, but we'll give you some time to close shop. That's, that's basically what the no action letter is. And we discussed this back in August. If you want to hear the whole segment, you can go back. I forget which exact episode it was, but I, I had a long discussion about this. And my conclusion was that Predictit was operating for profit and they weren't supposed to. I don't know that for sure, but that was my belief from years of using Predictit and noticing that their fees were super high. And I was shocked when I saw that one of the conditions was that they were only able to operate nonprofit, that it was supposed to be operating for uh, educational and research purposes and that the only fees they could charge would be ones that would be enough to recoup their expenses, but nothing more than that. So I I was sure they were making bank. And I think that uh, the government caught on and said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to soak U.S. citizens like this. Uh, We said you're not supposed to operate for profit. So that's it. You've lost your ability to do this, so we'll give you the time to close up shop. They give them six months, and uh, in February 2023, they're going to be closing. And I I placed some bets for this upcoming election in five days, but that's probably going to be the last bets I ever placed there, and whatever I have left after the election, I'm going to cash out, and it'll be that. So that's predicted, but this is not a segment about predicted. This is a segment about a similar site called Kalshi, K-A-L-S-H-I. Now, before I get to Kalshi, I should explain on Predictit that the way you're betting is not the same way you would bet sports on something like Bet Online or Heritage or one of these other sports betting sites you're used to, or even the legal sports betting sites. On those sites, you go on, you say, I want to bet this much money at these odds on this team, and then you put it down and they tell you what you're going to get paid. Uh, here what you're doing is you're actually buying a position for an amount of money between $0.01 and $0.99 per share. And then if the position comes true, meaning that whatever you're predicting happens, then it becomes worth a dollar. And if it turns out not to be true, it ends up being worth zero. So when it settles, it either settles as one or zero dollars, that is. And then you made the profit or loss depending on what you bought it at. And you can also bail out in the middle if you can find others to uh, to buy your shares uh, before it is settled. So if you let's say you bought a position at uh, 20 cents and it's gone up to 70 cents because it becomes much more likely to happen. And you say, you know what, I'm not going to wait for the election because maybe I'll get screwed. I'm happy with my profit here. So then you sell it at 70 cents and you already made a profit there. So you don't have to wait for it to actually resolve. You can sell it in the middle. You can even sell it at a loss if you just want to bail out and get something. So it, it really is almost like trading the stock market, except you're trading on predictions for elections. So that's the way predicted worked. And that's also the way that Calshi works. So Kalshi, if you go to their website, Kalshi.com, K-A-L-S-H-I, it claims to be a beta. It says Kalshi beta. It says, take a position, trade on world events with event contracts. And uh, you can bet on a number of things, such as uh, the number of uh, airport delays and cancellations, what the gas prices are going to be at the end of the week, uh whether a hurricane makes landfall in Miami, all these different events you can bet on in the same way that you bet on politics on predicted. It's the same concept where you're buying a position between one cent and 99 cents, which will either either resolve to $1 or zero at the end of the whole thing. But the problem is that what they really, really want to do 
is offer politics. They really want to offer political betting the same way Predicted does. And they are attempting to get permission to do this, just as Predicted did. And it's not looking all that promising at the moment, even though there are some people in Washington who support the idea. Keep in mind that Predicted got its permission to operate as a not-for-profit site. And Kalshi is not making that claim. Predicted's whole model was based upon something back in 1993 that University of Iowa did on a much smaller scale, which was if we can have people put their money where their mouth is regarding how they think elections are going to go, it's going to be a very good prediction model when you add all the people together of the likelihood of something actually happening. Because it's one thing to say, oh, I think this is going to happen when you have no skin in the game, but when you have to put real money on it, then people will, as a group, collectively create a model, even you know, unwillingly. They're not doing this to, to make a model, but this makes this results in a model that can accurately give you odds on the results of elections because people are putting real money on it, so they're, they're doing their own research and the group kind of collectively comes together to, to put together a, a pretty realistic uh, picture of the odds of these election results. So this was studied in 1993 at the University of Iowa within the university itself, and they were granted the right to do this by the CFTC as long as they don't make money, and then predicted, expanded upon this, and made this uh, available to all Americans. And uh, same concept with a max bet that was the same as University of Iowa's adjusted for inflation, and that they had a much wider group of people that they would be dealing with than University of Iowa in 93, but still the same rules applied, including that they couldn't make money. So as I said, that has been revoked and in February 2023 predicted will be gone. Well, Kalshi is not claiming that they are doing this for educational or research purposes, like predicted did and University of Iowa did back in 93. Kalshi is admitting that they're a business and they just want to include political betting as part of what they are offering. So Kalshi is asking the CFTC to sign and enact a plan that would allow political betting. And the CFTC is actually considering this. Now, you might wonder, why would they even consider this after they've already told predict it no and get the hell out of the market? Why would they even consider granting it to a company that's admitting that they are going to be doing it for profit? Well, I can answer that. Kalshi is an American company. And Predictit is based in New Zealand. So that's the first problem, is that uh, the CFTC was pissed off that a foreign company that promised they weren't operating for profit actually was operating for profit. And that's the second part right there, is that Predictit basically lied. Provided what I think is true, then Predictit lied and got the permission eight years ago based upon false claims. Oh, we're not going to operate for profit. Well, if they're found that they really are operating for profit, then the CFTC is like, F you. That's not what we said you can do. Now, get the hell out. You're not going to be part of this anymore. We're taking this away. It's kind of like uh, you let your kid 
go out on Friday and Saturday nights and stay out till two in the morning, but under the condition that he does not drink alcohol because he's 16 years old. And he promises you he's not going to drink alcohol. And then you find out that he was drinking alcohol when he was out. So then you say, okay, well, uh, I'm not letting you go out till 2 a.m. anymore. That's it. I let you go out because you promised me you're not going to drink alcohol. Uh, now that I know you've drank alcohol, I'm not letting you go out until 2 a.m. anymore. So it's kind of like that, that they violated the rule. So now they're getting grounded, but grounded for good. They are considering a more honest version of this. Honest meaning that Kalshi's admitting that this is a business idea and that they're going to make money from this, but at least it's a U.S. company. Several influential businessmen are behind this. And in fact, uh, Intercontinental Exchange, which owns the New York Stock Exchange, said that Kalshi's political betting is not really gambling. That it's more uh, just people investing in political races that they uh, feel are going to win or lose. That it's it's similar to investing as far as they see. It's not really gambling. Sacramento Kings co-owner Vivek Ranadive has also said that he supports Kalshi being able to offer political gambling. However... There are some concerns about allowing Kalshi to offer this and not the same ones about Predicted. Remember, Predicted was uh, the concern seemed to be that uh, they weren't operating for the reasons they claimed they were and that they were making money when they weren't supposed to be. Here, the concerns are that this is going to basically be bad optics. And they, the critics of Kalshi are claiming that we already have enough issues with people doubting elections these days. And some of them pointed to Donald Trump claiming that he didn't really lose the election in 2020 and that it was stolen from him. And some people are afraid that if there's legalized political betting on something like Kalshi, that there will be even more distrust about election results. Maybe people will think that elections were rigged in order to allow certain people to win. I think that's kind of foolish unless people have very high limits on there, which they might. I don't know what the limits are going to be. At uh, Predicted, you can only do $850 per bet maximum, but maybe Kalshi wants to offer a lot more. So that's one concern. And by the way, it wasn't just Trump who was election denying. If you think back uh, even recently, Stacey Abrams, who's running again in Georgia, but the first time around when she lost to Kemp, she uh, claimed that she was the rightful winner and that voter suppression cost her the election, even though she lost by 55,000 votes. So that was an insane claim because there's no way there was so much voter suppression that she lost out on 55,000 votes that would have gone to her instead of her opponent. So uh, it was an absurd claim, but many Democrats were echoing it for a long time. In fact, some of them still say this. So it was not just Trump who was being a sore loser. And in fact, you want to even go back further to 2000, look at all the people who were claiming that Al Gore was the rightfully elected president in 2000 and not George W. Bush. So there's been a lot of sore loserdom on both sides. And I don't like to see it. I don't like to see Republicans doing it. I don't like to see Democrats doing it. But anyway, there's a fear that this is going to cause more suspicion that elections are rigged if there's also betting allowed legally on races. Also, 
there's concerns that these uh, political markets could become too big and become uh, a new form of day trading and also could lead to some form of corruption if there's too much betting on certain candidates. In 2012, there was already an attempt to get something similar allowed. Uh, The CFTC got an application 10 years ago from another company and they denied it. I'm not sure the name of the company, but they denied it saying it was not in the best interest of the public. Also, they felt this was gambling, not investing. Kalshi was aware that they might get the same response, so they got ahead of it and said that they believed that the CFTC misinterpreted the laws and they need to look at it again. And now someone who is working with Kalshi, who used to work with the CFTC, said creating political betting may make some people uncomfortable, but that's not the basis for failing to follow the laws and regulation. That's a a man named uh, Jeff Bandman, who now is working with Kalshi, who was a former employee of the CFTC. I don't know if this is going to be allowed. I'm really thinking that there's not enough support for this. And I am thinking that maybe the optics are just not going to be what the CFTC wants right now, given all the controversy about elections in general, and a lot of people on edge about rigged elections, et cetera, et cetera. Like, does the government really want to say, yeah, sure, we'll allow political betting now? Well, a lot of people think the elections aren't fair. Like, imagine if some people are directly winning money as a result of these elections that some people think are rigged. I mean, that, that, I can see how this would look bad. At the moment, it is looking like the CFTC is going to say no. The CFTC has not officially put out the answer yet, but they're said to be ready to oppose the request from Kalshi. There's also some belief now that uh, the predicted situation was actually accidentally caused by Kalshi trying to get uh, permission to operate and in the political markets. Because some people did wonder why after eight years did the CFTC pop up and go, up, ah, up, ah, you're not following the rules because predicted really hadn't changed. It's been operating the same way since 2014 when they opened. So why after eight years is there suddenly enforcement? And now it is uh, thought that it's possible that the CFTC decided to look more carefully at Predictit when Kalshi sent a letter to the CFTC claiming that an unregistered operator had 29 million contracts during the 2020 election cycle and that this unregistered operator, of course, was Predictit and that made the CFTC realize that Predictit had gotten pretty big and then they looked into them and they revoked that no-action letter. Pratik Chugle, who's a trader and analyst for the Star Spangled Gamblers, whatever that is, uh, but they, he said that Kalshi was the cause of what happened to predict it. He said one of the consequences of Kalshi's legal and regulatory strategy is that they, in effect, force the CFTC's hand in terms of Predictit's no-action letter. What serious university with a good reputation now is in this legal minefield is going to put their brand on the line to do this? Predicted apparently has filed a lawsuit in a district court in Texas to overturn the pulling of the no-action letter. 
but the CFTC then requested a change in jurisdiction to Washington, D.C., and it also filed a motion to dismiss the suit entirely in Texas, and it said the lawsuit is incomplete because the beneficiary is Victoria University, which is not labeled as part of the suit. Time is ticking here. They only have till February 15th before the thing goes down. Kalshi apparently was uh, already trying to get some publicity that they were hoping to be offering political betting. They had a contest in August that was offering a $100,000 prize to anyone who could correctly predict all 435 House races and all 35 Senate race results, which sounds impossible, but it's not as hard as you think because uh, a lot of these are super obvious which way they're going to go. So there's only a handful of these races that are really contested. But it is still pretty hard because, as I said near the beginning of the show, this is going to be likely a big red wave where Republicans do very well in this midterm. So what's going to be hard to predict is where Republicans might score some upsets. Now, you'd be stupid to say that you think the Democrats are going to get some kind of upset. It's, it's pretty unlikely. But the question is, where can Republicans encroach upon former safe or semi-safe Democratic territory, especially in some of these House races? And that's kind of hard to predict. Like in the 2020 election, some of them surprisingly went to Republicans, even though Biden won including, I remember one district that was considered very safe Democratic that went to Republicans in 2020. And that was, again, when Trump lost and a lot of people showed up to the polls to vote against him. So can you imagine with no Trump this time around and with a lot of people really angry about the way things are right now and angry at Biden, what what might happen? So it is pretty hard to do, but you're not actually getting 470 coin flips, right? That would be impossible because most of these are pretty obvious, but there's enough that aren't obvious that it's still very tough to do. I don't think anyone's going to get that 100,000. But apparently this is probably not going to happen. Kalshi says they will challenge the CFTC if the request is denied. It hasn't officially happened yet, but it looks like they are going to have to do this challenge because it looks like the CFTC is probably not going to grant this You know, to be honest, it really is gambling. This investing thing is a loophole. And by the way, I am rooting for this to succeed. I like political betting. I've won in it. I've every every election pretty much I win money from political betting because I'm better at doing it than the average person doing it. I'm not saying I'm the very best, but I'm good enough to where I can overcome even the horrible rake I'm predicted and, and I can win money. So I'm happy to have this. It makes me money, and it's also fun. So I don't want to see this gone. But at the same time, I have to admit what it really is. It is gambling. It's not investing. Investing is actually putting your money into a company, essentially. You're you're buying a piece of it, and then if its value goes up, you make money, and if its value goes down, you lose money. That's what investing is in the very simple sense. And here you're not putting your money into owning anything. You're putting your money into predicting results of a contest, which is exactly like sports betting. So you're not investing 
any more here than you are in betting on uh, the World Series between the Phillies and the Astros. And I don't care which way it's structured. It doesn't matter if it's structured like a traditional sports bet or if it's uh, this stupid thing where you're buying a position between one and 99 cents, which resolves to either a dollar or zero. It's still gambling. I see it as gambling. I tell people I'm doing political betting because that's really what I'm doing. I don't think it should be illegal, but that's what it is. And that's why I never really bought the whole argument from the Poker Players Alliance back in the day that poker is not gambling. I thought that was a very, very weak argument to be using. Because poker is gambling. It is skilled gambling, but it is gambling. Much like election betting is skilled betting, but it is still gambling. I've made money on it, not because I've been lucky. I've made money on it because I'm better at it than the average person doing it. And I'm better enough over the average person to where I've made money. But there's also been some luck with the whole thing. And it is gambling. You're taking incomplete information and you are making a bet based upon the way you think it's going to go. And then there's a lot of X factors that can contribute to your winning or losing. And that's where the luck comes in. It's very similar to sports betting. So while I support it being legalized, I have to understand why they would not make it legalized if they see it the same as gambling and don't want to allow this sort of gambling. So I'm never going to use the argument, oh, this isn't really gambling. This is so terrible. Why is the government doing this? No. My argument is, yes, it's gambling, but you should allow it anyway. Let adults do what they want to do. If they want to do political betting, let them do political betting. I'm not a fan of telling adults, you can't do this with your money. You can't bet on this. You can't bet on that. I I don't like that. I feel it should be regulated and safe, but I don't feel you should tell people they can't do it. But I also don't support trying to legalize something based upon false claims and saying this is not gambling is a false claim. Well, speaking of somebody who gambled when they were not supposed to. Let's talk about Pete Rose. Pete Rose is a legendary baseball player. He is the all-time hits leader in baseball. He should be in the Hall of Fame, but he is not because of his gambling. When he managed the Cincinnati Reds, he was accused of not only gambling on baseball, but also gambling on the Reds. Now, he eventually admitted he did bet on the Reds. He never admitted to betting against the Reds. But even if he's betting on the Reds, that's a big problem because, remember, these are regular games, so it could affect his managing. If he has a bet on a game that he really wants or needs to win, then he could manage the game differently than he would if he did not have a bet on it. So he could put too much importance on a game that really doesn't have massive importance to the team, such as burning a bunch of relief pitchers that you don't want to burn because you have to play the next day because he really feels he has to win the bet. So that's why it's a tremendous problem if a manager is betting on his own team. And there's very strict rules in baseball. You absolutely cannot bet on baseball, even if it's not your own team. You just cannot bet on baseball. And he bet on his own team, the Cincinnati Reds. So he was banned from baseball. And there's a lot of mixed opinions whether he should have been banned from baseball and whether they should have forgiven it at some point and whether he should be in the Hall of Fame because he was a legendary player. 
and it, it feels incomplete to a lot of people to have him not in the Hall of Fame, to not have the all-time hits leader in the Hall of Fame. Pete Rose has uh, continued to gamble ever since this happened. He wasn't uh, scared out of gambling by the whole thing. He continued to gamble. Of course, he can now because he's no longer in baseball. But he has uh, continued to gamble. He has even associated himself with some uh, shady gambling projects, including one that was based out of Mexico. Uh, I've seen that he has been signing autographs in Vegas. I don't know if he's still doing this, but when I used to walk through the Caesars Forum shops in the 2010s, I saw so many different signs about Pete Rose is going to be here tomorrow between such and such hours signing autographs. And uh, Basically, it looked like he would take any work that was given to him that could make him some money based upon his past exploits. So anyway... Uh, I'm not going to really get into the debate whether Pete Rose should be in or out of the Hall of Fame. I, I'm i kind of in the middle on this one. I never had a real strong feeling either way. It's very clear he violated the gambling rules and very blatantly and to bet on the Reds is pretty bad. Uh, he was a, a legendary player. There have been players who've been accused of worse who are in the Hall of Fame, who aren't banned from baseball. And there's a question is, you know, should this punishment be as harsh as it was and should it be holding up uh, 40 years later and these are good questions to be considered it may eventually be overturned but anyway uh, Pete is not running away from his gambling past so not only is he still gambling he's happy to associate himself with gambling as I mentioned and now he's going to be associated with legal gambling so as I mentioned before more and more states are legalizing gambling. And with every passing year, you see more and more states where you can gamble legally on sports. So Ohio is one of them that has allowed legal sports betting, but it is not yet legal in 2022. The allowance of legalized sports betting in Ohio begins on January 1st, 2023, at 12.01 a.m. That is when sports betting markets are allowed to open up in Ohio. So, Hard Rock Casino Cincinnati, remember this is exactly where Pete Rose is famous. This is his team, Cincinnati Reds. The Hard Rock Casino Cincinnati is going to have Pete Rose place the very first bet in Ohio sports betting history on January 1st at 12.01 a.m. when the markets open. I imagine they're going to do this by already having his bet in the system at the time, and then the second it opens, it will automatically place. This will prevent anyone from getting ahead of him. Pete Rose is... Definitely going to be the first person placing the bet. There is some controversy about this, that someone who got in such trouble for doing this when he was managing the Reds would be the one to make the very first bet in Ohio history. Like, how does this make the state look with a guy banned from baseball for what he did? But on the other hand, they do love Pete Rose there in Cincinnati and in Ohio in general. An IRS investigation found that Pete Rose had been betting $8,000 to $10,000 per day on baseball. And remember, this is in the 80s, so 
if you translate it to today's money, it's between 19000 and 24000 per day on baseball. He is now 81 years old, and he will not be able to bet on baseball because there will be no baseball played on January 1st, of course. J- baseball is a sport that exists in the spring, in the summer, and in the early fall, not in the winter. There are three NBA games that day. There is the Milwaukee Bucks versus the Denver Nuggets, and that's the highest profile of the three. Then there will be, on NFL Sunday, there will be 14 NFL games, which will be on uh, January 1st as well, which happens to be a Sunday. So I'm guessing he's probably going to bet on one of the NFL games. I guess it's lucky for them here that the first happened to fall on a Sunday. In December 2021, Governor Mike DeWine signed a bill that legalized the state's sports betting market, but uh, it was not to go into effect until January 1st, 2023, because they had to go through the whole process of licensing and everything else. Sportsbooks that want to operate have until December 2nd this year to have their integrity systems approved by the Ohio regulators. 21 out of 23 mobile betting applicants and 20 out of 27 brick-and-mortar applicants have been approved. And there's also 880 kiosk locations for sports betting. So there's a lot of opportunities to bet sports in Ohio. Illinois has been doing very, very well regarding legalized sports betting. They are now the second largest sports betting market. And the only market ahead of them, you think it's Nevada? No, 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 no. It is New York. Because New York has a much bigger population than Nevada. So even though Nevada is known as the gambling capital of the world... It does not have the largest sports betting market because of the small population. So New York has the biggest market, and Illinois has the second. New Jersey has the third. Ohio is looking to break into that and uh, hoping that they can bring in a lot of tax revenue from all the sports bets that are anticipated being placed. So the, the Hard Rock has tapped Pete Rose for this, of course, as a publicity stunt. This has nothing to do with the government. The government has nothing to say about whether Pete Rose is placing the bets or not. And there, there's no law that would prevent him from doing this. He's not banned from gambling. He's just banned from baseball. So this was a baseball ban. And since he is popular in Ohio, the Hard Rock figured they might as well tap him to do this. And he'll take any work that they will give him. I'm not sure if he still lives in Las Vegas. Maybe he moved back there. Maybe he's just going back there for this event. But yep, Pete Rose is still firing at the age of 81. I think he'll be gambling until the day that he dies. From the 773, Pete Rose's first bet will be the Reds' win total has to be. That's actually a good guess. I don't know if they can offer such props in Ohio, but if they can, that would be a good one. (laughs) That would be a big F you to baseball if he does that. 
and that would be the only way he could bet on baseball on January 1st with no games running on the win total for the Reds, but I think it's going to be a pretty low total because it's a bad team. Okay, well, Tillman Fertitta has done something that wasn't expected. He bought a 6% share of Win Resorts despite owning a completely separate casino in Las Vegas. Now, he does not own any strip casinos, so it's not like he's competing with Win on the Strip. But he does own the Golden Nugget, and people are wondering why would he buy 6% of Win Resorts if he already owns another casino in Las Vegas, which still, in a way, is his competition. The reason people know this is that uh, this had to be made public through a filing with the Security and Exchange Commission because he bought more than uh, 5% of a public gaming corporation in Nevada. So they have to notify state regulators when they do that. Since he bought 6%, he had to make this uh, notification, and this allowed people to find out. You may think 6% is not that big, but this makes him the second biggest individual investor in Wynn Resorts. The only one who has more is Elaine Wynn, who is a co-founder who owns 9% of the company. And the stock price has increased by more than 16% since the news dropped that Fertitta bought 6%. And keep in mind that the share price has been falling. In fact, it fell by 50% since May of 2021. The reason Wynn is struggling, even though casinos are doing very well these days, has to do with Macau. So Wynn was doing very well for quite some time with having their Macau property. In fact, Caesars never got in on this and people laughed at them for it. But maybe Caesars doesn't look so bad anymore because ever since COVID, Macau has struggled. So because of COVID, Wynn has been having issues with their Macau property. There's even new restrictions now in Macau. So it looks like that they're going to continue struggling there. And Wynn reported losses in their most recent quarterly filing of $213 million. So that's why their stock has been falling. It's just people don't have confidence that the Macau thing's going to turn around. That it just China is so obsessed with their zero COVID plan, which is never going to work. So this keeps putting all these uh, restrictions on Macau and it's killing the gaming industry over there. Tillman Fertitta started Landry's in uh, 1980 and then he got into the casino sector in the 2005 when they acquired the chain of Golden Nuggets. Then they sold the online gambling portion of Golden Nuggets to DraftKings in May of 2022. He has wanted a strip property for quite some time and what he ended up doing is he bought uh, $270 million of land. He bought six acres to develop a 43-floor 
Hotel Casino on the Strip, and this is on the southeast corner of Las Vegas Boulevard and Harmon Avenue, which is uh, basically uh, across the street from the Cosmo. Fertitta wants to basically break in over there in, in Center Strip, and he got approval from Clark County to proceed with the project on the same day that he acquired the wind shares. So that's especially strange, right? So on the same day, he gets approval to build this uh, 43-floor hotel casino in Center Strip. And then he buys 6% of the win. Why would he do that? By the way, the development he's going to build is going to cost about $3 billion. He's going to call it Lux. That's L-U-X-E Resort. So why would he then invest in Wynn? It's only about a mile and a half from Wynn, which is further north, but it's still considered the Las Vegas Strip. The Strip itself is kind of considered to go from uh, Resorts World to Mandalay Bay. That's what most people consider the Las Vegas Strip to be. The resorts world is kind of on the fringes, and that's why it's not uh, doing that well. It's one of the reasons it's not doing well. But why would he own 6% now of the win? Why would he buy that on the same day as, as he's building his own strip casino? Well, it's not known for sure, but some believe this was just a way for him to raise money. It is thought that perhaps Fertitta thought that the win stock was undervalued, that it had fallen too much because of the incidents in Macau and that it was going to go back up. So in order to raise money for being able to develop his strip resort, that he would buy the win at what he felt was a depressed price, and then it would go up, and then he would sell at a profit, and then he would raise money that way. So it's not sure that's what he's doing, but some people are theorizing that this had to be the reason why the two occurred on the same day. Because remember, he needed approval from Clark County to even build this thing at all. So once he knew he got the approval, he's like, okay, well, now I'd like to buy the win, which I've had my eye on the whole time. And you may ask, well, why wouldn't he just buy the win anyway if he thought it was undervalued? Well, it's possible he would have uh, wanted to do something else with the money if this was not approved possible this is just all part of the same plan that he wanted to buy these shares of the win he would do this because he wants to raise money for building this uh, hotel casino or at least raise part of the money and if he's not going to be building that hotel casino at the moment then uh, he'll look at uh, using this money for something else but I guess we'll see I guess we'll see what he ends up doing with his six percent of win resorts Speaking of developing resorts, uh, this is not a Las Vegas story, at least not, mostly not a Las Vegas story, but a Chinese developer is accused of bribing a Los Angeles city councilman using casino chips, cash, and hookers in order to get a major project approved in L.A., There's only one reason I'm telling this story, and that's because 
It involves a casino. It involves uh, casino chips. So a Chinese hotel developer whose name is Wei Huang, and he is uh, the owner of Shenzhen New World 1 LLC, and he allegedly gave $1.5 million in bribes to a Los Angeles city councilman in various ways to try to get support for a new 77-story condo and hotel project, which was planned to be the highest skyscraper on the West Coast. It's hard to believe that there are no skyscrapers in L.A. that are taller than 77 stories or in San Francisco, but there is not. You're not going to find one higher than 77 stories in L.A., San Francisco, San Diego, Seattle, Portland, places you might expect there'd be at least one that's 77 stories or higher. There's not. So this would be the highest skyscraper on the West Coast if it were to be built. He is alleged to have given this to former L.A. Councilman Jose Huizar. That's H-U-I-Z-A-R. And a former special assistant for Huizar testified... Uh, earlier this week that the $1.5 million in bribes were made in various ways that, uh, first of all, he would keep giving $10,000 of casino chips to Huizar either on or after trips to Las Vegas. So Huang apparently is a very high-stakes gambler He's a billionaire, so of course he's betting very big. So he'd visit Las Vegas, bet a lot of money, and then he would take some chips home with him to L.A., or if uh, Huizar was with him in Vegas, he would just give it to him there. But uh, he would give Huizar 10000 at a time, and sometimes more, if uh, Huang was winning on his trip, he would sometimes give more than 10000 <laughs> And uh, apparently, Jose Huizar took 20 trips to Las Vegas using these chips that were given to him by Huang. However, the assistant said that Huizar would not go to Las Vegas if Huang was on a losing streak because he figured he wouldn't get that much. <laughs> that he figured that at most he'll get $10,000 and he was hoping to get more. So he was really only wanting to go when Huang was winning. Also, there are claims that on the very first time they did this, that they went to Las Vegas together in 2013, Huang provided prostitutes to Jose Huizar and uh, I guess foot the bill for the prostitutes that uh, Huizar then utilized their services. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want that. Putting aside the whole bribery thing and anything illegal, just ignoring all of that, like if some dude just said, hey, here's some hookers and go to town with them, do what you want. I'm covering the whole thing. I I would say thanks, but no thanks, even if I were single. The whole thing of being with prostitutes kind of grosses me out. 
it's a combination of grossing me out and it just isn't a turn on to know that they're with me because someone's paying them or I'm paying them, whatever. Like it's, it's just uh, to know that's the only reason that they're messing around with me. It, it just wouldn't be appealing. But I know some guys don't care. <laughs> some guys just uh, want the uh, physical gratification. They don't really care about anything else. I'm not saying that every girl I've messed around with I had deep feelings for, but at least I felt that they liked me in some way, that they were wanting to be there and that they were doing this not because they were getting any kind of money. But anyway, apparently, Huizar was given hookers on the first trip. Also, Huizar was apparently being sued for sexual harassment. And a witness in this case claims that a $600,000 transfer was made to Huizar through intermediaries, so it wasn't a direct transfer, but that basically $600,000 was indirectly sent to Huizar as a settlement for the sexual harassment lawsuit. So he, I guess he went to Huang and said, yeah, I'm having a problem here. I'm very distracted by this sexual harassment lawsuit, and this woman wants $600,000 from me. And Huang's like, you know what? I'm a billionaire. I want to get this project done. So I'll find a way to get you the 600000 and uh, just settle with the woman and be done. That's what's alleged. Shenzhen New World, remember that's the company owned by Huang, uh, their attorney Richard Steingard did not deny that Huizar was given private jet trips, pricey meals, and luxury accommodation, as well as $250,000 worth of casino chips. So they're admitting that all this was given to Huizar. Steingard did say that Huang is a high roller and that uh, these things were comped by casinos as he often lost millions of dollars through his gambling and that Huang was just sharing these perks with his guests and the company never asked the politician to do anything of consequence. So basically they're admitting that they gave stuff to Huizar, but just because Huizar was there and he was just sharing good things he got from the casino, whether it was uh, winnings when he was doing well or, or comps when he wasn't doing well. I'll tell you why I immediately don't believe this, aside from the whole story sounding like BS. Like, we know this is BS, but let's, let's even say we're considering this being true. A big problem with this claim is that you don't get casino chips as comps. You could say that the meals, the private jets, the hotel rooms, those are comps. But the 250k in casino chips, they don't just hand him casino chips as comps. They may give him promotional chips to play with, but they're not going to just hand him 250,000 in casino chips as comps. So this was definitely a way to pay off Huizar without there being a record of it. Because it's different when you transfer money to someone, there's a paper trail. If you're just holding a bunch of 5k casino chips or 25k casino chips, and instead of cashing them, you just hand them off to someone else, then... Uh, there's really no record of that. Now, I do wonder how Huizar was able to cash these in because casinos will question you if you show up with chips when you were not gambling and can't explain where you got them. So I'm not quite understanding how they pulled that off unless the casinos were complicit in this as well, unless uh, Huang told them that they're, you know, he's, he's, giving it to Huizar and don't give him a hard time that he owes this guy money or whatever it is and just to not question him 
And maybe they looked the other way because Huang was losing millions of dollars, and he probably was. I don't know that to be a fact. I'm just theorizing how Huizar could have kept cashing in these chips without anyone asking any questions. Now, maybe because Huizar was gambling on himself that they weren't questioning it. So maybe what would happen was uh, Huizar would show up at the table and uh, break one of these chips into smaller denominations and gamble and then go cash out, and he really has been gambling. Maybe Huizar wasn't just uh, taking a chip and just showing up to the cashier saying, hey, cash out this 25K chip, because that's not going to work. The DOJ has indicted Huang, but, uh, of course, not being a U.S. citizen or U.S. resident, uh, it may be hard to actually detain him. He has not returned to the U.S. to face charges and probably won't, nor will he be extradited. Huizar, though, of course, uh, being a U.S. citizen, his trial is scheduled for early 2023. And that former assistant, whose name is George Esparza, is the key witness in the trials. Also, Huizar's brother, wife, and mother are set to testify regarding how they helped Huizar launder large sums of cash. I don't know why his mom and wife are testifying against him. They could be hostile witnesses, or maybe he's not objecting to them testifying because he's afraid they will go to prison too, and he wants to protect his uh, wife, mother, and brother. I'm not sure exactly what the situation is there. So what Huizar is accused of doing in general is using his role as a councilman representing downtown L.A. and his position on the L.A. Planning and Land Use Management Committee to take bribes from developers that wanted to get projects approved. And in 2022, early in 2022, another real estate developer, not Huang, but somebody else, was found guilty of paying a $500,000 bribe to Huizar to get a downtown project approved and to have objections that people were raising ignored. City government has a lot of corruption. And when we talked about that guy in Las Vegas who murdered the journalist at the Las Vegas Review Journal, the one who worked in the public administrator's office. And I talked about my own experience with the public administrator's office with helping somebody and how I found them to be really corrupt. And I told that whole story. I mean, there are so many different instances of city and county government being corrupt. And the reason you have a lot of this corruption is there is not a lot of oversight. There's not a lot of people watching. The fewer people watching what's going on, the more people get away with. So you would think that the highest amount of corruption is occurring at the federal government and then a lot of the state government. And I'm not saying there's no corruption there. I'm just saying that city government and county government has a lot more corruption, especially when you look at the size of these compared to the federal government. It's just uh, much more common that someone who's working for city or county government is corrupt than someone working for federal or state government. It's just a lot easier to get away with. The smaller the government body, the easier it is to be corrupt and to take bribes. In fact, even homeowners associations, which are kind of a pseudo form of government, even a smaller form of government than city government, 
even those can be corrupt and take bribes. Basically, whenever there's a lucrative contract to be awarded with money that is collected either through taxes or through assessments, then there is the temptation to give these contracts in exchange for something in return. And you have to have either fear of going to prison or high morals to not engage in that because it practically falls in your lap eventually. And you have to have the strength to say no. So the Sweezar guy apparently didn't say no and took these bribes. The reason I'm talking about this is not to talk about the L.A. City Council, but to talk about the casino aspect of it, that it was interesting that this guy was a huge whale in casinos and then would use his gambling there to also bribe the city councilman. And he thought he could probably get away with that without there being a paper trail. I'm not sure how this was caught, but it eventually was. Okay, so we're done with the topics right now regarding poker and gambling, but I do have two COVID topics I'd like to talk about here. Remember last week, I talked about how I felt the government was trying to cover up the true number of deaths from Omicron only by age. It was very hard to find. I would Google it. I would look. I could find age data on COVID in its entirety from the beginning, but I couldn't find age-related data for just Omicron. And the reason this was important to me was that it was my theory that there was very, very few deaths occurring from Omicron to those who were not old and did not have major pre-existing conditions. And if that were to be the case, that would mean that it's time to completely look at COVID differently, to treat it more like the flu, something that kills old people, but doesn't really kill many other people who are not old or already have major pre-existing conditions. So if it is not a major threat to those under 65 who are either healthy or semi-healthy, then we need to stop treating it like it is a pandemic. And I could not find anything that would give me stats on age-related Omicron deaths because Omicron is said to be 90% less deadly than Delta. And Omicron basically began at the beginning of 2022, in fact, at the very end of 21. So I knew that, but I did not know by age. I wondered if maybe it was beyond 90% less deadly for people who were not old. But I have a very hard time finding it. Well, I finally found something. And it was very interesting. And I did not find it on a right-wing site. Even though I am a Republican, I don't like getting my COVID news from right-wing sites because I don't trust them. I think they're biased. I think they're always trying to show that COVID is not as much of a threat as people are saying it is. And they're trying to always make the vaccine look worse than it is. And I I just see a lot of bias from the right in any COVID data or studies they put out. And I'm very, very skeptical. So I actually prefer to see COVID data that is either from an apolitical source that's ideal or 
if it's going to be data that I feel is proving my point, I like when it's coming from the left because I know they're not biased that way. So I think, okay, if even the left is putting out data that supports what I'm saying, well, that really means that I must be right because they don't want to put out this data. So I finally found something. It doesn't tell me the full picture, but it tells me some of the picture, and I think you'll find it very interesting. There is a site called kff.org, which is the Kaiser Family Foundation. It is rated as left biased by a website that monitors this sort of thing. And the reason I'm saying this is not to criticize the left. I'm saying this so you understand that this data I'm about to give you is not from a right-wing site trying to show that COVID isn't a big deal. This is from a left-wing site. So I found an article about COVID deaths by month, and they separated the deaths between under 65 and 65 and older. And they broke it down by month, which was useful because they went all the way from April 2020 to September 2022. Well, the good thing is that once we get to the Omicron variants in 2022, then I can see how many people were dying of Omicron in each month of 2022 and how that compared to the original COVID and the Delta variants in 2020 and 2021. So what did I find? Well, in September 2021, which was during the height of Delta, and this is when you had a lot of people in the hospital from Delta from earlier in the summer who were now dying from it, because you don't die instantly usually from COVID. It takes some time. So this was the height of people dying from Delta, September 2021. Vaccines were available, but many chose not to take the vaccines, and some people were dying despite being vaccinated. But it was a lot of unvaccinated deaths then, to be honest. But it was from Delta. There's no Omicron yet. In September 2021, there were 26,807 COVID deaths among people under 65 in the U.S., that's a lot of deaths. 26,807 in just September 2021. Not 22, 21. I'm talking about now more than a year ago. These were Delta deaths in one month, under 65. Now, there were more deaths of people over 65, but not that much more. Let's fast forward a year. September 2022, which is the latest month they have data for in this study. October just finished, so number one, the study was done in October, and number two, uh, they may not have the data anyway because we're only at November 3rd. But in September 2022, that is September 1st through 30th, 2022, how many deaths from COVID in the United States of people age zero through 64? The number of deaths was 986. That's it, 986 versus 26,807 a year before in the month of September. So fewer than 1,000 people under 65 died of COVID in September 2022. And you might say, well, that's still pretty bad, though. That's almost 1,000 people. That's a lot of people. Well, hold on a second. How many people are in the U.S. under 65? The answer is 
277 million. 277 million are under 65 in the U.S. Why is that such a high percentage of the population? Well, because over 65, it gets harder and harder to still be alive the further you get from 65. Because number one, you, you have uh, people dying in their 60s. And then people in their 70s die, people in their 80s die. So for example, of the 330-something million people in the U.S., there's only like 6 million over 85. Because most of the people born in those years, 85 years ago and more, are dead now. It's not just the population was smaller, which it was, but also most of those people are now dead. So that's why as you get older and older, the population in these age ranges gets smaller and smaller once you pass a certain point. So 277 million people in the U.S. are under 65, and only 986 of them died of COVID in September 2022, which means that about four people out of every million died of COVID in 2022. Does that sound like a major crisis to you? I mean, yeah, it'd be great if the number was zero, but people die all the time of things. So it's not realistic to say, well, we want zero death. Well, it'd be great if we had zero death of people who are under 65, but that's not realistic. It's never going to be the case. But it's not a tremendous crisis if we have four people out of every million under 65 dying of something. That's considered very rare. Also, notice I said under 65, not under 55, not under 45, but 65. Now, there's a lot of people who are under 65, but have some kind of major pre-existing condition, such as cancer and other major conditions that tend to show up after the age of 50, but sometimes before the age of 65. So it's not like you can say, well, just about everybody under 65 is the pinnacle of health and COVID is still mowing down a thousand of them per month. No, there's a lot of people under 65 who are very sick with major pre-existing conditions. I'm sure you've known some personally. You might know some right now, personally. I'm talking about unrelated to COVID, just people who are under 65 who are unfortunate enough to get a major condition that is going to kill them or you know they're going to die soon or you know, something really, really major and, and dangerous at the moment. And given all these people, like, like picture those between 50 and 64 in the U.S., Think of how many of them have major pre-existing conditions. There's got to be a lot of people. I don't mean it's the majority or anywhere near the majority, but it's still a lot of people. When you look at the overall number of all the people in the U.S. between 50 and 64, and you look at those who have major pre-existing conditions, there's got to be a ton of them. And yet of all those people, and with how contagious COVID is right now with with, uh, these BA5-related Omicron variants, still only 986 of them died in September. Furthermore, and related to this, if we were to eliminate everybody under 65 who had major pre-existing conditions from this 986 number, how high would it be? I'm guessing it would be approaching zero. And what if we reduce the age to under 55 and no pre-existing conditions? How many of those 986 would qualify under that? I'd say, again, even closer to zero. And what if we go under 45? How many people do you think under 45 with no pre-existing conditions? I, I mean major ones, not minor ones or, or moderate ones. How many of them you think comprised that 986? Probably just about none. So what does this say? This says that COVID is really only killing 
those under 65 who already have major problems that are going to kill them soon anyway. And it sucks. It, it is tragic that COVID is hastening their death. But it's not like before where you had healthy 50-year-olds, healthy 45-year-olds dropping dead from COVID. That was really bad. I mean, 26,807 people under 65 died in September 2021 of Delta. That's really bad. And the, a lot of those people of those 26,807 were ones who did not have major pre-existing conditions. Some did. I'm sure a lot did, but there were a lot who didn't. And I bet you cannot name anybody that died of Omicron that you knew personally or even someone you knew through somebody else, like a friend of a friend. Can you think of a friend of a friend who died of COVID when they had Omicron who was under 65? Can you think of anybody? Because I can't. I knew and I knew of people who died under 65 with regular COVID and with Delta. As I have said many times, we've had uh, our memorial free roll for poker pro Robert Gray on this site in order to honor him and his friends put on that free roll every year. And he died of original COVID and he was not someone that uh, people pictured was going to pass away anytime soon. And it was a tragic case of uh, COVID killing him, original COVID before the vaccines were available in 2020. So there are plenty of cases like his. And that's what was scaring me because I was near that age. But this is a whole different ballgame with Omicron. But before it was just me guessing, just from anecdotal evidence. So I found the real evidence. I found the real numbers on the Kaiser Family Foundation site, which again is a left-leaning site and is not trying to prove the point that basically... COVID danger is over for those who are under 65 without major pre-existing conditions, but that's at, that's accidentally what they showed there with their own data. And I posted this on the Poker Fraud Alert coronavirus thread on page 850. It's a very long thread, but I go to page 850 and you will see the link I posted to kff.org and their study all the way through September 2022. I mean, 986 people under 65. That was it, who died of COVID in September. Now, maybe you'll think, okay, well, maybe September was a big outlier. I will admit that September 2022 was the month with the lowest number of COVID deaths in 2022. But even since the Delta deaths disappeared, because remember, the deaths lag behind the variants because people will get sick with COVID and some of them will last for months before they die. They'll sit on ventilators for a very long time before they eventually pass away. So you can only really count the deaths of the new variant once uh, a few months have passed and all of the deaths from the old variant uh, have occurred. Because you're not going to be... typically on a ventilator or, or fighting death from COVID for a year. It's, it's going to be at most a few months, and usually it's uh, uh, you know a few weeks to a month, but sometimes it can be more than that. Anyway, there was a huge decline in deaths for both old and not old for COVID in March of 2022, and then an even bigger one, a bigger decline in April of 2022. And the reason for that was the Delta deaths were gone. The people who had caught Delta still at the tail end of it in, in January and in, De- in December, 
that those who were destined to die from it had all died by uh, probably like mid to late March. So by the time you get to April, all the deaths there are from Omicron, which are much lower. So since April, we have not had a month where people under 65 in the U.S. have had more than 2,000 deaths. We haven't even seen 2,000 deaths of those under 65 since April 22 in the U.S. So we've had all these straight months, April through September, a six-month period. We have not had a single month with 2,000 or more deaths of those under 65 out of a 277 million population in that age group. That is very significant. So what does this mean? This means that unless there is a fluke variant that is significantly more deadly than the present ones we have, that we really need to treat this pandemic as if it's the flu. It's still more deadly than the flu, but it's close enough to where it is flu-like as far as the death profile. In fact, it's less deadly than the flu for children. And that's always been the case with COVID, that the flu has always been more dangerous for children than COVID. That's why all the panic about COVID in children was overblown from the start. But now especially, the flu is more dangerous than COVID for children. Now, for middle-aged people, it's still more dangerous to have COVID than the flu. And for old people, it's still more dangerous to have COVID than the flu. But it's got a similar enough profile to where now it really should be treated more like the flu than the way we treated Delta and original COVID, which were very, very different diseases when it comes to the death and major harm it caused to people. It's just a completely different virus in that sense. So we have to forget everything we knew about Delta and everything we knew about original COVID regarding the danger and adjust to the present. And now I have numbers. Now I have numbers. 986 people in the entire month of September died of COVID out of 277 million. Look it up. So those that say, oh, you know, the right, they're so irresponsible. They're saying no mask mandates and they don't want to wear their mask. And they don't want to get their vaccines. Oh, well, you know, they're, they just don't care about people dying. Yeah, no, the, the right is correct now. The right wasn't quite so correct when COVID was a big problem in 2020 and 2021. And I, I never liked how the right has been vilifying the vaccine and convincing people not to take it because there are some people who definitely, definitely, definitely needed to take that vaccine and some who chose not to take it. And that's why we had, well, that's not entirely why, but that's part of the reason why we had 26,807 COVID deaths in September of 2021. Some of those were people who could have taken the vaccine and would not have died. And it's very sad that some of them got the wrong message from their side of the aisle. And that's, something I never liked. But okay, now we are in late 2022. The reality on the ground in late 2022 is that COVID is not deadly to the vast, 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 vast majority of Americans under 65 without major pre-existing conditions. There will be a few unlucky ones here and there who die of it in middle age, who did not have major pre-existing conditions, but it's rare. And there are rare deaths of all kinds of causes. 
but we can't live in constant fear of them or adjust our lives based upon those rare deaths. Because if you do, you won't be going out and doing anything. If you saw a list of all the different rare deaths that were out there of people who were not old, uh, you'd be afraid to leave your house if if you let that affect you because there's so many different rare things that can get you. But because these are so rare, it doesn't happen to the typical person. That's why you often don't even know someone who had any of these things happen to. So just look at the numbers. That's what I've always said about COVID is forget all the rhetoric. Forget about who's right. Is is it the Republicans, the Democrats, who's right, who's wrong? Forget that. Go look at the hard numbers and make your own decision. So go to the damn Kaiser Family Foundation website and look at the numbers month by month and tell me why we should be scared of a disease that is killing 986 people under 65 out of 277 million of which almost all of them probably had major pre-existing conditions. Tell me why that is something we should treat differently than the flu. It doesn't make any sense. Because there is a cost to restrictions. There is a financial cost, as we're experiencing right now, with all the inflation, with the worker shortage, with all these other uh, COVID-related issues we're having today economically. So there's a labor cost, there is a economic cost, and there's also a freedom and inconvenience cost, and those can't just be ignored. So these measures should not be enacted. There should not be mandates, and there should not be restrictions and rules about something that really is now profiling a lot more like the flu. There's something to be said for letting everybody decide their own risk profile and going from there. And as far as the vaccine's concerned, people should also be making intelligent decisions on whether they feel it's worth taking the vaccine. We need to be honest that the vaccine has risks. We have too much extreme rhetoric on both sides. We have the left saying safe, 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 safe. Any claim otherwise is uh, misinformation. And we have the right making it seem like that if you take the vaccine that there's a good chance you're going to drop dead. And, and neither is true. There are definite risks associated with the COVID vaccines. They are not well-tested. There are long-term effects of them that are still not known. There's more we're learning every day about dangers from the vaccine, but there's more we're learning every day about long-term dangers from having COVID. And for people who are 45 and older, the risk from the vaccine is still much less than the risk you have from getting COVID. However, that risk gap is getting smaller and smaller. Whereas in 2020 and 2021, if you were 45 plus and chose not to get the vaccine because you were scared what it would do to you, and yet you were cavalier about the COVID risk, well, you were not making a smart decision. You were avoiding a small risk, which is the vaccine, to take a big risk, which is getting COVID unvaccinated. So that was not a smart decision. Even if you ended up living through it, and didn't get damaged from it. I'm just saying that was not a smart decision. But now it becomes a closer decision. Now it becomes much more reasonable to say, you know what? Yes, I'm over 45, but Omicron is hardly killing anybody. So no, I don't want to take a chance with that vaccine. That is much more reasonable. I am not even sure if I'll take another vaccine. In fact, I'm really leaning towards no, because I get sick from it. Also, I know there's a risk. I know that 
there are things that may happen to me from it. And I know that the risk of anything happening to me from Omicron is getting lower and lower with time. So I don't know if even just from the standpoint of putting myself through a three-day illness if I want to do it. So just look at the numbers. Look at the cold numbers and make your decisions. Don't let social media or politicians tell you what to think. Let's get to the second thing. Actually, I'm going to do a little bonus COVID topic here too. This was brought up on the forum. We have a forum member named uh, OK25 who is from New Zealand. I don't really know who he is. He's been very active lately. But OK25 is a right winger, even though he's not in the U.S. And he's been one of those guys who's been very much pushing that COVID is not as big of a deal as the left has been saying and that the vaccines are dangerous. He, he's he been very aggressive with all of that on the forum. And there, there's several others like that. And they often argue with me because even though I'm on the right, I don't agree with some of their conclusions. Well, OK25 posted an interesting screenshot from Twitter. And it was something I just learned about from his post and I decided to go research more. And this is about a woman named Julie Powell, who was 49 years old. And to be honest, uh, Julie Powell does not look like a very good human being. Julie Powell, for example, on October 1st, 2021, and this is, of course, when uh, a lot of people were still dying of Delta, she wrote, I would argue that COVID does kill some of the right people. The anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers are dying in legions. So, On October 1st, 2021, Julie Powell, who's very much on the left, was celebrating the fact that right-wingers were dying of COVID. That's pretty brutal. Like, You should never be happy that your political opponents are dying of a contagious disease. It's uh, it's terrible. It's terrible to even think that. So she's saying it killed the right people. the, The only right people to die from something would be terrible criminals like murderers or rapists or child molesters, okay? If if people died of COVID like that, then I'd say, okay, good. But people who disagree with me politically, I would never celebrate their death. So it's, it's very crappy that she wrote that and thought that. So I'm not saying Julie Powell was a wonderful person. She clearly wasn't. Anyway, as you might imagine, Julie Powell was very pro- vaccine, very pro-mask, very pro-mandates of these. And like many people who took the vaccine, including me, she got COVID anyway because the vaccines just didn't work very well against Omicron. Now, maybe they work better now because they have this new bivalent vaccine, which is aimed at BA4 and BA5, but she didn't have one of those vaccines, presumably. And she got COVID in early September. I don't think the vaccines were quite available then, the new ones. And she had a pretty bad case of it. On September 14th, she tweeted, Weirdly, my COVID is getting worse. Terrible headache, cough, probable fever, and fatigue. Well, by September 20th, things got a lot better. She said, I will confess I'm confused on certain points. I've gotten over my COVID bout. Masking, yes, I'm thinking just because. Turns out I shouldn't get the booster for another three months. Mysteries everywhere. I I don't quite understand that tweet, but it seems like she's basically saying, number one, she's better. So it was six days after she seemed to be reaching the peak of her COVID symptoms on September 14th. This is of this year. 
And uh, then she was saying that she's a little confused, like now that she shouldn't get the vaccine for another three months and that uh, she's not sure whether she should be masking at this point now that she just got over COVID. She, she claimed that she's a little confused of what to do and why. But this was not her doubting her political positions. She was just saying personally, like, what is the science saying about what she should do at this point? That's basically what she was tweeting on September 20th. The reason I'm even mentioning this is because on September 20th, she was feeling good again. She said she got over her COVID. So as bad as it was on the 14th, she was never hospitalized, but she was feeling pretty damn bad on the 14th of September. By the 20th, six days later, she was uh, fully recovered. On October 25th, she tweeted, So I woke up with something that's literally black, hairy tongue. People, including my doctor, seem to think it's no big deal and will go away soon, but it certainly is gross. Now, what is black, hairy tongue? Well, you can Google it, and it is a condition that makes it look like there is black hair on your tongue. There's not actually hair sticking up, but it's in a pattern that kind of looks like hair, and it is black, and it is kind of gross. And the good news is that black, hairy tongue is harmless. Black, hairy tongue is usually an oral hygiene issue, and it tends to resolve on its own. According to the Mayo Clinic, black hairy tongue is a temporary harmless oral condition that gives the tongue a dark, furry appearance. The distinct look usually results from a buildup of dead skin cells on the many tiny projections on the surface of the tongue that contain taste buds. These projections, which are longer than normal, can easily trap and be stained by bacteria, yeast, tobacco, food, or other substances. Although it may look alarming, typically it does not cause any health problems, and it's usually painless. Black hairy tongue usually resolves by eliminating possible causes or contributing factors and practicing good oral hygiene. So basically, this is something that looks gross, looks scary. Your tongue suddenly gets very discolored in a pattern that looks like it has black hair on it, but in reality, it's harmless and just looks weird. And that's been known for quite some time. So why am I mentioning Black Hairy Tongue and and her having this on October 25th? Well, because on October 26th, 2022, on October 26th, 2022, Julie Powell died at the age of 49. How did that happen? How did Black Hairy Tongue kill her in one day? She was totally fine from COVID as of September 20th. Over a month later, on October 25th, she wakes up with this black, hairy tongue, which is known to be harmless, and then a day later, she's dead. So what happened? And she didn't have any known pre-existing conditions. The healthy 49-year-old woman. So what happened? Well, a lot of right-wingers were celebrating this because she was celebrating the death of right-wingers a year beforehand. And I hate to admit it, but it's kind of fair. If you're going to laugh about how right-wingers were dying of COVID back in 2021 and calling it the right people dying and saying that's the one good thing about COVID and then you die young of COVID. Well, in a way, that's kind of karma. I'm not saying she deserved to die, but I'm saying it it isn't cold or callous that right-wingers are now mocking her for what ended up happening. But the better question is what did happen? Now, she was a big vaxxer, so was it possible that the vaccine got her? But keep in mind, she did not take the latest booster because she got COVID before she could do it. But is it possible that the previous vaccine killed her? Because her husband said she died of cardiac arrest. And there have been long allegations from the right 
that cardiac arrest is a result of the vaccine. So is it possible that this was a delayed reaction from the vaccine she had several months beforehand? Or is it possible she just had bad luck and COVID killed her with a heart attack and that it was just fitting because she was laughing about how right-wingers were dying of COVID a year before? Well, let's ignore her comments about the right-wingers for now and talk about what happened to her. Was it a coincidence that she had the black hairy tongue the day before she died? My theory is no. But I don't think she really had black hairy tongue. I think it was a misdiagnosis. And this is something you should listen to because it's something to watch out for. So there are two fungal infections that have been known for a long time, but were so rare, it wasn't even worth thinking about. And these are known as Kappa, C-A-P-A, and CAM, C-A-M. These are acronyms, but uh, that's what they're known as, Kappa and CAM. And they existed long before COVID. But COVID has made these formerly super rare infections much more common than before. It's not believed that vaccines cause these at all. And it's not fully understood why COVID is causing these to occur with so much more frequency than before. But it definitely has been happening. And Kappa and CAM are very, very dangerous. Now, most people get the spores for Kappa and CAM in their body, even just from drinking water, but healthy people will have their body clear them out and you'll never notice a problem. So when your immune system is functioning properly, Kappa and CAM typically can't get you. But if your immune system is poorly functioning, then it becomes a lot more dangerous that Kappa and CAM can become serious and take hold. What's believed about COVID is that severe COVID cases can put enough stress on the immune system to where Kappa and CAM can thrive. So notice that on the September 14th tweet that this woman, Julie Powell, posted, she was having a moderate case of COVID, meaning not a mild one. It was something that was severe enough to where she really, really felt awful, but not quite bad enough to send her to the hospital. Now, that's not usually enough to stress her immune system to the point where Kappa or CAM can take hold, but maybe this is what happened. Because had her case been mild, it's very unlikely she would have gotten Kappa or CAM, but her case was moderate, and it could have happened. Now, why am I guessing that Kappa or CAM is what killed her? Well, first of all, these two are very deadly. If not treated, patients with Kappa will die 80% of the time, and those who have CAM if not treated, will die 100% of the time. So if you have CAM and you don't treat it, there's no way out. You're going to die, 100%. But what are the signs of having Kappa or CAM? Well, Kappa and CAM are sometimes called incorrectly a black fungus. Hmm, a black fungus. Now, what does that sound like? Oh, yeah, black hairy tongue. So to me, what looks like happened was that she had a bad enough case of COVID in mid-September to where she got either Kappa or Cam and didn't know it. And then she thought she got better and she didn't notice whatever Kappa or Cam was doing to her body. But then on October 25th, she had a sign. The sign was that her tongue got black. 
you know, the black fungus that's talked about with Kappa and Cam as a warning sign that you have it? Well, it looks like the black fungus showed up on her tongue, but because it happened to be her tongue, it was confused for being black hairy tongue and said to be harmless. So this seems to be a misdiagnosis because it was presenting very similar to black hairy tongue. But in reality, she probably had Kappa or Cam, and it was probably really hitting her body hard and she didn't realize it yet. And the following day, the following day, it got into her heart and she had cardiac arrest and she died. Now, amazingly, the media is not reporting it this way. The media is claiming that this was just a, a heart attack, a congenital heart problem she had, and that unfortunately she just happened to have died of a, a heart attack that was unrelated to COVID and unrelated to the black hairy tongue. I don't believe it. I think what really happened is she had Kappa or Cam, and the black tongue was an indication that that's what she had. So what is my point here? My point here is that if you had COVID somewhat recently, meaning like in the last month or two, and all of a sudden you have a fungal-like infection, not just on your tongue, but anywhere, you notice some kind of black fungus in your body or in your body, take it very, very seriously because you may be in the ground very, very soon if you don't. Like, this woman is now. I'm not saying it's always going to be Kappa or Cam, but this is a lot more common than it used to be, thanks to COVID. And if that's what happened to her, it happened more than a month after she recovered from COVID. Now, if you had a very mild case of COVID, don't worry about it. But if you had a moderate or worst case of COVID, and then sometime within like the next two months, if you get some kind of weird black fungus, I'd be real serious about it. And don't just let the doctors dismiss you and say, ah, oh, it's black. It's, it's, it's just a black hairy tongue. It's, it, don't worry about it. Uh, like, tell them, no, I'm afraid of this Kappa or Cam. And, and can we look into this? And is there a way you can give me antibiotics? Like, you, you've got to try to treat it because you saw how fast she died here of cardiac arrest. And by the way, she was 49 without known heart problems. And females who are 49 don't just tend to just drop dead of cardiac arrest unless they brought it on themselves from drug or alcohol abuse or because they had a congenital problem. But someone without a known congenital problem who's female and 49 typically doesn't just die abruptly of cardiac arrest. The fact that it followed that weird black tongue really makes me think she had Kappa or Cam. And remember, untreated, they kill 80 to 100% of the time. And I think that's what happened. Final note before I move on and then say hello to Trader Ruski is that during the Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920, which is often compared to COVID, the main killer was not the Spanish flu. The main killer was secondary infections that came from the Spanish flu. And Kappa and Cam are secondary infections. That's exactly what they are. It's exactly the type of thing that was killing people during the Spanish flu. The reason this was so common in 1918 through 1920 was that there was no such thing as antibiotics. They weren't invented yet in 1918, 19, and 20. So if you got a secondary infection as a result of the Spanish flu, you were just screwed. And if the infection didn't resolve on its own, you had no way to stop it and you croaked. So it's killed a lot of people. The, the, not Kappa and Cam necessarily, but I'm saying that a lot of secondary infections like that killed people from 1918 to 20, whereas COVID, it was not so much the secondary infections, it was the COVID itself. 
Trader Ruski, hello. What's happening, Drop? Well, we're near the end of the show here. I was doing some COVID talk, and I'm trying to give some advice here. I, I don't want to make people like hypochondriacs, but seriously, if you see like a black fungus a short time after COVID, meaning like a month or two later, uh, definitely take it real seriously. I, and I didn't know this before. Like if, if I saw a black fungus and it was like a month after I had COVID, I would never think, okay, well, maybe I'm going to die tomorrow. Like I, I don't even blame her for accepting the advice of the doctors that it's nothing because I, I would have believed it. I would have said, okay, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, it looks like this black hairy tongue. Okay, you know, it'll go away. And then you know, next day you die. So just keep it in mind, just in case. A lot of weird things as a result of COVID. And it's weird how the media is, is not focusing on this. I, I found this by kind of researching it myself. I was kind of interested in her situation. I just didn't think the black hairy tongue was a coincidence. And then I read about this cap and cam and how it can present as a black fungus. And I go, up. Oh, there we go. That's it. Not 100%. No way to ever know, but I think that's what happened. Okay, so finally, we're going to talk about pandemic amnesty which is a concept that has been brought up by a woman named Emily Oster. And she is an author. And she wrote this article on The Atlantic, which is a left-wing website. And it's called Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. And the basic point of the article, I'm not going to read it to you. You can go find it on The Atlantic. You can read it for free is that COVID was something that we dealt with for the first time in our lives, that basically nobody alive during COVID was alive during the Spanish flu. And those that were, the very few that were, were babies and wouldn't remember it because it was basically 100 years between them. So all of us were experiencing a pandemic for the first time. And mistakes were bound to be made. And I agree with that part. So she was saying that instead of pointing fingers and saying, oh, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, oh, this politician screwed people in this and that way, why don't we just say this was new to everybody, mistakes were bound to happen, we're not going to point fingers or blame each other, and we're just going to move forward. Now, that sounds like a very reasonable and healthy way to go about treating people in the future. Otherwise, we could endlessly fight about this, endlessly fight about what has already happened and we can't change. However, there's a reason that she's writing this. And that is because now her side of the aisle is under fire for some policies that are now being looked at and being said, look, even at the time the decision was wrong. Uh, such as the long-term school closures, which uh, most affected poor and minority children, that the ones who did the best through that and had the least learning loss were the upper and middle-class children, a lot of them being white and Asian, and that a lot of the uh, more disadvantaged people and, and minorities who've typically uh, struggled education-wise have fallen further behind and that has uh, hurt these communities badly and that uh, Democrats who pushed for this made a huge mistake when it was pretty clear that children just were not dying of COVID, except in a few very rare cases. Then uh, also about the vaccines, 
while the right was putting out various uh, scare stories and misinformation about that, that the uh, left was also uh, making a lot of bold statements about the vaccines, which turned out not to be true, such as them preventing transmission, which ended up never being proven, especially during Omicron. This was especially uh, disproven and shown that it was not uh, preventing transmission. And once it was not shown to be preventing transmission, then the whole concept of a vaccine mandate pretty much goes out the window. So she was basically saying that a lot of these mistakes, uh, even if they were ones that were mistakes at the time, not just based on what we know now, uh, that we need to just look past them and get past it. And and the problem is, I don't think that uh, she would be taking this position. And those that are on that political side would be taking this position if once we're at this point, if looking back on what we know now, that it seems that the left made no mistakes and the right made all the mistakes. But now that more and more mistakes are coming forward, are becoming clear that the left made that had real consequences, another one being the shutting down hospitals for treating uh, uh, any kind of elective procedures, and I don't mean elective like voluntary, like ones that uh, are not necessary, like plastic surgery. I'm talking about uh, things like uh, colonoscopies or other ones that aren't uh, absolutely urgent, but that putting them off could end up killing you. So there was uh, there's a lot of excess deaths that were found as a result of the postponement of these uh, treatments and surgeries, and that's now also believed to be a mistake. Another big one was the policy of not letting people see their loved ones as they died, sometimes of COVID, sometimes not of COVID, because of uh, strict hospital visitation policies and people lost their parents or other loved ones and couldn't even go and be with them in their final moments, which is uh, devastating. I, I, I could only imagine how bad that would be. If uh, Fortunately, my parents are still alive, but if, if one of them had passed away either of COVID or during that time of something else, and they were dying in the hospital, and I couldn't go see them in their final moments. I mean, I would just uh, never get over that. It would it would be something that would, would be with me every day. That uh, that I had to stay away, and uh, that my parent would would just die alone in, in a cold room. Uh, so I I can see why people are very upset about that, and that, that's also now believed to have been a big mistake. So there are a number of these that were pushed by the left, and that are now being looked back upon and seen by many as crazy. So uh, as the tide is turning, because before it was all the right is is denying the vaccine's uh, efficacy and the right is refusing to wear masks and the right is refusing to acknowledge that COVID is dangerous and more than the flu. And and the left had a point with a lot of this stuff. I'm not saying I disagree with with these criticisms, but uh, for a while it was all the right, the right, the right, look what they're doing. And now uh, uh, a lot of the right's objections to some of the things the left were doing, which were treated as crazy at the time, and in fact sometimes censored from social media, now we look back and go, oh yeah, they were actually kind of correct. <laughs> so, and even people in the middle and even some on the left are starting to admit this. And uh, laughably, even uh, Randy Weingarten, who's the uh, head of the teachers' union, who was a, a big uh, school closure advocate, retweeted Emily Oster's pandemic amnesty article and said she agrees and yeah she supports this well yeah of course she supports this because she's taking a beating big time on social media over her uh, decisions to keep schools closed for a very long time which was seen as selfish and uh, not thinking of the children 
Uh, Emily Oster wrote, uh, I'm just kind of skimming the article right now, uh, we have to put these fights aside and declare a pandemic amnesty. We can leave out the willful willful purveyors of actual misinformation while forgiving the hard calls that people had no choice but to make with imperfect knowledge. Los Angeles County closed its beaches in summer of 2020. Ex post facto, this makes no more sense than my family's masked hiking trips, but we need to learn from our mistakes and let them go. Okay, let's stop right here. So, again, she's already separating what she's calling purveyors of actual misinformation. Okay, well, based on what? You're saying purveyors of actual misinformation. Uh, A lot of things that are now believed to be correct today were called misinformation back in 2020. And not because we've learned a whole lot more, just because uh, after studies have been done, that it turns out one of the narratives was wrong in a lot of things. Not just one narrative, but one narrative uh, in a lot of areas was wrong from the left. And uh, now, oh yeah, oops, you, turns out you guys were right. Oops, we, we didn't realize that. Like the, but, but people did realize it. That's why there were two different narratives. So let's look at the thing about the beaches that were closed in L.A. County in the summer of 2020. And Emily Oster's own family taking hiking trips in a mask. She's acting like uh, this is something we know now was stupid, but in 2020 was reasonable. No. I took a lot of hikes in 2020, as did a lot of people because they were bored. They couldn't do a lot of things. Everything was closed. So people were taking a lot more hikes than they used to. And I did as well. I, if you remember, I, I stayed away from anything indoors. I was really, really, really careful about catching COVID. And I took a lot of hikes and I took my son on a lot of hikes, and we didn't wear masks. And it's not because I was cavalier about COVID. I was the opposite. I was very, very cautious about COVID. But why didn't I wear a mask when I was hiking? Because I used common sense. I, I figured out fairly quickly that this was an indoor thing, that COVID was getting people indoors and not outdoors. This was clear long before the summer of 2020. So if anyone, summer of 2020, that was afraid of going to the beach or hiking without a mask, was not looking at the data, was not looking at what had been learned about COVID. They were not looking at what was realistic. They were basically being a slave to COVID dogma from their own side of the political aisle that said masking equals safe, social distancing always equals safe no matter what, and anything otherwise is irresponsible and deadly. And they didn't want to look at any exceptions. They didn't want to say, well, you know, what about outside? And for the longest time, it was so hard to convince a lot of people that outside, almost nobody got COVID. Even after the data was showing this, a lot of people were not accepting this and wearing their masks outside or refusing to go outside or refusing to accept that uh, outdoor events are okay. It was amazing. So how come I figured this out? How come I did this? As as cautious as I was, I did not wear a mask hiking, and I wasn't afraid to hike. How come? How come I had this knowledge in the summer of 2020, and and she's claiming she didn't? So the truth is that there were a lot of stupid mistakes that were made as a result to adhering to party dogma when it comes to COVID by the left and by the right. So... Should that mean we forgive everybody because it happened on both sides? No. What we should do is look at who behaved in an irresponsible fashion in the face of all data showing otherwise, or ones who were 
relying upon highly unreliable studies that were not peer-reviewed and were not uh, reviewed in any kind of neutral fashion. Any, anyone who was jumping to conclusions that had not at all been proven and then making policy based upon it or advocating policy or shaming people or censoring people based upon this information should be looked upon negatively because they harmed the country. And this includes people on the right, and this includes people on the left. This includes people like Randy Weingarten and her long-term school closures. This includes those who arrested surfers on the ocean, surfing by themselves in the summer of 2020. That actually happened. They actually went and arrested a surfer by himself on the ocean, the safest place you can possibly be from COVID. They actually arrested that guy. They actually closed hiking trails, including around me. I violated it. I said, screw it, and I hiked anyway. But I had signs all over the place telling me I can't be there. So those people need to be criticized for abusing their authority and sticking to the dogma of their politics. And the whole way I have advocated looking at the data and making your own intelligent decision, not letting talking heads tell you what to do. So the last thing we need right now is to let these people off the hook. The last thing we need to do is say, okay, these leaders failed us, but let's not talk about it and let them keep leading us. No. People who mess this up need to own it. And then we need to decide as voters, do we trust these people to continue leading us or do we need to get other people? Do we need to elect someone else? Do others need to be appointed in those positions? You can't just ignore these failures and say, well, okay, you know, it's understandable. It's a new thing. We hadn't dealt with it. The only thing that should be forgiven would be mistakes that were based upon information we absolutely didn't have. Like at the very beginning of COVID, remember all the advice about how you should let your mail sit for a few days before opening it, and you should let your groceries sit, except for the ones that were perishable. And basically a lot of advice about surfaces, that you need to sanitize everything, blah, blah, blah. Well, that made sense because a lot of colds and flus are caught via surfaces. So it would make sense that something like COVID would also be caught via surfaces, even if also transmitting through the air. Well, after some time, it was learned from studying COVID that it does not transmit on surfaces. So, okay, lesson learned. We had no way to know that. So I don't blame people in March of 2020 for uh, leaving their mail out for a few days or for sanitizing everything, because at that point, uh, there is very good reason to believe it was probably transmitting on surfaces. So I'm not going to criticize any politician who is giving that advice at that point or any media figures giving that advice at that point, even though looking at it today, it looks stupid. But anything we did know at the time that people ignored because it was convenient for their political party or for their virtue signaling or just to keep a consistent message. And a consistent message is not always a good thing because when you are ignoring counter data, counter information to keep the same message you've been saying all along, that becomes willful ignorance. And that's not a good look from the media or from political leaders. And I saw a lot of that going on. I, I told you earlier, I have arguments every day on my own website about COVID with people on my own side of the aisle. People who tell me 
that I need to admit that taking the vaccine was a mistake. And I say, no, I won't admit that. It was the correct thing to do, not just then, but in hindsight. I'm glad I took the vaccine in 2020. I'm glad I took the vaccine, or in 2021. I'm glad I took the uh, the booster later in 2021. Why? Because I could have caught the original or Delta variants of COVID, and they could have done very bad things to me or even killed me. So the risk from the vaccine was very low compared to those for someone my age. So yes, looking back, that was the correct thing to do. What I do going forward with Omicron is a whole different matter. But I am not going to say I was wrong with those vaccines last year. But they want me to. A lot of these right-wingers on my site want me to say that, and I will not say it because I don't believe it to be the truth. And they also are still pushing that the vaccine was incredibly dangerous and killed all these people, and the reason for these excess deaths is because of the vaccine. I don't believe any of it. I think it's BS. So I'm not saying this from the standpoint of a right-winger who wants to shame the left. Or I wouldn't have these arguments every day on my own website with people from my own party who are trying to tell me things about COVID that I don't agree with. But I don't think we should have any kind of COVID amnesty, except for matters where we really didn't know. And even in this article, she's trying to separate, oh, actual purveyors of uh, misinformation versus those who had hard calls to make. No, hard calls to make. A lot of things just made absolutely no sense. Absolutely no sense to a lot of these decisions. The CDC even admitted that cloth masks were not effective for Omicron in January of 2022. And that didn't stop tons of people, politicians and otherwise, from insisting that we have mask mandates during Omicron. Why? I mean, the CDC is saying right there that doesn't work. Why, why are we still uh, wearing the cloth masks? Because it looks good? Looks like you're responsible? It doesn't make any sense to me. These things have to make sense to me. You can't just be do it because it, it looks good or it looks safe. It feels safe. No, it's got to make sense. A lot of things that were done made no sense. After the vaccines were available to everybody who wanted one by the late spring of 2022, at that point, it should have been a free-for-all. Open up everything, no restrictions, and those who want to get vaccinated can, and those who don't want to get vaccinated don't have to. And then everybody lives with the consequences. If you choose not to get vaccinated and you die from Delta, well, I'm not going to cheer about it. I'm not going to say good, but uh, that was a risk you took and you lost. Everybody has the choice. Everybody makes the choice. And then they live with the consequences of their choice. But don't force mandates on people. Don't force uh, people to still wear masks at that point or force closures or force, force restrictions. It didn't make any sense to me. Whereas before the vaccines were available, well, then some of the restrictions made more sense, especially at the time. But still, I I feel there still should have been more freedom for people to decide what they want to do, especially because it became clear after not too long that it was going to be hard to completely do away with COVID, that it just mutated so quickly, it didn't look likely we could do away with it. I know there was still the belief, okay, well, if we get enough people vaccinated, then it'll be gone. Well, that turned out not to be true. So it's very clear now it's going to be endemic and we're going to be stuck with it. And fortunately, it turned into something much, much less deadly. Whatever it was that caused Omicron to 
appear and then replace Delta. It may have been COVID combining with a cold in someone's body. It may have just been some form of weird mutation. It was a major mutation, but it uh, may have been just something that happened. Again, it could have combined with another virus like a common cold. But whatever it did, however it happened, the fact that it turned into Omicron was the best thing we could have hoped for, short of it disappearing. Once we knew it wasn't going to disappear, the fact that it converted into Omicron, that is so much less deadly, that was such a tremendous stroke of luck for humanity and has saved so many lives. And that is not said enough. And the reason it's not said enough is is because there's a lot of people out there that still want you to fear it the same way you feared the other variants back in 2020 and 2021. And it's not even close. It's not even comparable. Let's put trade risk back on. Trader Ruski, uh, I'm going to ask you if you saw or heard what I was saying. Uh, did you see that in September of 2022, that only 986 people under 65 died of COVID in the U.S. out of 277 million? I did not. And this is from a left-wing source. This was not from uh, some crazy right-wing site trying to minimize COVID. This is from the Kaiser Family Foundation, that same Kaiser that uh, uh, owns uh, Kaiser Permanente. They have this foundation that is left-leaning, and they were the ones who put out this data. So 986 people in the whole month of September under 65 died of, of uh, COVID, which, of course, is Omicron. So that is uh, obviously good news, and I, I wish this was more publicized. I think that's, that's a huge story that it's become this minor. It's a 96.4% decline from a year prior, 96.4%. Well, finally, I want to talk about the new variants and help you understand those because there's been a lot of stories about the new variants and a lot of scare tactics about the new variants. And I want you to understand from what is known right now what you can expect of the new variants. And this affects me, of course, too, because... I had COVID in early June at the World Series of Poker, and now it's about five months later. It's a little short of five months later, but we're getting close to five months. And five months is around the time when a lot of people become vulnerable again to catching COVID another time. So I'm watching this closely. There's no way to know exactly what variant I had because there were a few of them out there in June. I think it was BA4. But anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. There are two new variants which are rapidly gaining share of all of the COVID infections in the U.S. And in fact, they're already further ahead in Europe and other places. But we're talking about the U.S. here. On October 29th, it was found that the new variants BQ1 and BQ1.1 were a combined 27.1% of all COVID cases in the U.S. I'm talking about new COVID cases on October 29th. And every day this is increasing. So if it was that on October 29th, it's got to be over 30% now between the two of them. So they're rapidly taking over for the other variants. 
BA5, which was dominant for several months and uh, at one point had well over 80% of the share of all variants, and most of the others were a form of BA4, which is very similar. So for quite some time throughout the summer and early fall, just about every COVID infection in the U.S. was either a form of BA4 or BA5 itself. And most of it was BA5. So it was pretty certain that if you got COVID in the summer, at least uh, once it was past the middle of June. So, yeah, basically the summer season, which began June uh, 21st, that you basically had BA5 with a small chance it was BA4, which is very similar. So it doesn't really matter. So when people say to me, well, I don't know what variant I had. I had it in, in August 15th, you know, and maybe it was that BA5, but you know, maybe it was the original Omicron or maybe it was Delta. I said, no, no, it was BA5. Small chance it was BA4, but uh, probably BA5. Well, BQ1 and 1.1 are now throwing a wrench into all that. In fact, on October 29th was the first time in many months that BA5 no longer comprised 50% of all the cases. Now, BA5 was 49.6% of all the cases and rapidly falling. So it's still the most cases of any variant, but it is quickly dwindling and soon enough BA5 will be gone. There are other variants you may not even have heard of. BF7 was 7.5% of the cases. BA 4.6 was 9.6% of the cases. BA 5.2.6 was 2.8% of the cases. BA 2.75 was 1.8% of the cases. And BA 2.75.2 was 1.2% of the cases. BA 4 itself was down all the way to 0.2% of the cases. That's almost completely dead, the original BA 4 which may be what I had, by the way. I think that's the highest chance of what I had because BA4 was rapidly rising in Nevada in early June. Except for the ones that start with BA2, I'm talking about BA2.75 and BA2.75.2. Aside from those two, everything else is a descendant of BA4 or BA5, mostly BA5. So, BQ1 and 1.1, these are both direct descendants of BA5 and are said to have a lot of similarity to BA5. BQ, uh, BA4.6 is said to be very similar to BA4 and is a direct descendant of BA4. So even though BA4 is dead, uh, BA4.6 has uh, taken its place, but is still only 9.6% of infections and falling. BF7 is directly from BA5 as well. So even though it sounds different, it is a direct descendant of BA5. So for the most part, uh, everything out there right now, with only a few exceptions, is a direct descendant of BA4 or BA5, and then about half of it is BA5 itself. The reason this is significant is that the closer these variants are to BA4 and BA5, the more likely it is that number one, that if you already had BA4 or BA5, meaning if you caught COVID during the summer, that you're going to be immune to it. Number two, that you won't get severe disease from these, especially if you already had BA4 or BA5. And number three, that this newest vaccine, the bivalent vaccine, will work against the new variants, which this hasn't been tested well yet, but I have a feeling that uh, the new vaccine, the new bivalent vaccine, will work well against BQ1 and 1.1 because they have a lot of similarity to BA5, having directly descended from it and 
they don't seem to have all that much difference. They are more contagious, which is why they are beating BA5. And soon enough, BA5 is going to be gone. BA4 is going to be gone. BA4.6, all, all that's going to be gone. And BQ1 and 1.1 will become very dominant. That That is destined to happen. That may be the case uh, by mid to late November. But don't fear them. Because it's just uh, another shade of, of BA5, basically. Furthermore, they're not more deadly than BA5, and they don't seem to be causing more severe disease than BA5. Now, maybe you're thinking of that woman I just talked about earlier who died abruptly from what was probably BA5, but that was an unusual case. That's where she probably got one of those fungal infections, and unfortunately, it wasn't diagnosed right in time, and she died from it. So it's a very rare case. Uh, you will have rare cases here and there. But remember the number I gave you, four people out of a million who are under 65 in the U.S. died of COVID in September 2022. Four out of a million. Not a lot to fear. So this is all basically good news. What we really don't want to see, and may eventually happen, what we don't want to see is a variant that is substantially different than BA5 to where this will give people a whole new round of infections. The reason BA4 and BA5 popped so many people in 2022 was that, number one, they were very contagious, much more than any previous variant. And number two, having previous COVID, including previous Omicron COVID, such as uh, original Omicron or BA2, did not give you protection from BA4 and 5. They were different enough to where they could infect you again. And that's why a number of people, including my own son, got COVID twice in 2022, and sometimes more than twice. So this was a result mostly of BA4 and 5 being different enough from previous variants. But now we're seeing a lot of spinoffs of BA5, and they're just too similar to likely become a major problem. And... I wouldn't worry too much about now getting BQ1.1 or BQ1 if you already had BA5. It can happen, but it's not as likely as it was before when BQ2 turned to BK4 and BQ uh, or BA4 and 5 because there's just not as much of a difference. So there's a good chance that your natural immunity now to BA5 from having it previously will keep you from getting sick if you're exposed to BQ1 or 1.1, which, as I said, are going to soon become the very dominant variants. They already probably comprise 30 plus percent of the new cases in the U.S. So despite what you might be seeing in some media outlets, this is not a lot to worry about. I know I'm seeing, oh, my God, we're going to have so many new infections during the holidays with more people being indoors and with it getting colder and uh, the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed, blah, blah, blah. No, not going to happen. I also don't think we're going to be seeing a deadlier variant of COVID ever again. I think it's either going to stay the same or get better. I think the really deadly COVID, like what we saw in 20 and 21, I think that's in the past. And the fact that these mutations all seem to be uh, so similar to BA5, is a good sign. 
it may kind of be settling to be along those lines. It's too early to say this, but we could have a long period of time where COVID is very uh, BA5-like. Now, it will mutate more if it's having trouble infecting people. Because you know, if you get BA5 or you get BQ1 or 1.1, then you're going to have some immunity. And if enough people get the immunity, then herd immunity could kick in. And when the virus mutates, it's basically trying to fight the herd immunity. And it, it, it's basically mutating in order to continue living on. And that's why the flu never dies. The flu keeps mutating. COVID's mutations up until now have not been changing for that reason. The reason the dominant variant is changing is because of a higher contagious rate. So BA4, BA5 were a lot more contagious than all other variants before that. Delta was more contagious than the original. Omicron was more contagious than Delta. BA2 was more contagious than original Omicron, and 4 and 5 BA were uh, more contagious than BA2. So now BQ1 and 1.1 are more contagious than BA5 and 4, and uh, that's why they are falling off. But eventually they're going to hit a a contagiousness ceiling, and then it's going to become just a matter of which ones can mutate enough to evade the herd immunity, like, like what's happening with the flu. But what might also be the case is that it never mutates enough to really be all that different from what BA5 is currently. That may be the long-term future with COVID. Too early to say that, but I I just wouldn't be too worried right now. So you hear new variant, you go, oh my God, new variant, what's what's this going to bring? Do not worry. We're not having another Delta. Anyway, uh, that's about it. Uh, Trader Ruski's been fortunate he has not had COVID yet. He's one of the few who's dodged it so far. Is that still true? And I plan to continue that. I don't want to be combing my tongue anytime soon. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I am going down uh, to L.A. To, tonight, though, to stay with my dad uh, at his house. So, you know, getting out, but uh, going to stay safe. Yeah, and I'm going well. to a funeral tomorrow or later this afternoon, the memorial. So, oh. you know, but I'll mask up probably there. Who the fuck knows? Is it outdoors or indoors? I'm not even sure. No. If it's outdoors, I wouldn't worry. Indoors, uh, yeah, there's there's some chance. You know, this BQ1 and 1.1, it's, it's even more contagious than BA5. It's, it's going to be hard for you to avoid this uh, forever. It's, uh, you've gotten lucky so far, but it's getting harder and harder to avoid. And I, I wonder how much longer I would have gone without getting it if I didn't go to the World Series of Poker. Right. That got me pretty fast. But prior to that, uh, I was not getting it. Now, I have been going to live card rooms a lot since then, but it's still not the same. It's the World Series just so packed with people. You're just, you're just asking for it. And, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if my next bout of COVID comes from the 2023 World Series. I wouldn't be surprised if I don't get it again until then. And, you know, if I do, I do. I'm not, I'm not going to avoid the World Series because of this. I'm, I've decided I'm not going to avoid anything because of COVID. Because uh, there's just not the same danger profile as there was before. And I'm glad to see that. That's, that's what I was hoping I would see. And you didn't get the new vaccine, right, Rob? 
No, there's there's no point because I got better than the vaccine. I got the real thing in in June. I, I had the real uh, disease. So, uh, yeah, you could make the argument it's been five months now, and uh, I'm vulnerable again. But I just I don't want to get myself sick for three days. I, I'm not even so worried about the side effects that would permanently harm me in any way because I, I've got four shots and it doesn't look like I took any kind of permanent harm. But the the three days of illness just sucks and I just don't want to do it especially since I I now have this natural immunity which I saw in action when Ben and his mom got COVID about a month and a half later and obviously I don't have the same immunity as I had in late July but uh, I'll I'll take my chances with it for the time being and I, you know, I'm always monitoring the situation, but am I looking forward to taking another vaccine and getting myself sick for three days, get myself a 103 fever and all these very bad uh, muscle and joint pains and everything else that comes with this? No. Like I, I And the hot and cold flashes, I, I get tons of stuff from this, and I, I really don't want to do it. Like, it's... It, the benefit I'm getting from it is getting less and less. So I I don't know if and when I will ever take another vaccine unless there is, I'm talking about COVID vaccines, unless there's a change here to where I, I feel that is the right thing to do. The only thing I will say is that the vaccine I took in May very well might have kept my COVID very mild that I got at the World Series. And if that's the case, that was good. Then maybe it was worth it. Did you get the shingles vaccine? I did not. And I'm having trouble determining whether it's the right thing to do or not. Because I had the real thing with shingles, too, in 2010. And uh, apparently only 4% of people who had shingles previously get it again. So that would make it seem like that without this vaccine, that I have a 96% chance of never having shingles again in my life. But then some others are saying that still it's it's better to get the vaccine than take the chance on that 4% because you know, the older I get, the higher chance it is that shingles could cause nerve damage and all that. So I, I, I don't quite know what to do with this. There are some risks with the vaccine too. So it's not a zero risk thing either. So I'm not sure. If if I didn't have shingles yet, then I would have gotten it this year because this is the first year they recommend it when you're 50. Did you get it yet? No, <laughs> I didn't, but I think I'm going to get it. Yeah, you've never had shingles though, right? No, I haven't. Yeah, so I got it in uh, 2010, and I really do think it was vaccine-induced. I think it was partially vaccine-induced. I think it was the one, two, three punch of a getting over a cold having the flu shot and having the Tdap vaccine all within a short time. And I think the Tdap vaccine was the biggest culprit. And I think those three combined to do it. And I've read other reports on the internet of people who've experienced the same thing with the exact same timetable I had. But uh, regardless, I needed to take those vaccines then because I was having a little baby there. And you can't give these... Uh, to a baby or they could die, you know, either the flu or, or, or pertussis. So I, I needed those vaccines to protect Benjamin, and I had to take a chance of what was going to happen. 
I didn't think that was going to happen. I didn't think I was going to get shingles. But even if I knew that was a chance, I knew I was going to have to do it anyway. But I, I think that's how I got the shingles. But anyway, wh- whether I take the vaccine now for the shingles, now that I've already had it uh, 12 years ago, I don't know. It's, it's a tough one. But Would I, you I, take it if you hadn't had it? Yes. So I agree with you getting it. I'm just saying that uh, for me, it's different having already, already had it 12 years ago. Jesus, I can't believe 2010's 12 fucking years ago. <laughs> when you said it first, I'm like, oh, a few years ago. And then you're like 12 years. Yeah. <laughs> well, this show and this site, it's existed for uh, now more than 10 and a half years. We're getting close to 11 years of Poker Fraud Alert. It's been a long time. Crazy. You know, when I, I heard uh, one of the old episodes playing on the streaming reruns the other day, and I want to apologize to those who go back and listen to the old episodes. The sound quality of the 2012 episodes is terrible. And it was me being too frugal, not from a money standpoint, but from like a data standpoint. I felt like I don't need to broadcast at more than 32 kilo, kilobytes, uh, the uh, 32 kbps kilobits per second I felt that I did not need to broadcast it higher than that because I felt that anything more than that will bog down people's connection and maybe they'll get buffering like I'm, I'm so obsessed with preventing buffering that I actually clobbered the sound quality of my own show in 2012 so I go back and listen it's, it sounds like uh, like a bad AM radio from back in the day I just don't sound clear, and the co-hosts don't sound clear. The whole thing doesn't sound clear. And I don't know how I didn't listen to it at the time and say the sound quality sucks. Like, I had the same ears back then. In fact, your hearing gets a little bit worse each year. So my hearing was actually better 10 years ago than it is now. But, but I listen now, and I go, that sound quality is terrible. And uh, a year later, I wised up in 2013, like right like in January. I was like, you know what? Screw this. Uh, the sound quality sucks. I'm going to go up to 64. So I went up to 64, and that was a market improvement, and that's why you hear the episodes from 13, 14, 15, whatever, and the sound quality is not bad anymore. However, it took until I got this laptop a few years ago and uh, that it didn't have an integrated uh, sound card that was capable to do the radio. It didn't have what's known as stereo mix, so I had to get an external sound card, and then people complained that it didn't sound crisp enough and the sound quality wasn't good. So to compensate for that... I raised the bit rate to 128, which I could have done all along. I could have had 128 back in 2012, and to be honest, it would have been fine. But I so didn't want the giant file sizes and the possible buffering that I just didn't want to do it. And I was kind of forced into it, and now I wish I had 128 the whole way. Because 128 sounds the best. It sounds so much better than the others. So I hear more recent episodes, and I go, wow. You know, I I even sound better now than I did in in the mid-2010s when I had the 64 kbps going. And I go, why didn't I just go with the best sound quality to start and then only change it if people complained? So anyway, that's why the file sizes are bigger. I don't know if you guys are seeing this. If you have a computer, you'll probably see it, but... It's not just that the shows are longer, which they are, but it's also because we're now broadcasting at uh, twice the bit rate we used to and four times the bit rate from 2012. 
So I like the sound quality now. I'm a big sound quality guy. That's why I'm, I'm ashamed that I let this go on for almost a year with this terrible sound quality. Because I still hear other shows, including ones in poker. I'm not going to name him, but I, I hear other shows, and the sound quality sometimes sucks. And some of them have like a real budget, unlike us. And I go, what's the problem here? Like, why don't they have better sound quality? Like, uh, the, the sound quality should be good. And that's why I'm ashamed that at the beginning we did not have good sound quality, but, but now we do. But if you're going to listen to me for all these hours, you know, the sound quality's got to be good. Otherwise, it, it's got to be irritating. Okay, that's my, my little uh, sound quality rant. And, uh, and that's it. I, mean, I don't have much more to say. Trader Risky, do you have any uh, New Year's plans? New Year's plans? Yeah, it's only two oh, months away. I guess it's. I guess it is November. Um, I'm so buried with work. I haven't even thought about Thanksgiving, really. Um, yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't either. Like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, and uh, I, I hate to have it another year where I'm at home because I was at home uh, in 2020 and uh, 2021 for New Year's, but uh, it may happen. Not for really any good reason. But from 2011 all the way through 2019, I was not at home at all for New Year's for those nine straight years. In fact, even the one to 2020. So I guess it was the 21 and 22 New Year's as a, you know as we bridged into those. The reason I actually stayed home for the 22 New Year's, I'm a little bit ashamed to say, it was because of Omicron. Because... I just heard it was so contagious and it wasn't quite known yet if it was as deadly as Delta and I heard it was breaking through vaccines and the whole thing kind of rattled me. But I committed that this year, no matter what, no matter what happens with COVID, unless I have it, that I'm not going to stay home for that reason. So New Year's 23, which is now less than two months away, I am, I'm going to only stay home if I just make no other plans. But at the moment, I have no other plans. I don't have comp rooms in Vegas either. They're not like super expensive, but they're not cheap and they're not comps. So I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll just stay home. I'm getting old. All right. Well, thank you, Trader Ruski, for coming on. And uh, I'm going to wrap this thing up here. And uh, I'll throw this in the archives uh, later on uh, today. Okay, Drop, try to do it soon so I can listen well, either on my drive to L.A. or on the drive back. Okay, when are you driving to L.A.? Later today? Well, probably in about an hour. Oh, it's not going to be up in an hour. <laughs> Come on. All right. When are you driving back? Um, tomorrow night. Oh, tomorrow, tomorrow night, uh, that's a very good chance of that. So uh, I will try to get this up uh, maybe sometime in the evening tonight. Do you like any football this weekend? I have not looked yet. Uh, I've I've been let, let me before I shut this down. Have a little sports betting talk here. I've been I'm such an idiot because I was going to put Philly in my I was going to put uh, Houston in my pool last night, and I just fucking by the time I thought about it, it was five thirty. Really, Houston? Wow. Yep. That that's pretty brave there. What can you do? What can you do? <laughs> Thirteen. I just did. I, it was thirteen and a half, and then that I would have got it at. Then the line moved to fourteen. I'm like, I don't want to take them. Like I'm giving up a half. And then yeah, I, so well, I didn't do it right away, and then I just didn't rethink about it. So 
They're really bad, though. Like I, I had them the week before, and I, I lost, and it, it, they're just so bad. I, I just hate betting on these awful teams to cover. I, I, I like more to stick with the uh, the underrated but not terrible teams, and I've done very well with that strategy this year in the NFL. Uh, and and, and I, I deviated from it a bit last week with, with Houston. I'm not talking about uh, Thursday, but uh, the previous game, and uh, I got clobbered. I didn't come close. So I, I don't blame you for not uh, firing on that. But, yeah, in, so far... I've done uh, extremely well in the NFL, mostly thanks to this uh, tremendous start. But uh, to tell people my record here, and by the way, this is not a fabricated record. This is something that I've posted all the bets on both my Vegas Casino Talk forum and on uh, Poker Fraud Alert before the game starts. You can see the timestamps. People are observing these. If I were to be past posting, people would say so. But my NFL record right now is 27-9-1. And... Some of these 27 were sizable dogs, right? Bet the money line instead of the spread. So I'm actually up 20 units, 20.03 units in this 27-9 in one record. So to be up 20 units, and when I say units, I'm not playing units games where I'm like betting several units on something. Everything is one unit. The only reason I'm using units is because sometimes I'll bet like a plus 180 underdog, and if I win that, that's 1.8 units. So that's different than winning a spread pick, which uh, is... a uh, 0.91 units, or, or losing where you're losing one unit. So every anytime I lose, it's considered a loss of one unit, and anytime I win, it's based upon the line that I'm betting on. So if it's a spread, it's minus 110, and if it's a money line, it's whatever I'm getting on the money line. So I'm up 20 units, which is amazing, in just uh, 37 picks. I'll never duplicate that. Uh, in college football, I'm just slightly above even, so that's not anything that exciting. I, I won a little bit last week to bring myself slightly above even, but uh, it, that's been very mediocre so far. I'm 19, 20, and 1, and I'm up 0.56 units, so that's nothing to write home about. And I'm slightly beating the juice, but that's it. But NBA has been a disaster so far. I lost again today, and I'm now 12, 19, and 1, and I'm down 7.69 units. So that's that's not good. So if I continue having such a hard time in NBA, I'm just going to have to quit it as much as I don't want to. Like, I enjoy betting NBA, but I've just had such a hard time last season and this season getting it right. But I, I, tough. Yeah, I am encouraged, though, with uh, my NFL picks, and, and I, I think maybe even with the college football picks, I can do decently at that. I had some nice underdog hits on Saturday. I've got to look at those. I'll look at those first before I look closely at the NFL for Sunday. So I can't give you guys anything, but you can look at Poker Fraud Alert or you can look at the sports betting forum on Vegas Casino Talk, the sister site to Poker Fraud Alert. You can see my picks. And uh, NBA, bet at your own risk. I'm uh, not doing too well on that. But uh, NFL, you know, you can see the record. It's, uh, it's a pretty good record so far. And I still have not had any... Like, bad week. I've had two kind of mediocre weeks, including last week, but no bad weeks yet, and very few blowouts. Here's another stat that might amaze you with my NFL picks, that uh, prior to last week, where 
the uh, Texans wasn't even close to covering. Prior to last week, I had made 33 picks. And of those 33 picks, 32 of them either won or lost by 0.5 or 1 points or were leading sometime in the middle fourth quarter or later. So basically only one of those 33 picks didn't really have a chance. And that was something I was very proud of, not just my overall record, but that 32 of the 33 picks were either winners or very close to winners. There's only one bad one of those 33, and that was one where an injury happened after I picked it. As I said last week, uh, the Houston one against Tennessee didn't come close, so that was one that uh, didn't fall within that, but that was only the second one. I've still only had uh, two now out of the 37 picks that were... uh, I guess the Arizona one wasn't that close either, so I guess maybe it's three. But anyway... It's not just your record, it's also how you're winning. And if you're winning by wide margins and losing by small margins, you know you're picking well. And if it's the opposite, if you're squeaking by with your wins and then getting blown out when you're losing, then you're picking very poorly. And I'll be honest, with the NBA, that's what's been happening. I've been barely winning the ones I've been winning. And the I've had a lot of big losses. Big meaning like where it's not even close. So that's kind of concerning to me. Where the NFL, it's, it's the opposite, where it's... Uh, it either seems to win or become uh, or close to winning. And I had two great totals uh, picks last week uh, that uh, in the NFL, which covered. So I'm still uh, bullish on my NFL picks. We'll see how they continue to go. But don't have any to provide you guys uh, right now, but you can check the, uh, the forum. And, of course, uh, with any of this, do it at your own risk. You never know when I'll go cold in any of these sports. Uh, but I will tell you, I'm not just picking these out of my ass. I, I do put research into these. I, I do look at a, a variety of factors, including uh, betting patterns of, of other people. And uh, like I, I put a lot of things together. I don't mimic anyone's picks. I'm not uh, getting these from elsewhere. I am uh, putting a variety of factors together to come up with my own system. But it, it's not like a, a an automated type system. It, it's... Uh, it's just criteria I use to eventually come to a decision of what I want to bet on. And, uh, you know, there, there's a reason that I, I'm doing as well as I am right now in, in some of these things. And then, you know, sometimes the whatever method I'm using isn't working, like what's happening with the NBA right now. So anyway, that's, uh, that's my little sports betting discussion. You're welcome to take a look at my picks. They're all provided for free right on... Uh, the sites. I'm not asking anyone for anything for these. I'm, I'm not trying to transition this into some sort of pay system for picks. Nothing like that. I'm just uh, posting it for fun so you guys can see and bet along if you want. In fact, I, I get a little. Uh, I feel guilty if I post picks and then people follow them and it loses. Uh, fortunately, last week, Country Nine Seven Eight, who I know listens to this show, he decided not to go with. I forget which pick, but one of my picks he was going to go with and decided that he really felt the other way and went the other way, and it turned out he was right. Whereas in previous weeks, he actually reversed some of his picks to go with me, and it turned out I was right. So uh, I, I was happy to see that when he did that, when he reversed his picks to go with me and actually went the complete other way, that it worked out. But it, I would always feel bad if that were to happen where someone reversed the pick they liked 
to go with my interpretation and then I lost. Like, it's always a little bit of pressure. But just keep that in mind. You know, you're all adults. You can decide whether you want to follow my picks or not. And, uh, yeah, it's all a work in progress, too. We will see what happens this weekend. I will have some picks. I just don't know what they are yet. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I sent you, uh, I texted you where I'm at. I'm up by four games in my pool, 404 people. So hopefully, uh, yeah, got to keep going. I've had, I was five and one, four weeks, and four and two, four weeks. I, I got to zoom in on this here. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I see season standings. Are you in first place? Yep. Up oh, by wow. four games. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. So, it's called a Jam Pro. You can pick any either of them. So, so when does this end? At the end of the NFL season? End of uh, regular yep. season? Yeah, end of the end of regular end of NFL regular season. Now, what Last we, week, the only what, game I lost was Auburn plus three and a half, and they got killed. What will you win if you stay in first? Well, it's it's uh, four. It was four fifty three to get in. There's like four k a week for anybody that goes six and zero. And then if the people go six and zero, and you don't go at least three and three the following week, twenty five percent goes back into the year long pool. So I mean, it'll it, it'll probably be like uh, ten to twelve k for first. Hmm. Well, I hope so, you yeah, ma- should be good. I hope you maintain it. Yeah, top yeah, ten get paid. Yeah, well, it's, it's good. You're you're in first by four games right now. That's that's pretty strong. Yeah, but I haven't had any six and zero, so I'm not happy. But you know, hopefully, uh, I'll get one this weekend. All right. Well, that is good. Well, I guess we're going to shut this down here. Thank you guys for listening. We'll try to keep this more uh, on like a week time frame rather than the uh, ten day, eleven day thing we've been doing recently. Maybe Friday is the next show. I think, yeah. And and I guess we'll know a lot more about uh, the election by the next show, and we'll discuss the results there, whatever they might be. Well, thank you, Trader Ruski, for coming on. It's always nice to have you. I don't know if you can hear me over the music, but I guess you heard this later. Trader Risky, you, you there? I didn't, couldn't hear you over the music. Okay, it's that damn Skype. Okay, well. So I'm signing off. Have okay, well, day, thank buddy. you for coming on. We'll talk to you later. Okay, there we go. I, I just felt bad about just letting him not hear me and just hanging up on him. I mean, he'll understand, but I just felt rude. next show we'll have pretty minimal Robbie J. Lou content unless something really of interest happened. I'm getting more and more tired of the story. I think it's kind of lodged in one spot that's not going to change. To be honest, it was kind of a, a slow week. I, I don't know how I made all this time covering all this stuff. It, it, it was not a very heavy news week regarding poker and gambling this week. But it allowed me to cover a lot of smaller stories that otherwise might have skipped. I've always got to go through everything and see what 
is most important to cover, and sometimes things get cut. But this week, there wasn't much to cut. But what I do here is I, I try to present to you what I think you'll find interesting. And uh, sometimes I succeed with that, sometimes I don't. Got a text from the 773 saying that the sound sucked 10 years ago, but the content was better. He needs an update on all the old characters. But I don't know, the show was kind of different 10 years ago, but I don't know if it, I would say better, it's just different in some ways. 507 said cooking had to turn off show. I have no idea why cooking makes him turn it off, but... All right. Shalom.